Synoptic Gospels are the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's a little bit different, but uh, there are ten parables in the Gospels. Parables uh, come from a double word, para beside, and balayan, to throw or to cast. So uh, a parable is something where you throw something beside something else to come up with something, I guess. Uh, of the ten major parables in the Gospels, uh, one is on being fishers of men, one is the sick and the physician, one is the bridegroom, one is new cloth and old garment, another one new wine and old wineskins, one about overcoming the strong man, there's one about the wicked husbandman, the rejected stone and the fig tree. Now those are the ten major parables in uh, the Synoptic Gospels, most of them in Mark and in Matthew, a few in Luke. But of all of those, the one given the greatest amount of attention in the Scriptures is the one found in Matthew 13, Mark chapter 4, and Luke chapter 8. It is a parable which has been called the parable of the sower, and uh, we could call it the parable of the sower and the soils because it really deals uh, with the ground. So it, let's call it the, the parable of the sower and the soils with the emphasis on soils. Of the 3,779 verses in the Gospels, 1,934, more than half, are Christ's words, and they're dealing with religious people. A great chunk of it is dealing with religious people. Out of these ten parabolic illustrations in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the majority of them, uh, seven of them, are full parables, and uh, all of them have to do with evangelism, with the winning of people to Christ, with the building of the kingdom. And the one with this greatest coverage and attention, a key parable, is this one in Mark. Now we're going to read the passage together, and I want you to see why I believe it. It really is the most significant uh, of all of the parables. It's a very short Mark if you want to get a pricey or a summary of anything, always read it in Mark, because he doesn't amplify very much, he just buzzes ahead and gets it on. He began again to teach by the seaside, and there were gathered unto him a great multitude, so he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. The whole multitude was by the sea on the land, and he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his doctrine. First, a great crowd was gathered to Jesus. So the context of this is a great crowd that are hungry, that are interested in religious things. And it's to them that he gives this parable. And that's why it has peculiar application in our time, because I think we have a vast interest. What is it? Over 90% of this nation claims to believe in God. At least 53% claim to have had a born-again experience of some kind. Now that includes those who were born again when they were dropping a cap of acid or, you know, uh, or when they, uh, they died before and they vividly remember their new earth life. and I mean, that includes everybody chucked into that category. But it also includes a large number of people who, if you cross-examine them on the streets, said, have you ever become a Christian? Would you consider yourself a Christian? Have you had an evangelical born-again experience? They would say, oh, yes, yes. Now, whether they live like that or not is a different story. 53%. Uh, I talked to George Gallup, who came up with that statistic some years back, and I said, George, uh, according to this statistic, a huge chunk of this country are 
claimed to be born again. And I said, I've been meeting the other 47%, I think, for the last 20 years. So there must be some problems here. And he told me that's pretty general. It covers all kinds of things. But there are a large chunk of people who claim to be born again. And it was a crowd of religious people that came to Jesus. They were not irreligious. They were not the scoffers. They were there gathered. And, the, and Mark points out, he with his fascination with the crowds and power and authority, points out that uh, this great multitude gathered and then Jesus got into the ship and began to teach them this story. Uh, they went out a sower to sow. It's got nothing to do with singer sewing machines or all of that. That's this old kind of, you know, this sowing. Came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth. Immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. And when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Some fell among thorns. The thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. Another fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some 30, some 60, and some 100. Now, how many of you got ears this morning? Put your hands up. Most of you? Now, the pastor once only had one. He used to have fun with a plastic one that he plugged in, and he would, uh, he would turn it around and do stuff. Oh, what? I'm getting signals here. Slide it down, slide it down a little bit, slide it down. There it down now. That's good. <laughs> so sit on planes and this ear was a little different color, see, than the others. And Tommy was sitting on a plane and um, a lady behind him was talking to another lady. She said, is that a real ear? And he turned it around, you know, to... <laughs> He'd really have fun and uh, people preaching on... Peter cutting ears off, he'd flick his ear. <laughs> you got ears? Scripture says, then listen. And of course, everybody had ears in those days. They thought, well, that's heavy, you know. We, we really ought to listen to this. This is addressed then to the whole multitude of the religious crowd. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked him of him the parable. He says a strange thing. He talks about to those that are without, all these things are done in parables and have to read Matthew a little bit to get the amplification of this. This is not an arbitrary thing. When people came with hungry hearts to Christ, he just told them directly, go and do this, go and do that. When they came with uh, seeking to find ways around what he was saying, he told them a story. You can't get executed easily for telling stories. And uh, he said to them in verse 13, and here's a key phrase. Do you not understand or don't you know this parable? How then will you know all parables? It seems to me that from the importance uh, of this thing in which there are uh, 14 verses devoted to this, the next closest is the parable of the wicked husband in Matthew, uh, in uh, Luke 29 to 16, which has nine verses. There's 14 verses devoted to this parable in uh, the Gospels. Seven verses telling and seven verses explaining it. And uh, that is a significant fact to start with. What I want you to do in this study, and we're going to look together, is if you can keep your finger in these other uh, three passages, when we look it up, I want you to take each passage in turn and then 
uh, call out for me the key characteristics in each situation. We'll look in Matthew, see what Matthew says. We'll look in Mark, see what Mark says. We'll look at Luke, see what Luke says, and so on, right through first the stating of the parable, and then secondly, Jesus' explanation of the parable. Before we get into that, I want to give you a very briefly the scope of the problem we have today. If, uh, if it was just simply a matter of uh, being able to say Christian things and speak Christian things to the world, without uh, doubt, the West leads the world. Uh, we have the ability in the Western world to communicate to more people more effectively than any other uh, time or any other culture in human history. And stuff like satellite technology, these are videotapes we're doing now, uh, audio tapes plus print of a ten and a half thousand new Christian books every year, uh, the new satellite stuff. I just saw Rex Humbard a little while ago. He, he, they have their program in seven languages, and it's interesting to see Rex preach in Japanese or something like that. What they do is on the, on the satellite um, uh, uh, bands, they have a whole bunch of free audio channels, up to 14 audio channels on one video channel. So when I visited the cathedral tomorrow, a year or so ago, there was a, they had booths in which somebody would be watching the uh, Rex preaching and they'd be preaching too. And a computer would take the voice and stretch it and shift it to lip sync it. So there's reaching, oh, you know, like this, you know, but you go, oh, so, you know. And, uh, and just to switch of audio and you beam down in another nation, you come out in Spanish and stuff like that. He did seven languages. Uh, this year they're making a thrust to, to shift to 91 languages. Now that's, that's kind of a quantum jump. That's not 14, how about 21? Then like this. So we have the ability to, to, to uh, say things to the world. The problem is, what are we saying? That's, that's the... I had a friend, he worked, uh, he prayed while he was in high school that God would make him, uh, uh, give him the ability to speak to the media. And uh, he, his vision was to start a Christian communications thing and, you know, lay these heavy tapes out to... Billy Graham gave him a commission to do different things. And so he was all set and he got drafted in the army in Vietnam, right? When Vietnam days were on and... Uh, that was, he did everything he could to get out of that so he could go on with his ministry. And uh, instead he was given the task of Beachmaster in the Marines. Beachmaster uh, life expectancy under combat is about 45 seconds. What you do is you land on the beach first and with your back to the enemy you wave in the on signal in because he said he was in communication so they put him on Beachmaster and you signal in the oncoming troops while the other guys fire at you from behind. So this was not a promising future for a young Christian. He was ready to meet God but not anxious. And what happened is uh, the day before he was due to be shipped out, uh, some Pentagon general realized that they were, had this largest radio system in the world, it's bigger than ABC, NBC, and CBS all put together, the Armed Services Network and that they were saying all this stuff and none of the people, none of the kids who were part of the army were listening. They were hopelessly out. They needed a communications person and went through their files, the computer spat out this guy who said he was in communications and they pulled him the day before he went out to Vietnam to land on the beaches and put him in charge of the armed services network. So he had 
direct TV tie-ins to all of the television stations in the U.S. and a 10,000 album record library to pull on and uh, could visit the set of any movie, close sets, any kind of set and ask questions to the producer. I mean, he's given top-level authority. So he worked for four years in communications. The best there were, over was it 200, 300 face-to-face -face ways of communicating with people. And I remember talking with him one time. He said, I have a microphone on my desk. I could pick it up and switch it on and you could talk to the largest audience, um, networked audience in the world. And he said, now I've spent four years learning how to do it, and I can't find anybody who can say anything. And our uh, study is on the content of the gospel. It's not a problem of being able to say things to people. It's no longer a communications problem. Any of us could communicate something. The question is, what are we saying? Are we saying what God is saying? Are we preaching what Christ would preach? Are we teaching what he would teach? Uh, to give you an idea of the scope of the problem, it seems to me that our problem in the country is, is not in lack of religious experience, it is lack of genuine Christian experience. Uh, a shallow thing. We could call it a counterfeit conversion has eaten out the heart of the Western world. Uh, I had a friend, he was praying that God would tear down the Iron Curtain so that the gospel could go into Russia. And a friend of mine who just returned from Russia said, I believe God put up the Iron Curtain to keep our kind of Christianity out of Russia. And uh, I'll give you some examples from history here. Uh, here's what uh, one young man, is, he's a... Uh, in a missionary fellowship now, he said, most adults don't face reality. They're very reluctant to believe anything sordid or sadistic about the flesh and blood people under their personal jurisdiction. To them, rottenness is often a reality in the abstract, but never in, never in the concrete. Seems to me a great injustice is being done to our young people because of this attitude. Christian workers are supposed to be spiritual problem solvers, but no problem is ever solvable until it is faced squarely, called by its right and I'm dragged into the light and washed away in the blood of Christ. Recently, a young missionary uh, told how he had repeatedly taken his problem to a spiritual counselor, only to be told he should simply have faith. So while he went to Bible school in the morning, he sat in shows in the afternoon, smoked cigarettes, and sank in sin in the evenings, while he was vainly trying to have faith that his soul needed. It is simply not fair to smile a spiritual smile at our young people, soothe ourselves inwardly by calling their difficulty superficial symptoms, and let it go at that. If we do, we are certainly the ones being fooled. God is in on the facts. The devil knows the true story. The young person himself is painfully aware of his real condition. I slid down the rugged road to perdition myself for years in my life and always under the ministry of the Word of God. Nobody ever was kind enough to thrust a loving finger at me and call me the low-down sinner I knew I was. I heard about heaven every Sunday and things about hell the rest of the week. And it seemed there was no one around who would graciously back me into a corner and plainly, plainly tell me which place I was bound for. We're surrounded by a whole growing generation which is immersed in fornication, thievery, swearing, hypocrisy, perversity, pride, and rebellion. Young people don't want some vague religious-sounding drivel about comfort and peace. They must be confronted with a strong God who looks them squarely in the eye, calls a spade a spade, and comes to grips with the particular sin and problem which plague their day-by-day -day lives. I frankly admit I'd not be much interested in getting to know the God who is usually introduced by preachers and programs. This God is afraid to tell me what I look like. Uh, here's another one. There's a young man in a high school in Germany. 
He had excellent records in this high school. It was a Christian school. He was planning on going to university in the fall. Examiners looked over his test papers. His maths was pretty bad, but uh, he was a good writer. And uh, one, paper, one paper was called A Young Man's Choice of His Career. And uh, Kitty was writing the paper, warned young people they should consider God's will before deciding on their life, their life work. And his last paper was a theological one. It was called On the Union of Believers with Christ. And they read these sentences, which were the final test of the five years of Christian training they had put in his life. Zeal for virtue becomes deafened by the tempting voice of sin, turns into a mockery as soon as we feel the full impact of life. Yearning for truth is deadened by the sweet flattering strength of a lie. Man remains the only member of the created universe who is unworthy of the God who made him. Yet the gracious creator is incapable of hating his own handiwork. He wanted to raise it up to himself and so he sent his son. He causes us to be called through these words. Now you are clean through the words which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Where does Christ express more clearly the necessity of union with himself than the beautiful parable of the vine and the branches in which he refers to himself as the vine and to us as the branches? Our hearts, reason, history, the word of Christ all call out to us loudly and convincingly to tell us that union with him is absolutely necessary, that without him we'd be rejected of God, that he alone is able to deliver us. The year was 1835. The student was the son of a converted Jewish lawyer who was baptized into church membership with five years of evangelical high school instruction. And two years later, the same boy became an avowed atheist. And eight years later, he penned these words. Man makes religion. Religion does not make man. Religion is the opiate of the people. The people cannot really be happy until they've been deprived of the illusory happiness by the abolition of all religion. His name was Karl Marx. Now, I believe in our nation there are tens of thousands of kids who if you ask them, are you a Christian, they'd say yes. But down the road, just five years down the road, two years down the road, what in the world is going to happen? In the 1960s, there were tens of thousands of kids who came in under the Jesus movement and Church Renewal movement and the Charismatic movement in the Western world. And I think there's a groundwork there of knowledge of God that's beginning to affect now. Some of these were teenagers. There were kids maybe in junior high school. Some of them are in universities now. Some of them are moving up. There are young middle, uh, um, middle class families across the nation. And I think that religious impulse that came in in the 1960s has begun to affect now the nation in the 1980s. Uh, in recent surveys conducted on college campuses, there's a great burst of patriotism that's come back into the country. Uh, uh, desire to stick up for the U.S. Two-thirds of college students interviewed and a whole bunch of colleges said they would lay their life down for the nation. Now that's a radical shift away from the 1960s and from Vietnam. Some things have happened in the consciousness of the nation. There is a network of young people who, who grew up in the 60s where there was a, a throwing away of materialism and, and all this stuff and enough religious background there for them to know all the words. And the great thing about that is that it really lays a good foundation for a revival. When people know what they ought to do but are not doing it, when they have enough truth there laid at the, at the base that has not, uh, somebody's not backed them into a corner and said, well, why aren't you living like this? Then there's a great base laid for revival. You don't have to put in the words first. It's already there. What we want to look at again is 
what are we going to say if this breakthrough, which I'm praying and believing God is going to do, comes in the tens of thousands of people go out to preach to those who are away from church, who know nothing of this other 47% that don't know if they've had anything, what are we going to say to them? Let's put it like this. God is not stupid. He will not bring awakening to a nation when we're not prepared to conserve the results of that awakening. And the only reason I think why God is held back on doing anything in this country is because if it we disseminated what we've got now across the world, we'd hurt what's happening in all the rest of the world. It's been cut off from our Western ideas and cut off from our crazy views of what Christianity is. So that is, uh, I think, one of the reasons why God has held back the full force of what he could do. We've seen in this country a renewal. We're not close yet to a revival, but there's a, it's like a tide going up. And what's interesting is when the tide rises, little ships come up first. See? Now, it takes a long time for the big ships to move. So all around, you watch the little, little groups, little group here and little group there, and the odd one person in this closet over here, that's the ones that first feel the tide. And eventually the giant type, you know, steamers. Oh yes, yes, I noticed the water. We've been here in the mud 40 years, but it'll come. Uh, is it possible to be religious without a Christian? Of course it is possible to be religious without a Christian, to, without, to be religious without being a Christian. There's a book written in the 60s, How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. We need to write a book now called How to Be Religious Without Being a Christian. Uh, our problem today is a counterfeit Christianity, a false Christianity. Two examples from history. How Christian can you be without being Christian? <laughs> Here was a young man. He got up at four every morning to pray. Pretty heavy for a start, isn't it? He wrote a list to discipline his life in holiness. He spent hours every day studying the great spiritual masters of his time. And uh, he met with friends every week to study the Bible. He preached to others. He went out on a missionary journey to another nation. And he wasn't a Christian. His name was John Wesley. And one prominent bishop who studied John Wesley's life before he became a Christian said this, if John Wesley was not a good Christian in Georgia, which is where he went to this nation to be a missionary from England, totally failed, miserably, came back on the boat, blown away. If John Wesley was not a good Christian in Georgia, then God help the majority of people who call themselves Christians. But on the way back, remember he ran into that little band they were praying on the boat and up came this giant storm looked like everybody was going to die on the boat and he, these guys were all singing they were all excited going to meet God and John Wesley was freaked out of his gourd he could not believe they were doing this and they, they knew he was a missionary they knew that he was a preacher they said well he said in effect why aren't you afraid and they said well our hearts are hid with Christ and God is this not true with you brother he said oh yes <laughs> he said in his diary I fear these were vain words and he realized he didn't have what he was studying about he knew all the facts he had all the information but he did not have that reality and then remember reading 
uh, going into that Eldersgate prayer meeting chapel and hearing Luther's epistle to the Romans. Luther, another man that came from a lot of religious study. He was in a monastery. He did not have that personal change of life that made him a firebrand and affected the whole history of the world. Reading that same writings by Luther on justification by faith, Wesley in his uh, talked about which uh, Garth Lean has made the subject of his uh, dynamite short little biography of Wesley. Dynamite went to get hold of He felt his heart strangely warmed. And uh, later on, the beautiful words, I felt that Christ had given me birth to brother every soul on earth. And out of that came the great awakening, which uh, changed England, preserved it from what could have been a bloody mess like the French Revolution was. All right? Another guy. Uh, here's a man. He sang in a choir. He had a great voice. He played a musical instrument in the choir. He was at church every Sunday. He never went to the prayer meetings because he didn't feel like they were having their prayers answered, so he didn't go. And uh, this young man went out into the woods and he was studying his Bible every day to uh, see what God had to say about right and wrong. But he was so embarrassed if somebody came into his business when he had the Bible, he'd throw books on top of it, you know, so nobody would catch him reading it. And he went out in the woods and God spoke to him in the woods and dealt with him. He came back into his office and he was playing a song and began to weep and the Lord appeared to him face to face and gave him in his own words a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Charles Finney got off his knees to be a man of God, to change his world. I think some of the greatest revivalists in history are religious people that were not saved and then got saved. So there is great potential in a counterfeit convert to become real and to become a world changer because they've got all of this stuff behind them. Now, how many of you got saved out of the streets? You didn't know anything about anything. About three or four of you. How many of you came from religious backgrounds? You know, you have 87 grand parents that were all missionary evangelists or something. Now, I was essentially pagan, you know, I came from an essentially pagan background, not the uh, beat up, strangled to death pagan, but the nice pagan, you know, the <laughs> ordinary pagan. So, but I had uh, six years of religiousness before I got saved. And the only value in that is that I learned a lot of words, I learned a lot of verses that were not real until God changed my life. So I believe one of the biggest mission fields in the world today is in the church, kids and adults who do not know God. And there may be some Wesleys and some Finney sitting there uh, smoking cigarettes and doing dope and preaching at night who need to get saved. So here is a message uh, that is desperately needed. Okay, that's the scope of the problem. And one, two... Now, let's look at this parable. I want you to give me, please, uh, in outline, the first Can you give me the name of the first soil? We'll put this all up on the board. Here's a man, he's a sower. 
got a bag here or something and he's, he's throwing this stuff out. Look at this book. You three verses a day Bible scholars. This was written in, uh, look at the size of the print in this thing. Would you believe the guy did two like this in his spare time? You know where it was done? 1668. The guy got saved, 18 years old, started writing. This is on the Soa. About <clears throat> there to there in fine print. Now, how much are you going to get out of this thing? There's 14 verses in there. <laughs> Here's what uh, Benjamin Keach says about the purpose of this parable. It is evident one reason or main design of Christ speaking this parable is to convince him it is not sufficient to hear the word of God preached, but that many may hear it who have never effectively have, who are never effectually wrought upon by it, but shall eternally perish. In other words, a lot of people will hear the word, but still go to hell. One. Two. Uh, three sorts of ground proving bad, and only one in four good ground. Intimating, but few hearers have their hearts broken up or prepared by the convictions of the Holy Spirit to receive Christ. So not only is this a, a parable to wake people up on the possibility of counterfeit conversion, but it is also a parable that deals with the, the preparation of the soil, the breaking up of the heart to receive the gospel, which is something we have completely missed out, it seems, in our part of the century. A lot of people before did uh, what we could call pre-evangelism. They plowed the ground first. They made sure that before they pressed somebody to receive Christ, quote-unquote, that their hearts were broken and that there was a real preparatory work of the Lord to bring them under conviction and lead them, shut them up to Christ, all right? Good tillage before the seed of the word will take root and bring forth fruit to perfection, which three sorts of hearers never experience. Fifthly, it might be to discover the cause of man's damnation or their final apostasy because their hearts were never right with God. So it's a warning. And then finally, to discover uh, some men who never were sincere or upright Christians might nevertheless go very far in a profession of the gospel as is signified by the stony and thorny ground. How far you can go without becoming a real Christian. Okay? Now, let's go, and I want you to give me the characteristics of the first kind of ground. First of all, what is it called? It's called the what? The wayside ground. Now, what is the wayside? A pathway, a road, a, a place you can stomp on. All right? Uh, the main road is here. Is it a protected place? Anybody can stomp on that thing. David talked about God searching to see if there be any wicked way in him. This is open season, boy. Anybody can stomp on them. Anybody can walk there. It's, uh, the, it's the broad highway of the world. Now, what kind of ground is this? Is it... Uh, it's hard. That's not only hard. It is packed hard. 
and tell people about New Zealand where when I went to high school there was a new field there sown with grass and tennis courts were here and our you know we had a if I was in a classroom here right you, this is the way you're supposed here is the here are the, uh, the gates to the court. You're supposed to do this. There were a thousand kids in our school and about half of them played tennis and there were four tennis courts. So if you did that, you got to beat the ball against the wire for about three hours outside. Now there's a big sign here which our faculty had placed for all who could read, which was some of us in that high school. <laughs> It said, don't work on the grass. Don't step on the grass, Sam. <laughs> what we'd do is we'd have our tennis rackets ready and be looking at the time. And when the bell rang, bang, we'd... That's it. Grass is forgiving stuff. You know, it can just on once and it'll sort of... Uh, <laughs> climb up again, but... But 8,000 Adidas hit you in a week, boy, that's it. You're, you're out. You're gone. So eventually we created our own wayside ground. That's what hard ground is. Now, doesn't tell us much more about that. Benjamin Keats will give you out eight pages on what hard ground is, but we won't look at that. Uh, just want to say this. When we look at Jesus' explanation here... Uh, Let's just look at the story first. That seed falls on that hard ground. Thump, there it is. Does it go into the ground? No, why not? Somebody's been stomping on that thing. So it just lies there. Next, what happens? This is, uh, this is what we call three horror stories from the Bible. This is called the birds. <laughs> By Mark Hitchcock. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> munch munch thanks for the lunch and then it's gone <laughs> end of story isn't it Horror story from the Bible. All right, that's the parable. Now, if you're a disciple sitting there trying to look intelligent, and one of the chosen twelve out of all the rest of this multitude, and Jesus gives this story, this parable, supposed to be the heaviest one that he's ever done, and uh, you're sort of standing there, and a bunch of people sneak up afterwards and say, uh, uh, what what did that mean? I, mean? I got the story. It was great. But what? And notice it says with the twelve. The disciples were sort of also there as well. Well, we we actually know, but we'd like to listen too. Just well, did he mean? I have no idea what he's. So Jesus explains it. Isn't it nice that he explained it? Now what did he say about it? Let's write down characteristics of this ground. In verse 14, first of all, tell us what the seed is. 
the word. That's interesting. If you compare some of these other gospels, there is also another alternate uh, explanation of this parable that in many ways parallels what we're going to look at here, but it's quite different. Sometimes God sows people. He does. He scatters people. The, it's the word, but sometimes he scatters people. He scatters people into the world. So another possibility of this parable, and it's a rich, rich parable, is that what he's talking about here is his word incarnated in people, because that's the best way Christ has to witness, is to put himself inside somebody else and let his love and his light and his wisdom and his power shine through somebody. If you want somebody to know what Christ is like, the best way to do it is to meet somebody who's met him. In whom that, in, in that person, we could say, a Christian is somebody in whom Christ dwells, for whom Christ died, and through whom Christ works. So an alternate possibility is that God scatters people through an age and that these soils are different cultures or different ages into which God throws his people and that they uh, depending on how that culture has been prepared or how that age has been prepared it gives differing results okay so think of that word not just as maybe a verse but maybe a person who is living out that scripture who who is like Jesus' ambassador or representative or he incarnates his spirit again in a person's life and scatters them through the world. Okay? So, uh, is anything wrong with the seed? Nothing is said about the seed. It's the same seed, it, it seems, in each one. It just, he goes, yeah, throws it out. It doesn't pick it in. It's a funny-looking seed. Nothing wrong with the seed. Interesting how seed uh, seed is a dynamite illustration of the gospel because if it sits up on a shelf it doesn't grow. But if you put it in the ground, it takes a miracle to make it grow. See, there's a work of man and there's a work of God, and they both work together. A bag of seed up on a shelf does not grow a field of corn. But you make up your own seed, Jack, and you throw it out, and right, you can sit a long time. And you ain't going to have a field of corn. And uh, Finney actually used that as an illustration of revival. He said, you plow the field, you sow the soil, you, you sow the soil with the seed, and then God must bring the rain, and God must bring the sunshine, and God must make the thing grow. So there is a work which God requires us to do in evangelism, and a work which only he can do. He won't repent for us, he won't believe for us, he will not go out for us, He's told us to do those things. There are things that only God can do. Next, the soul we want to look at, it could be, a, you know, who knows? Could be Christ, could be evangelist, could be all kinds of things. Tell me now about the soil. We've only got a couple of minutes uh, to get this one. Now just read to me. Have you got your fingers in those other passages? All right, let's buzz over to Matthew 13. And you see anything interesting there about 
verse 18. Can you tell me the first characteristic of this kind of soil? Now here, let's put it up there. Question. These people, religious or irreligious? Have they had exposure or no exposure? They've been exposed. All of these ones, that's a common element. They've heard the word. They hear the word. I'm not talking about people who have not heard. We're talking about people who have heard. Now, just how wide that is, is anybody's guess. In Don Richardson's book, new book, Eternity in Their Hearts, he does a mind-blowing analysis of what God has said before to cultures in the past. He calls it the Melchizedek factor. And uh, you go into a... He talks about, for instance, the Nagas. You've all heard about, uh, you know, those of you who come to the last day school, in a previous last day's article from uh, Paul... Uh, what's his name? Paul uh, Kaufman. Uh, there was a report on what's going on in Nagaland, which is, was in northeast India, where over 100,000 Nagas are turning to the Lord, and it used to be the rottenest state in India, and now it's the, it's the best. And uh, they said it's, uh, revival is not a really a good word for it. Uh, revolution, a spiritual revolution would be better. People, uh, all the bars are closed down and they just, people are getting saved all over the place and there are conventions of 30,000 Nagas there and it's cut off from the Western world. Glory to God. They have no contact. Can't even get a visa to get in there and wreck it. Now how did that happen? Adoniram Judson went in there a hundred years ago, went to Burma, just about wore himself out trying to preach to Buddhists, and just all around that area there were tribes of a hundred thousand here and three hundred thousand here and that that had in their folk law all of this stuff was set up for Christianity. And uh, Judson had a couple of helpers. He was laboring, you know, batting his brains out, winning one Buddhist a year sort of thing. And uh, these other guys had in their folklore the whole structure of the gospel. Some of them, check this out. One guy, he's kind of a local village prophet. They're waiting for some guy with a white face to come to them with a book that will tell them about the true God and his son. Right? And then this local village prophet say, he gets a vision from God and he says I'm going to let this donkey go and wherever this donkey goes he'll lead you to this person so he put the donkey in the middle of the village and the donkey takes off and this guy's followers disciples of this local prophet in the village no Christianity nothing no background at all the donkey goes 400 miles I mean most donkeys would hang around for carrots and stuff this donkey goes, and the disciples follow him for 400 miles. They follow him, and there's all of these play all over the show. There's stuff like this, and there's all missionary compound. Donkey comes trotting into the missionary compound, heads straight for a well. The follow he looks down into the well. The followers all gather around the well, and out of the well, looking up, is a white face, blue eyes, a missionary who's digging that well. Right? He climbs out of the well, everybody falls on their knees and starts to worship him. <laughs> One of them out, now check this out. You're a brand new Christian, you're just out there to do a little missionary work, you're going to dig a well, you're going to win a Buddhist a year. Guy <laughs> comes up to you and he says, 
Are you, do you have the book that will tell us about God and his son? Well, yes, I just happen to have it here. And they said, come with us. This, this, our tribe has to and he's talking about 100,000, 300,000 who are waiting. See? And the guy says, I can't. I've got another thing over here to do. I'll tell you what, I'll teach you. So they go off, win most of the tribe to the Lord, and start sending missionaries out to all these other tribes. See? I don't know. So, uh, so God has had a witness through the world. We're not dealing with people that have nothing. We're dealing with people who have some religious background. Sometimes it's a key. It's a word. They, the other crazy missionaries come and go, Hey, you can eat this stuff. You looky, looky. Don't study the nasty folk religion. We'll give you a new name. <laughs> Bat their brains out. People go, oh, that's a white devil's religion and stuff like that. Building their own culture. Anyway, it's a neat book. Have a look at it. It's called Eternity in Their Hearts. Don Richardson. You hear the word. I got six, three minutes. Maybe less. All right. Hard not to get excited about this. <laughs> All right. Give me some characteristics of the second they hear anything else ah where did you get that from Matthew what Matthew 19 Matthew 13 verse 19 says when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and what he does not understand it ah He understands it not, King Jimmy said. <laughs> that tells you something. You not only have to hear, there is something to understand in the gospel. Therefore, there is content in the gospel. It's not like Schaefer says, you don't have faith in faith. It's faith in a person, see? It's not faith in faith. I'm just going to believe. I believe whatever. I believe. I believe believe. I believe belief. I'm heavy into faith. Faith in a person, not in faith. There's content in that thing. It's a base. That means some people are lost and they don't know they're lost. They feel like they are, but I did a study some years ago, well, it's about 20 years ago now, on evangelism. We've had some men of God who've really done a good job statistically. Like uh, Billy Graham, for instance, probably kept better records, statistics, and done research on the results of his crusades than probably any man in the last eight centuries in terms of statistics and follow-up. He sent people in to personally check in some crusades on every single name and address handed in. It took him a year or more to do it and to tabulate those results. And he ran into some scary things. In one crusade... Uh, it looked like over a third of all of the decision cards, the addresses were fictitious. You know, that shocks you. You get somebody just being saved, you ask him for his name and address, he gives you one that isn't there. What kind of salvation is that? You start asking questions. You start checking again. And um, a man of integrity like Billy Graham, uh, I know in like 
period of a decade changed his follow-up program about five times trying to deal with this thing and one of the things he mentioned uh, was it three years ago that if he had to start again if he was like some of uh, your age or my age if he was starting again uh, he would put more cost into presentation of the gospel emphasize more the cost so there is something to understand something to know what interested me is that I graphed these results you know when the decision cards um, you know what they call first-time inquirers and uh, backsliders you know they have different sort of categories for people you know the one that was the highest one yeah it was called assurance of salvation isn't that an interesting thing a huge percentage of people came for assurance of salvation they did not know they were saved they thought they were they, they you know the, I mean the words were there but somehow they didn't ring true with their lives and I think that's an accurate analysis of what has happened there are a lot of people who think they're Christians if you ask them they'd say yes but there's not a ringing confidence that goes the spirit answers to the blood and tells me I'm born of God Um, well, I'll give you one more minute and then we'll have to take a break because we'll run out of tape and it'll go and eat the recorder up. Um, just write this down. Uh, it is possible to present the gospel. I hate use these words because they could be misunderstood but we'll say in an illogical and we'll say unphilosophical way and by that I do not mean that you have to speak like a philosopher or you have to give this um, deep analysis of all the detail I just put, put it simply like that it is possible to preach a crazy gospel and what kind of converts will you have? Crazy converts. If you present something that does not tie in with what God has said, if you preach an imaginary gospel, you'll have to put up with an imaginary conversion. You come up with your own idea of what the gospel is and preach that, you'll come up with your own converts. Like Dale Moody ran into a guy drunk as a skunk. And he said, remember me, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your converts. Moody said, you must be, you sure aren't one of God's. <laughs> Billy Graham was talking about a guy who was flying in a plane. The guy was right ahead of him, drunk, making a lot of noise, you know, uh, attacking the stewardesses, and they're trying to calm him down. So they finally said to him excuse me sir do you know could you be a little more quiet do you know who's sitting immediately behind you and uh, he said no he said it's uh as dr billy graham evangelist said. and billy said this big face red beefy face came around the back of the chair <laughs> you really billy graham billy you know embarrassed he said well yes i am and the guy says well I want to shake your hand. You've done me a lot of good. 
When we sit on days like that, that you wish you were not an evangelist. <laughs> All right, take a break. We'll come back to this in a little while. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to study your word and we ask again for your help. Your word says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. We come asking of you to give us wisdom and direction by the Holy Spirit for Jesus' sake. Amen. Continuing the study in the second of a series on the subject of counterfeit conversion. And the Lord Jesus told us in the book of Matthew 24... Uh, what the sign of the last days would be. And before he gave all the stuff about wars and rumors of wars and uh, famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places and all of these things, the very first thing he said when the disciples said, what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world or the end of the age, Jesus said, take heed that no man what? Deceive you. So you, we could write this down. The chief sign of the last days will be religious deception. That is the major sign of the last days. It's significant also that Jesus gave a parable of the fig tree as the um, sign of his... When you see the fig tree beginning to put forth the leaves, know that summer is near. So when you see these things come to pass, know that the end is near, even at the door. So what is also interesting is that in the scriptures... The fig and the vine and the olive have symbolism to, to do uh, with Israel in three different ways. The, the uh, vine is a symbol of uh, a, a national history of a country, the uh, secular history of a nation, we could say. A vine's territorial plant, it, it grows by reaching out this way and it needs pruning, constant pruning, which is a function of government. And then the olive is a symbol of the spiritual history of a nation. But the third tree, the fig, is the religious history of a nation which often parallels the spiritual but is not the same thing. The religious history of a nation is what the secular world most notices when they study a nation's history. But the spiritual history of a nation is usually um, either not given publicity uh, or hidden. This is the real spiritual life of the country. This is the religious trappings. And it's significant that the fig, out of all of the trees that I know of, has a fruit that appears before the leaves. And God is trying to say, I think, is this. There should be character before you get your religious trappings, or I'll cut you down. And it is the fig tree that is given as the sign of Jesus' second coming. When you see religious awakening, when you see a widespread 
interest in religious things, not necessarily in spiritual things, but in religious things, know that the end is near. And we could go right through the Gospels and we could say this, that it is possible to be religious, to be deeply religious, we could say to be evangelically religious, to be charismatically religious, or Pentecostally religious, or fundamentally religious, or any other way religious you like, and still not be a Christian. Because I have ministered in all kinds of different places in these last 20 odd years of missionary evangelism, and I've seen people get saved out of all of them. I don't care what kind of religious you are. Figures all right. But it's interesting. That can be laid waste. See? This can be cut down. But the olive never does. Never in Scripture. It has branches broken off and other branches grafted in. The olive remains. All right, you olives. Olive's not a popular name except olive oil and no wonder I like Popeye. The Gospels are full of warnings about counterfeit conversion. The epistles continually exhort us in words like this to examine ourselves, to see whether you be in the faith. Uh, remember this, this uh, Timothy was told, uh, uh, study these things and preach them, and in so doing you'll both convert yourself and them that hear thee. <laughs> Strange word. Um, and Revelation warns us that the only those who overcome will inherit the promises of God. So the whole New Testament is loaded up with this thing. And now, we are studying at the moment the parable of the hard ground, and we've mentioned two things. First, that uh, this ground has heard, but there is a lack of understanding. And uh, you all remember the in the 60s, now some of you were not Christians in the 60s, some of you just got saved, sort of young punks, you only came in the last 10 years or so, you know, I was on the streets in the 1960s and this is how a lot of Christians used to witness. This is our famous fried egg on the head, Paul Little illustration. Uh, Paul Little used to use this, uh, that I, great IVF guy, and uh, guy comes up to you and he's got a fried egg on his head, see? This is how they used to witness in the 60s. And he goes, oh wow. Something really heavy happened to me. You look at him and you go, what? He says, you know, I used to be lonely and I used to use drugs and stuff. You go, mm-hmm. <laughs> Somebody told me if I put a fried egg on my head, I would have happiness, peace, joy, and love. Yeah. Really? Because I, I know you're skeptical, but you don't want to knock it until you tried it, man. Listen, I used to be an atheist myself, but what I did, so I went, I got this egg, any egg will do, there's many parts to this truth, and I took a frying pan, I put a little bit of margarine on the bottom, you can use Crisco, and I broke this egg in the pan, and, and as I put it on my head, this Lovely, warm feeling begin to... <laughs> you got an experience? That's fine. Have, is the Christ you've had an experience with the Christ of Scripture, the Christ of history, the real one? Because in the 60s, people were having experiences with Christ all over the place. 
Janicean talked about the new Christ cardiac hero. He said, uh, um, I'm, not, I'm not talking about God because some of my best friends are gods. She said, uh, it's about a new Christ cardiac hero that is the latest leader and the latest hero of the younger generation. That was in the 1960s. And we had, remember Jesus Christ Superstar? The East came in with, uh, you know, uh, Hare Krishna and Hallelujah at the same time. There was a whole bunch of new Christs that were introduced in the 1980s. So not enough for people to say they haven't had an experience with Christ. Which Christ? The real one? The Bible one? 1970s, everybody started making sure that their experience matched this. That's where all the Bible studies came. That's where all the, you know, the videotapes and the Christian books begin. All of these people with experiences got hungry for some content in those experiences. So we have, a, we have in effect, uh, a neat opportunity to correct the imbalances of the 60s only experience thing. Don't lose that, though. Don't come up with, here are 800 facts. And you go away, no, he's smart. He's not saved, but at least he knows why he isn't. <laughs> in the uh, scriptures, there is content in 2 Peter 1, 3 to 4, according as his, 2 Peter 1, 3 to 4, just scribble it down, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him. See? Through the knowledge of him. That's content that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. How do you become a partaker of the divine nature? By taking the promises of God into your own life. That's content. That's facts. Another one. 1 Timothy 2.4 who will have all men to be saved and to come, what? Into the knowledge of the truth. So God puts that fact right in there with the experience. First uh, Peter 1, 22 to 25. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. See? How do you purify yourselves? By obeying the truth through the Spirit. Spirit of God gives you the truth, God's word, you obey it. Unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with pure heart fervently. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. The grass withers, and the flower, the flower fades away, but the word of God endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. God always has to give that content in there when people get saved. And we're going to look in a second now at the difference between, uh, let's just call it a legal experience and a gospel experience. All right? We're looking at counterfeit conversion. We're looking at people who are religious without being Christian. And there are three kinds of false experiences in these three kinds of soil we've looked at. So I want to look at a little detail at the first kind, this hard ground. Uh, a couple more quick scriptures. Psalm 19.7 The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. See the two facets are true? 
The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, changing it around, altering it. Uh, Psalm 19.7, that was. John 8, 31 to 32, an often misquoted scripture. John 8, 31 to 32. Here's the way it is usually quoted. Uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That is not what it says. It says, and you shall know the truth. And the and refers to the verse before, and the verse before says, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So this... The receiving of the truth that sets you free comes from continuing in the Word of God and being indeed a disciple of Jesus. Not being anybody's disciple. Uh, and then 1 Timothy 4.16 Take heed to yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, 1 Timothy 4.16 For in doing this you shall both save yourself and them that hear thee. That is a good little verse for those who you're going to be in mission, going to be missionaries. John Wesley probably read that verse in his early days and didn't know what it meant. All right. Uh, let's just say this. What is the essence of the gospel? It is a plain message. It is a simple message. It's not complicated. It's not eight million things you have to know in order to be saved. Could you lead somebody to the Lord? He's got 30 seconds left. He really wants to be saved. God's dealing with him. Could you do it? You have to go through your 29,000 laws of how to... Well, first, God loves you, ah, and the guy's gone. See, can you lead him? Can you lead him to the Lord? It's a plain message. It's simple. Paul, uh, Paul might have said some heavy things, explaining stuff. But you don't need to know all of that. It's more important that you know when you say to somebody something what is needed than they know. Do you see what I mean? In, in order to teach a dog tricks, you have to be smarter than the dog. Right? So, you don't have to put it complicated to people. They can get the end simple product. The study and the background on it can be as sophisticated as you like because it comes from God's heart and he is pretty smart. See? But on this end, it's really simple. It asks us to do two things. Give up our selfishness and give up our stupidity. That's it. God is out to do two things. Save you from selfishness, which the Bible calls sin, and all the nine uh, and thirteen words, all the New Testament words for sin, could be reduced down to that independent heart and spirit that comes out in a self-centered life, we'll call it death style, shall we? We won't call it a lifestyle, because it's hardly a lifestyle. Stand before God, what was your lifestyle? Wasn't it the death style? God wants to save us from selfishness. He's the only one who can do that. Karl Marx came along, he said, the problem with man is that they are selfish. So what we have to do is get rid of selfishness. So... If we could only get rid of the self, that would be it. You want to bring people into a profound unity? They don't agree? Shoot them. <laughs> Boil them down, dehydrate them like Folgers coffee crystals, shake them together in a centrifuge, and you have profound unity on a molecular level. You lost the self, that's the only problem. Now, there's got to be a better way of dealing with selfishness than losing the individual. 
That's why Marxism gives meaning for society and for history, but none for the individual. And Buddha came along, and others, and said the problem with the world is selfishness. So let's get rid of the self. We'll only have ishness. <laughs> get rid of that ego, that response. See, so let's... Problem is, we respond to desire. And unfortunately, the desire to be free of desire is desire. And that really gets you after a while. I desire to be free of this. Is it? <laughs> Paul ran into that in a religious situation in Romans 7. Wretched man, you know, he said, I wouldn't have known that I was wrong except the law said to uncover it. And I covered to be spiritual. <laughs> so how do you get out of that? I want to be. <laughs> no way out of that thing, see? It's an endless cycle. Get on the wheel, boy, and never get off that thing. So, uh, he said, take, wipe that individual out. <laughs> Drop into the ocean of nothingness. <laughs> Be swallowed up in the allness. And uh, you lost the person again. That is not, not wise. So, great thinkers from the East and the West have recognized the problem. Selfishness. But you go to uh, most countries today, there are statues of Buddha. How embarrassing. Buddha would turn over in his grave if he found people making statues of him. And worshiping them. He tried to get rid of the individual. Huh? People make a statue of him with a big belly and everything. And... Poor old Marxists to put a movie out called Reds. <laughs> now, there's one person in the world that can take selfishness out of the heart of man. And he's one who is not. His name is Christ. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people, not in, but from their sins. That's what he can do. No other leader in the world can do. He can take selfishness out of a person's life. He can forgive and cleanse from sin. Second thing is he can give you wisdom. A lot of people make mistakes. They're not only bad, they do dumb things too. It's one thing to be bad, it's something else to be dumb and bad. I've met kids, junior high school kids, they're so dumb, it's hard for them to get saved. You know, they're standing, it's like they're putting a gun in their mouth going, hey, this is fun, boom, you know, and pulling, one of these has got an empty chamber, well, like that, and you're thinking, you can't do that, you'll kill yourself. Oh, it's fun, see. <laughs> I've learned something, and that is this, sometimes really smart people who have honest hearts get saved quicker because they realize the consequences of what they're doing faster. Guy comes up with a crazy philosophy, he goes crazy immediately because he's brilliant. See? He goes, hey, if I follow this through, I should be crazy. And he is. So he kills himself immediately. 
Now, others read his books and say, hey, this is really heavy. They don't understand it. So they only kill themselves 40 years later. Do you understand? The quicker you see consequences, the, either, the quicker you go to judgment or the quicker you go to, 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 to the realization you're really lost. And one of the things God does is enlighten. He brings wisdom in, in people's lives. And that's one of the reasons why we preach the gospel. Other people know they're lost. They don't know how to get saved. They don't know how lost lost is. They think you're only lost if you're crawling around vomiting with VD and you're a hooker for 40 years and you, you've run out of veins and now you're shooting in your eardrums. They don't know how lost you can be. Tell me, what kind of ground was this again? Hard ground. The hardest people in the world to win are religious people. I believe. No, thank you. Got my own religion. I don't need that. It's nice for you. Whatever turns you on. If you're into that, that's beautiful. I'm personally into bananas. <laughs> what is God out to do? He's bring holiness and happiness back into his universe. Happiness is a byproduct of holiness. Holiness comes when people become wise and good again. Use this often. Many years ago in a second university on the West Coast, I was speaking and a guy stood up. He said, why Jesus? Why not? I said, well, who else? He said, well, why not somebody else? Why should we follow Jesus? I said, who did you have in mind as an alternative? He said, well, why didn't everybody follow me, for instance, being modest and proud and humble and unassuming? Why doesn't everybody follow me? I said, that's easy. You're not smart enough and you're not good enough. Sit down. <laughs> He's the only one wise enough to run your life. He's the only one with enough power to give you genuine virtue. Now, it's simple. It's not complicated. Now, ah! 27 minutes and 50 seconds. All right. I want to now give you quickly some uh, little outline. It's very brief. And later on, we'll try and make available for you some study sheets on this so you can look in detail. Over... Um, hundred and something years ago, uh, there were, in the time of the Second Great Awakening, there were up to 10,000 people were giving their lives to the Lord a week. And they were really getting saved. I mean, they weren't just signing rolls or being bussed in, you know, because they were promised a living Bible in denim and a lollipop if they attended church that Sunday. They were really getting saved. They were... Bars were closing down with big signs on it, closed forever, hallelujah, you know, and stuff like this. So it was a wild time in those days. During that time, uh, one of my favorite guys, of course, out of all the revivalists, is the guy who's been called America's greatest revivalist, one we mentioned earlier, a religious guy of, went to church who got saved, and that was Finney. And what we've done is reprinted three of Finney's messages on counterfeit conversion. He called them true and false conversion. And uh, we'll try and get copies of all of these for you. Um, also try and get some printed up. But he listed three different kinds of counterfeit conversion. Now, I'll tell you how radical this is. I've taken this at different times and preached it. We won't do it here. I'll just outline it for you. But to take this and preach it is like throwing in 40 uh, grenades into the middle of a youth group. It has the most interesting results. <laughs> the mid-60s, when the Jesus movement was 
peaking and there was all kinds of people experiencing things. I dug out these old messages and <laughs> preached these things and I, it was the wildest deal. I had youth ministers get saved and pastors get saved and all kinds of wild things happen. Now the last time I preached this set, I was kicked out of one of the largest churches in Texas. <laughs> so here we go again. I preached a message on uh, carnal Christianity in this large church and the secretary, who was a lesbian in this church, got so mad she resigned. And that didn't make the pastor happy at all. Do you want to know why in Wesley's day they wouldn't let him preach in his father's church? You want to know why in Finney's day 500 ministers met him and said, if he comes into our city, we'll meet him at the gates of the city with cannon? <laughs> wasn't because they didn't like their suits they preached a gospel of holy living both of them did you can go back to Jonathan Edward you pick him up boy you will not see the gospel we preach today as a whole in the western world in church history it is a new gospel it's one we've put together with our own genius and that is why God will not release his power to disseminate this gospel through the world and hurt what he's doing there. We clean our act up and we get back to what they did in the scriptures and what they did in history, and we'll start seeing the same kind of results. And I promise you this. It is not that that thing has changed. My friend Tony Salerno once met a pastor, and uh, he said, I'm, Tony said, I'm going to try... I'm, I want to preach just like Jesus. And the pastor said to him, I don't want to preach like Jesus. He wasn't very successful. He only had 12 disciples and he lost one of those. Well, he was a liberal. No, he wasn't. He was an evangelical, fundamentalist pastor. That's inverted commas. No fun. Too much damn and not enough mental. Here, would you scribble these down? These are some signs of what we could call legal experience. I want to give you the first the big picture of it, all right? There are two fundamental ways of ruling people. One is legal. There's nothing wrong with it. It's quite legal. These are, we'll call these moral ways. There's another way of ruling people, that's short by physical violence. You want to make somebody do something, you just pick them up and beat them over the head. Hold his hand and make him do it. I mean, that's, we're not talking about it. We're talking about moral means. There are two methods, legal, gospel. One is the way you deal with selfish people. If people are selfish, then who is at the center of their lives? Yeah. Themselves. So what do you do? You either... Make it difficult for them to do bad things or make it pleasant for them to do nice things or the things you want them to do. Reward and punishment. Okay? So you design an environment or you give them rules that 
hopefully tie in with true rights and true wrongs. Fortunately, in our day, these methodologies are separated from the content of true right and true wrong so that now you just make things unpleasant for people if they don't do what you want them to do and what you want them to do may be arbitrary. See? Or determined by statistics. If 51% of the population vote that such and such a thing is true, it becomes true statistically. No connection to true absolutes. See that? Now watch. We could take this out and and make it into two extremes. This is called threat. You don't do it, I'll bash you so hard on the head you have to unlace your shoelaces to blow your nose. That's called threat. And bribe. Would you like a big fat duplex in heaven? <laughs> I call this Frankenstein. in Santa Claus evangelism. And this one, it helps if you're skinny, have a black suit, foot and a half long bony finger, and burning laser beam eyes. You say, so you're gonna die! I saw a movie once, advertised. Had some pretty scary movies. You know, they have Jaws, Two, Alien, some of these basically scary movies, you know, like on a scale of one to ten, Jaws is three and Alien is 14. Now they have some basic scary movies, but I don't know anyone scarier than this thing it was called The Burning Hell, was the name of this movie. And it had as advertising, see the flames, hear the shrieks. <coughs> That is called threat. Now, is there a hell? You bet your booty there is. You don't believe in one, you change your theology when you die. <laughs> and are there rewards for following Christ? Yes, there are. But that is not the gospel. That is the bare minimum morality requirements, and any old religious person can be like that. In other words, I will do what is right so I won't get punished, and I'll do what is right so I'll get some rewards. Now, we have that as the gospel today. That isn't a gospel. The gospel proposes a radically different method of change. It starts with the heart. It alters the heart. It has a man die to himself and lay down his life like a seed that falls into the ground. It says nothing in my hands I bring. Where the person gives up their life to Christ and begins, and we could put it, have to put it in this negative way, though it's not a, really a negative word. Well, unselfishness, the virtue would be another, true virtue. person gives up their life to God and God changes their life. Supernaturally, by the Spirit of God, a work is wrought to Give up their selfishness. Please turn your tape over for the remainder. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. 
Me to live is Christ and die is gain. What are these guys talking about? Giving up their self-centered lifestyle. It changed heads from headship of their own lives to Christ being their head and their boss and their Lord. A simple but a profoundly different change. And the base then is no longer this, but this. How does love come out? It comes out in a glad, happy obedience to God. Jesus said, if you love me, finish it. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll do what I say, in other words. Not, not this. Not if you want to be loved, then do this. Not that. The other one. If you love me, you'll do that. See the difference? This thing here can just simply be a religion of works. It can have no place at all. I, I know people, I think they're Christians... They're working hard so that God will bless them doing this and that. See? They're avoiding this and that. But their base is wrong. Their base is not that. Their base isn't faith and love. Their base instead is threat and bribe. And they're working their fingers to the bone and what do you get? Bony fingers. What do you think the strength of the Reformation was? That was the one great thing that guys like Martin Luther, for all of the weaknesses that early Reformation had, what is the one great thing they brought in? They came from a world that was filled with this, of indulgences and this and that, and when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from hell springs. You know, they came from that kind of world where you earn brownie points for God. And that wasn't it. It was not the gospel. So was John Wesley. Why do you think he did all that stuff? Why do you think he got up in the morning and studied all these great... Because he wanted God to work with him. Now, nothing wrong with discipline. Is there anything wrong with this? No, it's legal. Not, it's legal. It's not illegal. It's not the gospel. The gospel is like a marriage. Remember the story? It's apparently a true story of a lady. She married a pig of a man. A man who was a pig. <laughs> Beat her up and he did all of this stuff. And he was such a hard dude. He used to give her a list every morning of what he wanted and expected accomplished and completed by the time he came back that night. And if it wasn't finished, he'd beat her up again. Well, God doesn't like people like that. <laughs> Killed him. <laughs> He died. Ah! Heart attack or something. I don't know. Anyway, the lady was so hurt of marrying this guy, she just didn't want to get married again. She was so freaked out about old men in general after marrying this guy. She didn't want to marry anybody at all. She eventually met a really nice guy. He loved her and he spent a year and a half gradually winning her affection and her trust again. And finally she took the big plunge and she got married to him. And what a difference, man. I mean, he still went out to work. She did. She got into the job she had, and it was, a, it was a joy. It wasn't a drag. It was a joy. And one day, she was cleaning up, and she thought, he was real spring clean now, no little, she was getting really behind things. She stuck her vacuum cleaner down the back of the sofa and pulled out a piece of paper. And on the piece of paper was one of the old lists her husband had given her. And she read through the list and she began to weep because she was doing everything he had on the list and more. 
and she was happy. See the difference? There are hundreds of thousands of people in this nation who believe they are Christians who are not Christians at all, who are only legal, who are religious but not Christian. If you ask them, they've got the books, they've read the things, they pray, they give, they do this, that and the other thing, but it's all out of that. They don't trust God, they don't love Him. They have not that affection that longs to do. This is what you have to do. This is what you want to do. You talk about poor pastors that have to preach on giving to this legal bunch. You have to threaten them. If you don't give to missions, the communists will come and take over the nation. Oh, well, I'm going to give to missions. How many of you want blessings? Then put your money in. Oh, you won't have a blessing. <laughs> I have a friend who got one of these things that he talked about. He said, if you give God thousand dollars he will give you back ten thousand dollars see and then it said we need ten million dollars so this secular professor wrote and said then you give me one million dollars <laughs> what is the problem here is the problem that there is no hell or is the problem is that there are no blessings? No, that's not the problem. The problem is we've got religious people who are not Christian trying to access divine blessing or trying instead to threaten people. And that's not going to cut it. That's not the gospel. That's not what God wants to send through the world. There is judgment. There is a real hell. And there are real heaven. But Jesus never said, look, Anybody want to come after me? I got this dynamite chariot with prancing horses, and if you jump on with me, we're going to have a great time as we boogie on down the road. You want some signs now? Can you scribble these down? About 11 minutes and 51 seconds. Let's call this the religion of fear, or the religion of hope of fear, or legal faith, or anything you like. But the point is, Somebody who's being run like this, not like that. First, they serve God like taking medicine. Maybe you have a nasty medicine, I mean some horrible tasting stuff. And that there they, in America they kind of put it in some pink stuff so it doesn't taste as bad. In New Zealand we can't afford the pink stuff so they just give it to you straight. They say, here, eat this. <laughs> It was horrible. Why do they get it? It will do you good. Eat it. And stick it down. The counterfeit obeys God not because he loves him, but because he expects to get something good out of it for himself. The child of God, who is a real child of God, delights in doing God's will. When Christ in the gospel is love for, its, for his sake or for their own sake, there is no weariness or struggle in serving. You have to make yourself do things, you enjoy doing them. I'll just let you into secret. I like serving God. I enjoy it. People say, you have a holiday. It's like, how boring it must be doing all I'm like a little kid that's loose in a toy store. When I take my little boy to a toy store, I don't have to say, now I want you to enjoy yourself. <laughs> he goes crazy. Ah, I got a dragon. No, come away from me. <laughs> like this. 
person in the religion of fear reads the Bible and prays because he knows he should. It would not do to say you're a Christian and not do those things. They don't enjoy it. And if they do go to prayer meetings or other Christian things... Now, I'm not talking about... Some prayer meetings are boring. I don't go there because I just bore the cheese out of me. I believe... I believe in hanging around people that love God, that enjoy loving Him, that enjoy serving Him. And I don't like hanging around people that don't. Only for the purposes of seeing them saved, all right? So their chief enjoyment in the Christian life here is of anticipation. It's filled with things like, one day, one day, or never failed me yet, never failed me yet. Maybe one day he will, but the moment. Two, they do what they have to, not what they really want to. Counterfeit convert is moved by convictions, and I want to use convictions just in a good sense. I just say it's sort of the. I have to do that. Something I've got to do. Look, do you get this picture of the disciples from some of the movies you see of Jesus, right? It's Jesus and the disciples. Here's Jesus in front. Here's the disciples after him. You know, it's like, grit your teeth, man. That, I don't get that picture. They lived on the edge of death, but they were a joyful band. Little kids don't come up to people looking like this. Mothers, you know, little kids flocked around Jesus. The disciples, every now and then, got in there. Stay away, little kids. Um, Jesus said, don't, don't do that. That's like the kingdom of heaven. You want a little kid? That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. They don't... There was a playground. Go. And they're out. Three. Oh, you, can you put two, two more other words? Put purposes under this, under the has to, not want to. Put purposes and put prefers. See? Given your rathers. Purposes. He pur- I should do that. I really need to do that. should get around to doing that. This is prefers. See, you shouldn't have to tell a real Christian that he ought to do something. You just need to tell him what there is to do and how he can do it. That's why one of the first questions a real young Christian asks is, uh, what does God want me to do? Because he wants to do it. He just know, needs to know, is it God? How, how do I know what he wants me to do? Not, why should I do it? When you see people asking that kind of question, why should I do it? Then you've got a person, basically, who's a purposer, not a preferer. A counterfeit convert has a basic motivation of fear, not love. He's not only afraid of hell, but he's afraid of punishment, he's afraid of judgment, and he's afraid of disgrace in people's eyes. He still lives for himself, thinks of himself, and seeks his own happiness and safety supremely. These fears keep him outwardly moral. You see? This person might be very moral. Think of the Pharisees. How moral can you get? They grow a sprig of mint in their garden. It has ten leaves. They pull a leaf off and drop it in the collection plate. One must tithe. 
one knows. Did they pray? Yes. Wouldn't be, wouldn't, wouldn't do to be known as a Pharisee and not pray. So they went out to the markets. Oh God, I thank you. I am not as other men. <laughs> you know what Jesus said? He said, you are like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones and unclean on the inside. Now that really turns you on if you're a Pharisee. <laughs> you're supposed to be the most religious people in the whole nation and when people grabbed hold of you and said, hey, I might not make it, but perhaps you will. And then somebody comes along and tells you you're a bag of bones? Why did they stay moral? Because it was fear. See? Fear of what people would think of them if they let down. Fear. Fear of disgrace. Fear of not just judgment or punishment, but fear of letting down from their contemporaries. You take a legal person out of his legal environment and put him in an environment where nobody knows him, where nobody will report him, where nobody will do anything that will threaten that which kept him in, and he will fall apart very quickly. I see kids, they come out from their home church or whatever, you know, they got drafted, maybe in the army or something, right? And I'm flying on a plane, I see this guy, and I can tell it's his obviously it's the first time he's ever been out he's dressed up in his you know new army uniform wish I had another oh yes I do here it is he's sitting there it's his first cigarette <laughs> I get jammed in beside him and stewardess says any drinks he says what what is there he doesn't know the names yet see he's a thousand miles away from his church youth group and his mummy and daddy kissed him goodbye and now he's going up the army we know he's going to see him for four years and he's going to be a man and he's sitting there she says well we have this that and bloody Mary he takes the ugliest sounding one I said I see you going to the army he goes yeah mm. what do you do I go I'm a preacher <coughs> so the guy tried to swallow a cigarette and kick a bloody Mary under the seat at the same time and he goes oh, no, well actually I got a youth group too I go oh really <laughs> what is he doing you take him out of his environment he falls apart his Christianity is not real it's one of outward profession it's not internal as long as he's in a nice group, he'll be nice. Now, there's a specious form of that, and we'll look at that later. Uh, but anyway, do you know, this may sound radical to you, I'm going to say it anyway, I don't care, because I've been kicked out of better churches than you guys have. <laughs> do you know that a Christian would be even happy in hell if God sent him there. That might sound radical to you. Well, are you saying that Christians go to hell? No. I don't think they do. At least it doesn't seem like they do. But in the scriptures, you see, doing God's will is what makes this person happy, not the place where they are. You can shift their environments and it doesn't care. As long as they can serve God, as long as they can please him, that's it. Now let me ask you a question. First of all, how many of you deserve to go to hell? Put your hands up. Okay, do you really believe that? And if God gave you a whole life of joy with him and then said, okay, that's it. You've had a good time. Now that's it. 
Would you deserve it? Yes, you would. It's a, it's a life of grace. It's a life of mercy. He doesn't have to save you. He wants to. Isn't that neat? God isn't legal. He's a gospel God. He wants to. That's why he does it. You can't point anything, all the nice things you've done, to earn you a brownie point for heaven. Can you name me any person in the Bible that was willing to put his own life on the line and go to hell for others? Paul did. Moses did. Of course, Jesus did. It's good enough for Jesus. <laughs> both of those guys, both Paul and Moses, at times in their life, do you remember Moses? You can scribble these down. You can look them up after. There's about 150 scriptures here, and I can't give them to all because by the time we read them all out, it will be the end of the tape. But could you write this down? Exodus 32, verses 30 to 32. And you can look at Romans 9, 3. In Exodus 32, Moses stands in the gap. God is going to destroy Israel. He says, stand out of the way, Moses. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to raise you up and make of you a new nation. And, and Moses steps in the gap and he says, says a wild thing. It's the only unfinished sentence in the Old Testament. There's usually be a dash in the Bible. If you can't forgive this people, and sort of implied, if not, he says, then blot my name out of the book you have written. I'll go to hell for them. I will stand in their place. And God says his bit of words, him that has sinned against me, Moses, his name will I blot out of my book. Do you remember Paul? In that other passage I gave you, this is what he says. I would, I, if I could be accursed for my brethren's sake, the Jews. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I want, if necessary, if I could, I'd go to hell in that place. And that's, that's a true gospel experience. Here's Moses, the greatest lawgiver, understood the gospel. It's that. You want, you prefer. Now don't you dare it then. You can probably believe that all Christians go to hell. I heard him say it. <laughs> anyway. Does it mean that true Christians enjoy serving God? Of course they enjoy. If I have to tell you how fun it is serving God, then I shouldn't be talking. It really is. A, it's neat. I have to, I heard a guy say, it's so much fun serving God, I have to backslide sometimes to get to sleep. <laughs> They asked John Wesley, how is it with your soul, brother? He said, I forgot I had one. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about others. The last three, and just scribble them down really, really fast. They are more afraid of punishment than sin. They are more afraid of punishment than sin. The real the counterfeit keeps on sinning because he really doesn't hate sin. He only hates punishment. He's more of, the child of God is more afraid of sin than of punishment. Like Joseph, he'd say, how can I do this thing and sin against God? Sin is his implacable enemy. He doesn't think, if I do this, what will happen to me? But if I do this, what will happen to my relationship with God and God's relationship with me? Uh, five, they have a spirit of get instead of a spirit of give. Get instead of give. It is a characteristic of deception that it is filled with get it's covetous at its heart whether it's religious covetous or politically covetous or economically covetous or 
sexually covetous or power covetous, it's covetous. True Christians enjoy giving and helping. What does the Bible say? It is more <coughs> blessed to give than receive. We flip that and say, you want a blessing? Give. It is more blessed. Not you will be more blessed. Christians enjoy giving. They look for ways that they can help people and it's a pleasure to them. But a man who's building his own kingdom is threatened by anything that takes away from that thing. You understand? If you're saving up for $10,000 to buy a car, every cent you could scratch up to put towards that gives you pleasure, even though you haven't got the car yet, see? But if somebody comes along and asks to borrow 5000 it's going to bother you no end because that isn't your end. It's something else. Now, if we're saving up to put into Christ's kingdom, everything we can do that's an investment in that is a joy. But if we're building our own kingdom, anything that takes away from those resources is a bother. And that's why it's hard to get people to give. Paul pastors that have to preach to unconverted congregations. It's embarrassing to preach to a congregation like this. If you say give, they do. They go and sell everything and there's nothing left. You have to say, don't give today. Please don't. Just keep it. <laughs> George Vela, head of Operation Mobilization. He's a book freak like me. He loves books. You, if you say to George, that's a dynamite typewriter. Here, he says, take it. He, he, he hasn't got any, but keeps giving away all the time. I like that disc. You do here. Carry it out. You know, it's just... It's embarrassing. Last. Their prayers and cares for others are chiefly born out of fear for themselves. They will pray for others. They will even care for others. But it's basically for them, it's born out of fear for their own lives. He's afraid of hell himself. And when he becomes strongly convicted, he's afraid that others might go there too. And being afraid that they'll go there too, and his thing tied in with that, he'll threaten and scare the cheese out of them too. Now, out of these two forms of legal, this is the one that everybody recognizes as legal, right? The punishment one? Everybody recognizes that. If you see a guy, you go into the church all wearing jack boots and go, Hail! Hallelujah! Or something like this. And, <laughs> and you got to sit at you know, certain places and you're scared to breathe in case they kill you. Now, everybody goes, Hey, that's a pretty legal church. They know that, right? What we don't recognize is the Santa Claus one is legal too. And that's what the West is infected with, Santa Claus. Not Frankenstein. We've got a few Frankensteins around. We've got a lot more Santa Clauses. It is legal, 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 and it's not going to save you. It can't take you into the promised land. Anyway, time is gone. We shot down in flames. So, we will stop here and we'll pick this up uh, tomorrow. We are going to continue on a study we've been doing on what we've called the parable of the sower and the soils. And we said this parable was probably the most important parable in the synoptic gospels. Out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, more attention is given in actual space to this parable than any other parable in those three gospels. 
14 verses compared to the next highest, 9, are given to this parable. Jesus also says in the book of Mark concerning this parable, when the people ask him, what does it mean? Do you not understand this parable? How then will you know all parables? So I believe this one is a central one, a key one, uh, one that has significance, especially in our time. Now we said uh, in our last tape, uh, our last session, what is the key sign of the last days, according to Matthew 24? Deception. What kind of deception? Religious deception. We usually put that on the cults, and we blame the poor old cults. You know, people into this, and they're doing that, and thank God that we're not into that. Now, we're, the evangelical church is in great danger today because uh, if you were the devil and you wanted to fool the world, would you come wearing red PJs and uh, pitchfork and horns? Uh, if you're going to fool somebody, what do you do? You make things as much as possible like the real thing. You don't make, if you're going to make counterfeit money, you don't make a 20-foot wide triangular with purple and yellow spots on it, do you? you? You look at the real, you study the real, and you duplicate it as closely as possible, but the, the fact of the matter is it's not backed up by the government. It has no worth. It, it's like the guy that was selling vacuum cleaners, and he sold uh, 300 in one day. And the guy said, that's incredible, 300 vacuum cleaners at $250, what kind of commission? He said, 250 I sold them for $2.50. Now, point is, that factory is not going to deliver those vacuum cleaners. They're going to fire one salesman and do some apologies by letter and refunds of $2.50. And the King of Kings backs up his gospel. If we preach something that is imaginary or our own crazy humanistic methods, I am not so afraid of secular humanism. I am more afraid of evangelical humanism, one that, that uses the right language, that puts the right words. But at the heart of it, Jesus does not rule. He is, uh, somebody put it like this, most people don't mind Christ being king as long as they can be the prime minister with the real power in their own hands. And uh, the this, this same is true in our day. We don't mind the word Christ being king. It's just when he is king in reality, it's a scary thing. So this parable is given, as uh, Benjamin Keach pointed out in our, one of our last sessions, for a number of things. It's to warn us of the danger of deception. Another uh, thing is to speak about the lack of preparation the soil uh, may have had from the Holy Spirit um, before that seed is sown. A, a third one would be that many people who think they are Christians and wonder why the Christian life does not work uh, effectively for them have never really come through all the way. And that's a great danger. Today we're going to look at one that uh, possibly more than any other in the United States of America would be a major form of counterfeit conversion. We're going to study today uh, the second soil. The one we looked at in the last session was what? Wayside ground. And uh, we looked at that time at the difference between two kinds of uh, rulership on your life. It's moral. Uh, can you remember those two forms? One was legal and one was gospel. What are the characteristics of a legal rule? Selfishness is at the heart of the thing. In other words, you don't have to be a Christian to be moral. 
You can be in the moral majority and not be a Christian. You understand that? You can be a good, good person, and at least in terms of society, without being a Christian. Speak, uh, the uh, scripture says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and then refers back to God. So it's possible for, for people whose hearts are not right to do nice things, to do moral things. And uh, the characteristics of a legally controlled life, what are the two parameters that control that? Reward, Reward and punishment. Taken out to extremes, they become threat and bribe. And a life that is ruled by threat and bribe, by reward and punishment, is not a gospel life. Uh, secondly, the, the gospel itself. What uh, is the chief characteristic of a person who has become a genuine Christian? Love or unselfishness, we, we, it's a bit difficult to use a negative word like unselfishness because unselfishness looks like, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, the things you give up. And the emphasis in the Bible is not the negative, it's the positive. The, the one who finds the pearl gladly sells all that he has to buy that one pearl. The one who finds the treasure in the field doesn't moan about the boat that he had to sell to buy the field. And it's not the cost that's important in the Christian life, it's the value of what you see. Whether that field is Christ or that field is the, the, the treasure of Christ's inheritance and the saints, it doesn't matter. The point is that the value is worth the cost. And when people talk about how hard it was to be a Christian, I think one of two things. They either haven't made it yet or they do not understand the greatness and the glory of Christ himself and the kingdom to which he's called man. The cost means nothing when you see the value. Nothing at all. And... Uh, why Barry Maguire was in England years ago listening to some group singing how hard it was hard road to follow the Lord and he got so mad he got a napkin and he got one of those magic markers and he wrote it's a happy road <laughs> it really is it's not Jesus said my yoke is easy and my burden is light it is a simple but not simplistic. It is complex but not complicated. It is a kingdom that has child hearts. And Paul warned people, I warn you, lest any take you from the simplicity that is in Christ and pervert you by philosophical things that build up that have no foundational reality. Can you give me a couple of examples of legal... Uh, stress in our day that that uh, have come by uh, failure to understand it. Can you give me an example of the bribe thing or the threat thing in in, in our day? Yes. Well, when you talked about that yesterday, I thought a lot about the tracks that are so popular. They go only on the plea. You know, if you will come to Jesus, He will take you to heaven. You will get heaven and blessings. The tracks. Uh, I'll repeat this for the purpose of the video. There are tracks that that. Uh, that stress, come to Jesus, get a duplex in heaven, uh, hot and cold running water, and... Uh... Now, do you have a home in heaven? Yes, you do. Is there a real hell? Yes. yes, there is. God is angry with the wicked every day. But to hold up the threat and the bribe, which the only thing they really can do is awaken you. You come near the mountain in the old days that was lit with fire, boy, and a beast touched it, he was killed instantly. You thought, oh, baby, you know, God is very heavy duty. You don't even mess with a mountain that he's on, you know, let alone come near him. And remember Moses who spent time in the direct presence of God. When he came down, he had to wear a veil over his face. 
because the people couldn't look on his face. They were afraid of Moses. And he was only hanging around God. <laughs> so you can imagine what it would be like to run into one of those old Christians who had who'd walked out of the presence of God in days of revival. Boy, you'd be, if you held sin in your life, you'd be scared to walk down the same street. And some did. They, uh, funny things happened in those days. And now we're going to look at this second parable. We've looked basically at the legal faith. Now we want to look at the one. Can you give me uh, first, we'll look at all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 13 is the record in Matthew. Mark 4 is the record in Mark. And Luke 8 in the book of Luke. Can you tell me, first of all, what this kind of ground is called? The rocky ground, all right? Let's, uh, let's draw this this time. Now, most of you know that in uh, thunderstorms, there's a, there's a little cycle that goes on in a thunderstorm. Uh, as lightning goes through the air, it creates, it, you know, fuses uh, nitrogen and oxygen and, and uh, nitrites, and then later they're oxidized to nitrates in the soil, fertilize the topsoils of, uh, of the ground so that this top layer of soil even if it's a thin layer, is usually more fertile uh, just simply from atmospheric stuff, not any natural fer fertilization from plants or something like that, dying or animal waste or all of that. So this top layer is pretty good. But it, this particular soil we're looking at is called rocky soil. Now that doesn't mean it's soil made of rocks, it means soil that has rocks in it, okay? Or stony ground, it's called. And the difference between this soil and our previous soil is that the ground at the top is soft. It's not bad-looking soil. It has never been plowed, but it's just soft. It's not being stood on. But down here, there are rocks, deep, unbroken rocks. So the characteristics of this soil is that when the seed falls into it, something happens to it. Can you tell me from Scripture what what happens it springs up uh, one word immediately first sign then of this kind of soil is an, an extremely rapid growth like this person gets saved on the Monday and by Sunday they're teaching the adult Bible class by the following weekend they're going to make Billy Graham look like a backslider. Three weeks later, they're the world's greatest evangelist. One month later, they have dropped out of the Christian life and are gone forever. What happened? Read it and tell me what, what the scripture says. Forthwith it sprung up, and then what have we got? We got Matthew. Somebody want to read the section in Matthew? Yeah, you got it? Yes, just read that chunk out. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when the tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. Okay, that's the explanation. Go back to verse 5 and 6 and read that bit. 
first. We'll just look at the thing itself and we'll get an explanation. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. Okay, now see these words? It fell into stony places where there was not much earth, so there is some earth there, and forthwith they sprang up. Why? Because there was no deepness of earth. What does this tell you about the roots? They're shallow, shallow. They didn't go down, they went out, is what happens. Now, all gardeners know this, that when you water on a hot day, you wait until it's, you're supposed to wait till it's cool and water, and you're supposed to overwater. You don't, you don't just water a little bit. Why not? Because it only soaks in the top and evaporates. There's another reason. If it doesn't go down, then it'll only wet the top and the roots that are down will turn around and go up looking for the soil. And if they come close to the top, what's going to happen to it? They're going to be dried out and die. So you always overwater so that the, the water goes really down into the ground, which encourages the roots to go down. Now, if the reverse happens or if there are rocks down there so that the roots don't actually find it easy to get through, they will turn and go sideways and pick up all of this topsoil nutriment and that's what creates that fast growth. They become super fertilized. Their roots go this way instead of up and they all over the place they grow. like that. It is a danger sign for a plant to grow abnormally fast. It usually means that that root is not going down, it's going out. And every gardener that sees a plant springing up abnormally fast with no fertilizer or anything like that ought to think uh-oh, has this been plowed? Has it been done right? Now, uh, does Mark in add anything to this? Mark 4, some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth. Immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. Same thing, no depth, no deepness or shallowness is another word. Luke 8, some fell on a rock. Luke stresses this hard unbrokenness underneath and as soon as it was sprung up it withered away because it lacked moisture all right question why do people drop out of the Christian life fundamental question would you like to know the names of some of the famous musicians of the past who were Christians who were you know, isn't it wonderful? So-and-so became a Christian. Beep, beep, you know, and fill in the blanks. Uh, I don't know how many uh, in the last decade or 20 years that I know of that claim to be Christians and, you know, much media publicity was made of that and uh, where are they now? I'll give you a list afterwards. I was in a radio program in Southern California about... 15 years ago, a long time ago, and uh, we're talking, it was a talkback thing, and I was with a pastor, friend of mine that, that's out there, and uh, we're both being interviewed by this radio host, and it's the kind of thing where people can call in and talk, see? So, in the middle of our discussion, the Jesus movement was on at that time, the early days of the Jesus movement, and uh, we're talking about Christian life and a girl called in and this is what she said I used to be into Jesus uh, you know some months back but it just didn't work for me and I'm out of it now I just dropped right out of the whole scene that's what she said 
And uh, my pastor friend, who was all, you know, primed for, came zeroing in, and he gave her the big three. Aha, he said, you are not reading your Bible. See, that? I mean, this is food, right? If you don't eat it, you die. So that's, that's an obvious one. He shot on that. She said, oh, yes, I was. I read it every day. I studied it with friends. That was the problem. I knew what the Bible said, but it wasn't true for me. So he took the second one. You were not praying, he said. Yes, I was, she said. We prayed all together. I didn't get very many prayers answered. So there's, the other one was fellowship. You know, church fellowship. Well, you weren't in fellowship. Yes, he said, and most of my friends have dropped out too. Now, there's only one left, and I was tithing. And uh, I was sitting listening to this, and see, in the back of my mind was this thing. And I said, can I have that? <laughs> I said, honey, let me ask you a question. Did anybody ever explain to you about repentance? She said, uh, repentance. Yeah, well, I heard the word. So did anybody ever explain to you what it meant? She said, no. And I gave a little uh, amplification what we want to do now. It only took a couple of minutes. She broke down and she wept. She said, I never heard that. Nobody ever told me that. And I said, well, cheer up. You didn't leave Christianity. You never made it in the first place. <laughs> I said, isn't that wonderful? God hasn't failed you. Some preacher may have failed you by not telling you the truth. But God loves you. And, he, and she got saved over the phone. See? And then and in the front, the bank... You know, they light up... 800 people calling her. Oh, it's the same with me. You could. It was like opening a can of worms. It just... I saw a weird movie once called The Monolith Monsters. It's about a bunch of rocks that took over the world. Crazy movie. Well, these are rocks that kill. You know, that... We could call this uh, another horror story from the Bible. But, you know, I feel embarrassed sometimes when in festivals and stuff like that. Beside a guy like Nicky Cruz, you know, hey, Nicky Cruz, he was the head of this gang and he killed 50 people and, you know, beat their heads in with garbage cans and, and his mother was into witchcraft. And, you know, my mother was just an ordinary lady and I, I never had a gory testimony. I was going to write a book as a follow-up to Dave's Cross and the Switchblade called The Cross and the Butter Knife. Um, and uh, instead of 12 angels from hell, 12 angels from church, which were just ordinary kids that, <laughs> that even got saved and were able to be used. Now, I smoked once. I, I lit the filter end. I didn't know any different. I, I drank a lot of lemonade, milk, and stuff like that. And in drugs, I was a chemist, I was a research chemist, and training to be uh, a good research chemist, and it never occurred to me you could eat those things. I worked with them all that time. I took great precautions to keep them out of me, and I found out, you know, years later, people ate those things. It's astonishing. So, and you can tell by looking at me, I never would have made a good hell's angel or anything. I put a chain around my neck, I couldn't have got off my motorbike. So, I... I've always felt envious, you know, at, at people who had gory testimonies. 
could stand up there with a bolt through the head and said, this is where the 45 Magnum went through, you know. And uh, I rode with Bonnie and Clyde, and, you know, I, I was embarrassed, but I don't care anymore. You know why? Because I found out that it's a harder thing to get saved from these kind of rocks than it is to get saved from the other kind of thing. Because when you're bad and you know it, it's easier to get saved than when you're bad and you don't. See? So we're going to look now at, those, at the rest of this story and we're going to ask this question. What do those rocks mean? Obviously the rocks there are the things that, that first created the problem. All right? Now, what is it that actually kills this seed? Let's, let's put it on the board and uh, we'll see what happens. Okay? Here's the seed. It's, uh, the, the plant shoots up. <laughs> His favorite song is Showers of Blessing. <laughs> what is the characteristics of the roots? They go out and they're shallow. So here's a characteristic of a person on rocky ground. Their sustenance is always found somewhere else. It's not where they are, it's always somewhere else. There's some meeting, I've got to beat this meeting. Okay? Do you know why? Because the survival depends on the rain. They have not tapped the streams underground. Their survival depends on the rain. If there's no rain, there's no life. They're finished. Their roots do not go down, they go out. And a characteristic is the running around nest thing. These are what a pastor would call a church hopper. You know, wherever the heavy anointing is, you know, that's where we're going. Well, Pastor, sorry we won't be here because you're boring. We're going off to where the great river... See, do you see what I'm saying? They don't have roots down. They have roots out. Can somebody tell me just offhand, Psalm 1, a little bit of it? Blessed is the man who walks not in the... Counsel the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, nor stands in the way of the sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the of water. Planted by the what? Rivers of water. He brings forth fruit in his season. His leaf doth not wither. Why? Because he's not dependent on the rain. It's by a river. We're going to look at the sun. And uh, here is the star. This thing looks fine. And there's rain coming down. Glory. Rain stops as it does in Texas. And out comes the sun. It's all this ultraviolet and infrared. Top layer of mud dries up. Bikes hard. Finished. No more plant. Dead as a doornail. 
Now, I'm not sure the whole gamut of what these rocks represent, but I think we can have a guess by looking now at Jesus' explanation. Let me just ask you a question before we go there. What does the sun do to a normal, healthy plant? It helps it grow. Have you ever seen a plant that's been cut off from the sun? Where you try and grow something under a rock or under... What, what color is it? It's, it's white. It's, it's no chlorophyll. It's sickly. You can just pull the thing up. It's dead straight away. See? The sun helps normal plants grow. Now I want you to give me a list of what the sun represents. These may surprise us. Matthew 13, 20 to 21 first. I just want a list. First, uh, this is Jesus' explanation now. So in order, tell me the characteristics of the soil that did not make it. And don't forget the first one. One we've done before, but we'll do it again. He hears the word. Question, is this person religious or irreligious? Again, religious. We're not talking about the total pagan person doesn't know anything about anything. These people have heard the word. Secondly, they what? They immediately, notice the stress on this word again the Holy Spirit puts in. He said, oh boy, look at the... See? No questions, no debate, no struggles, no dying, just, oh great! Now here is a scary one. Isn't that a scary one? How many of you heard this? Would you like to receive Christ? I've heard it. You receive Christ, Jack, that's it. Here's people who received the word and didn't make it. Why? Nobody dealt with the rocks. I believe this. It's possible to receive a picture of Christ or something to have some kind of experience without those rocks being dealt with and to go on the strength of that topsoil fertilizer but when your roots don't go down into the character of God and we'll look at those rocks in a second and make some stabs at guesses at what they may be I got an idea then we have this scary thing can you add anything else to that word receives it? Hey, this is no legal thing. Don't we make a test of joy as a test of the genuine article? I mean, this guy, praise oh, glory. See, it was, oh, glory. It's 15 marks for that one. You know, he really made it. Spurgeon talked about those who were healed before they were hurt who'd been in effect sewn up before the surgery had taken place and he made a strong warning against the danger of counterfeit conversion in a message on this stony ground and he said they have strong reason to suspect whether sovereign grace has ever laid a hand on them talked about all the kinds of joy that can come with a false experience and the real test is when the sun comes out not when the rain comes down when the sun comes out is the real test can you tell me now what that sunshine rocks combination represents what's that sun represent let's write them all down persecution another one affliction 
Temptation. Temptation. Give me another one. Testing or tribulation. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce you to the things that will be of great blessing to you in your Christian life. It will help you grow if your roots are right. Persecution, affliction, temptation, and tribulation. Don't we in our 20th century take the longest route to get away from these things? We pray God will deliver us from persecution. That's nice. I mean, nobody in the right mind looks for that. Oh, God, I'm aching to be persecuted. I really want to be afflicted. And I haven't been tribulated for at least a week. I mean, we're not Christian sadists or masochists here. We're talking about is that these things come in any reality. The sun, the same sun that kills some plants, helps others go. And a lot depends on those rocks. Please turn. I ran into some heavy duty philosophical thought forms in university. And it didn't blow me away because I met Jesus Christ and I was rooted in him, not in a culture. Rooted in him. Not but what we're saying is that these things don't have to kill you. They should strengthen you. His stories, this young man went into university and there he ran into some very heavy-duty philosophical thought forms that blew him away. Mm. I ran into some heavy-duty philosophical thought forms in university and it didn't blow me away because I met Jesus Christ and I was rooted in him, not in a culture, rooted in him, not in a doctrinal thought form. I was rooted in him, not in a philosophy about him. Bring on these things, man. They will come. They'll come to the Western world. They come to third world countries. And that's where they're having a revival. They come to the communist nations where there are Christians there, and that's where revivals are happening. And we in the West have tried to avoid all of these. It's nasty things. Now, we can pray, like Jesus said, lead us not into temptation. Pray that on the day you, you know, escape this, you, it's going to be bad times. So I pray that you're not around on that time. That's fine. But if it comes, and it comes to you, what happens to your Christianity? Our whole eschatology, our thought forms about the second coming. I don't know whether Jesus is going to come before some tribulation or after. I frankly don't care. I'm ready now. As far as Chinese Christians in the early days, and some of the Russian Christians in Iron Curtain country, and some of the Latin American Christians are already going through the Great Tribulation. What scares me is that people are have an escape thought form. God will get him out of this stuff. I pray that he'll get me out and get ready in case he doesn't. How about you? Leonard Ravenhill tells a story of a Chinese pastor who escaped in that first terrible thing where over two million people were killed in the early radical days, the Red Guards and all that went through the country. His pastor got out, escaped, and he came back into his, into his pastorate after the whole thing was over and looked for his church. So 
indigenous Chinese church. He finally found a couple of his deacons working out in the field. They wouldn't talk to him. Wouldn't even talk to him. And eventually he got a guy that used to be almost a right-hand man of his, and he said, why in the world? What is wrong? And the guy said to him, you're a false prophet. What he said to him? He said, you told us that terrible persecution was coming, that this and that, but you said that Jesus would come and take us out of this. As far as we're concerned, our you know, Christianity is dead as our children are. So I just say this to you. We, we have to be rooted not in a culture, not in a thought form, not in a philosophy about God, but in Jesus himself. He's the heart. He's the rule. He's the center of that thing. Now, let's have a guess at these rocks. What do you think? Let me look at, uh, at these with you. This is what tests the plant. Do you have an idea of uh, what some of these rocks may be? Yeah, yeah, there's some form of selfishness. What does persecution affect? Physical body, all right? Now, how many of you believe that God wants us to have a healthy physical body or a healthy image in society, all right? What is that called? You're most of you Americans. Certain people are endowed by their creator <laughs> with certain uh, inalienable rights. And I believe if we look at these things, we'll find they are threats on good things. Not, not bad things, but good things. Uh, temptation is a, a test. Temptation is a suggestion to gratify a legal desire in an illegal way or amount. See? How many think that uh, sin can be fun? Put your hands up. Well, it is fun. Now, nobody would sin if it wasn't fun. You think it is. <laughs> Bible talks about the pleasures of sin are but for a season. Don't you think that means that there's got to be some fun in it? People don't go, oh, I've got to sin again today. It's all <laughs> sin easily. Like sinning, the end product of it isn't that far out. Well, it is pretty, it puts you pretty far out when you're finished, but sin does have pleasure in it. The scripture says it does. It's just the end of it. It's only for a season, it only lasts a while, and then psh, that's when you get the, the sting at the end of the thing. Tribulation, real trouble, persecution, affliction, things that are actually done to you. These are all violations of rights, of good things. So my number one suggestion, it might be uh, a hard uh, philosophy, it might be some unbroken idea or thought form, but I'm convinced that um, the major rocks in the United States and uh, North America and a great chunk of the rest of our Western world is on good things, it's on rights. So here is what the Bible does not say. I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other bad gods before me. That's the way we read it, don't we? It is not bad things, but good things that hurt the Christian church in the Western world. Bad things everybody recognizes, you know? pastor gets caught in immorality with the secretary of the 
you know, all the organists. Everybody goes, ah, gasp, and kicks them out of the church. They would do that in a rotary club or lions or something. That's just a moral thing. That's not necessarily Christian. What about good things that get in the way of God? Here is an old parable, uh, or a little statement that people have said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right? You all heard that one? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And as I mentioned, Dorothy Sayers pointed out, we think that means a good intention weakly pursued. Somebody was going to get around to getting saved, but they never did it. You know, like one day, well, like Felix, you know, I'll hear of this matter again some later time. That's what we think. But the original intent of that parable is not just that at all, that little saying. It means this, the road to hell is paved with good intentions stubbornly and obstinately pursued against that which God wants in your life. Remember we used, you ever heard it said, the good is the enemy of the best? You have no idea how profound that statement can be sometimes. A good thing, sitting in the place of God, is an idol. Now let's get practical. Let's ask some hard questions about the way we preach today, the way we minister today to people, the way we uh, go to... Um, lead people to the Lord and stuff like this. Uh, I have a little quote here. Let's see if I can find it. It's called, Let's Stop Cashing In on, a, on Converts. Suppose Saul of Tarsus had been converted in, let's say, 1982 on US-60 en route to Denver. Would his conversion experience have been allowed to develop until he became the mightiest exponent of Christian doctrine the church has ever known? Let's see. No sooner would the word of such a dramatic, newsworthy conversion have hit the wires of the press associations than staff for people, magazine, theater, and TV news cameramen, feature writers, and radio producers would have descended in Denver on do in droves. They wouldn't have traveled alone either. Alongside them, striving manfully to keep pace, would have been representatives of most evangelical radio, TV programs, gospel rallies, or youth movements of national consequence in America. When the scales fell from Brother Saul's eyes, he'd have seen his room jammed with these people. The man from Christian Star magazine, contending for an exclusive feature against the associate editor of Time, the program director of the Heavenly Light TV Hour, trying to outtalk the agent from Meet the Press, or oh, that's incredible. Ananias over in the corner, serving as Saul's agent, lining up the contracts. Before the first sunset of Saul's new life, he would have been scheduled for appearance on every Christian TV and radio network that could manage to land him. In the shortest possible time, he would have found himself booked for months or even years in advance as the headline attraction at gospel rallies all over Christendom, evangelical crusades, youth movements, even Bible conferences. See the posters. Top rabbi tells how he turned to Christ. Here, a world-famous Jew preached Jesus. Saul of Tarsus, converted Pharisee, preaching his famous sermon from Sanhedrin to the Savior. <laughs> Let our morning paper carry the story that Gloria Goldilocks, top star of singer, screen, and radio, has got religion, as they put it. Within the week, the same paper will announce her forthcoming appearance in the nationwide Pearly Gates Revival Hour, 
or have affiliation with the Atomic Age Gospel team. We're no respecter of persons either. Big league baseball players, dance band leaders, bootleggers, kingpins of crime, any of these will do just so the name is big enough to draw well and of course so the conversion seems real. Please don't misunderstand. Each time any celebrity from show business, politics or murder incorporated sincerely calls for the Lord on the Lord for salvation, we feel like out shouting the very angels. The problem is our habit of propelling these converted celebrities into the foremost ranks of evangelistic Christianity long, long before they've been shown to be spiritually qualified to be there. Why did our girl, girl Gloria get picked for that Pearly Gates Hour, that gospel team? Because they wanted a spirit-based message she was capable of bringing? Or the headline value of Glory, Gloria Goldilocks' former star? Exposition of the scriptures or exploitation of the celebrity? Now you tell me what our culture is doing to these young people that, or the young Christians that do get saved from these situations, and I'll show you why they die quickly. We do not deal with rights. We do not tell people to lay down their lives. We don't tell them to die. We tell them to consecrate. Most of you know Barry Maguire. You know his background. You know something of his, uh, we'll say, fame in his death style <laughs> in the past and uh, all the different things that he was involved in before he became a Christian. I was privileged to be in the first week that Barry ever was a Christian. A couple of young people from Agape Force in an early revival out in Reedley, California, met Barry, and one was only saved two weeks, and the other one was only 18 years old. There were two young people. They were testifying in a church, and God had been dealing with Barry up to the point of him surrendering to God. And he'd come up because an uncle of his had asked him to come up to that town told him that he'd become a Christian. Barry, at that point, had realized he was lost and he didn't know how to get saved. He'd been reading the Bible through, the New Testament. He'd got up to the Book of Romans. In the middle of a party, he realized he was living in the Book of Romans. He looked around the, the wall and all of his friends' pictures were up on the wall. There was Janis Joplin and there was Otis Redding and there was Jimi Hendrix and there was Jimmy Morrison of the Doors and they're all up there in a row around him and his picture was up there too. And he looked, Otis Redding, dead. Janis Joplin, dead. Jimmy Morrison, dead. Brian Jones of the Stone, dead. Dead, dead, dead. And there was him, next on the list. And when you're reading through the book of Romans, and it talks, you know, Romans 1, it talks about what people look like when they've abandoned God. And he's sitting there looking in the middle of that. He just freaked out. And then he got that letter from his uncle. Dear Barry, I know you're not going to understand this, but I just meant Jesus. Amen. That was it. Barry jumps and he leaves Hollywood, dumps everything, goes out to find somebody who met Jesus. Comes into a church and it was a boring service. The church was deader than some of the people he just left. But his uncle had invited him there and he came in the back and he said, oh no, this is exactly the way I thought it was. And then these two kids, just fresh out of that revival been asked to testify in the church this morning they stood up and God spoke to them and said see that guy in the back I'm dealing with him you, you gear everything to him they got up and talked Derek came up afterwards he said you really know Jesus don't you and they said yes and you need an arm too he said how do I do that they said you come tonight and we'll show you when he came that night and they were in course of conversation they said what do you do he said well I'm a musician do you know what they said what do you think they would have said oh really glory what do you play 
You know, we got a lousy band. We need good bass guitarists there. Oh, you're a singer. Praise God. What have you done? You know what they said? You're a musician. Uh huh. You ready to lay that down and never sing again? He went, What? He said, That's the only thing I can do. They said, Good. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to lay that whole thing down? He said, Oh, I don't know about that. They said, When you're ready to do that, you're ready to do anything God asks you at all. You just want Him more than anything else in the world, then He'll save you. Now, that is not putting conditions on God. That's only stating what God says. If you don't repent, if you don't turn, you're not going to live. That's not doing good things in order to be accepted by God. It is being willing to die. It's coming to the cross of Christ and letting that cross X you out. Here's what A.W. Tozer said on the cross. The cross is a radical thing. It's the most revolutionary thing to ever appear among men. The cross of Roman times knew no compromise. It never made concessions. It won all its arguments by killing its opponent and silencing him for good. It spared not Christ, but slew him, the same as the rest. He was alive when they hung him on that cross and completely dead when they took him down six hours later. That was the cross the first time it appeared in Christian history. The cross affects its ends by destroying one established pattern, the victims, and creating another pattern, its own. Thus it always has its way. It wins by defeating its opponent and opposing its will upon him. It always dominates. It never compromises, never dickers or confers, never surrenders a point for the sake of peace. It cares not for peace. It cares only to end its opposition as fast as possible. With perfect knowledge of all this, Christ said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the cross not only brings Christ's life to an end, it ends also the first life, the old life, of every one of his true followers. This and nothing less is true Christianity, though we cannot but recognize the sharp divergence of this conception from that held by the rank and file of evangelicals today. We must do something about the cross, and one of two things only we can do, flee it or die on it. And if we should be so foolhardy to flee, we shall by that act put away the faith of our forefathers and make of Christianity something other than it is. Then we shall have left only the empty language of salvation. The power will depart with our departure from the true cross. Now, isn't that what we have today? This is written over 50 years ago. Isn't that what we have today? The language without the power, the, the words without the reality? Uh, I have... Uh, strong feelings about this because remember I told you in the previous uh, session I got saved not by giving up bad things but God dealt with me on a good thing a career that I loved since I was a little kid of eight years old I wanted to be a chemist and I would have been willing to do anything God asked me to do as long as it wasn't that give up chemistry I didn't want to do three things in my life never travel never meet people and be a chemist <laughs> So I am a failure. <laughs> Can you imagine what I felt like when God, you know, if he'd said, go to Africa as a Christian chemist, I would have gone. Fine. Said, I want you to lecture in universities and throw my name in every now and then so you know that Christians can be heavy duty in science. Talk about organic radicals and, oh, incidentally, I'm saved too, just in case any of you think. 
<laughs> what did he do? He came to me and he said, you want to follow me? Mm-hmm. Then lay your life down. I want you to say goodbye to your career. Uh, let's see now. Uh, is this really God? <laughs> I just want to be ordinary Christian, not super Christian, not missionary type Christian, not evangelist pastor Christian. I just want to be ordinary Christian. This is ordinary Christian. You see that? Don't we make two kinds of Christian now? Those who just made it by giving up their bad things, and then the heavy-duty ones who, you know, sort of, well, I'm making extra sacrifices. I'm also going to give up some good things. See that? What is this? You add something to Christianity to demean the name of Christ. Christianity is Him living through us. His Lordship ruling us. Why do I feel so strongly about this? When I first became a Christian, I got saved like that, but I listen. You know, what do you do when you first get saved and you feel God's called you to minister? Well, you get ears as big as Mr. Sparks and Star Trek. You sit in the front row of everything and you write down everything anybody says, right? Hey, that's a heavy thing. Oh, boy, that's a great thing. You write it down. You have volumes of stuff, man, like this. And you digest it all, book, you know, and then you, you re-spray it. Preach some of the heaviest sermons in the world. I copied them from some of the best preachers. <laughs> but the tragedy is, if you listen carefully, you will pick up sometimes what is being said too accurately. And what I failed to notice in the first few years of my life is that what I preached was not the same as what had actually happened to me. See, nobody explained repentance to me. I got saved by God sovereignly dealing with my life and heart through my family and other things and until uh, the death of a very close friend just jarred me into a confrontation with eternity. I, uh, I had a friend and he had a motorbike, brand new motorbike. And he'd been saving up for a year and a half to get this thing. And I had a band at that time. I, I managed a rock band for three and a half years in New Zealand, which was the way I thought, you know, that's why you're lonely. You don't, you're not meeting people in the lab. You know, you're hidden in there with smelly chemicals and you need to get out on weekends and meet people and, you know, adjust more to... See, chemicals were predictable, but people were not. I knew exactly what happened when you put two things together, but when you put two people together, totally different things happen each time. I never had any problems with sexual immorality in high school because I was too embarrassed to ask any girls out. First girl I ever asked out was in primary school. She was a polio cripple. I asked if she'd come out with me. She beat me over the head with a crutch. <laughs> Put me off talking to people for about three years. So, I'm busy preaching what I'm listening to. Accept the Lord, fit him into your life, give him a 30-day trial plan. You done that? Why don't you try the Lord? Look, you got nothing to lose. There's a duplex in heaven. And if you miss, you'll be dangling by your toe upside down for 100,000 years or more. And anyway, give it a try, man. Look, what can you lose? Try him out for 30 days. If you like it, fine. If not, go do something else. I'm sure you could fit him in, couldn't you? We wouldn't put it as crassly as that, would we? We just think it. What happens is the great God is stuck into the middle of man's rulership. We've got a little space for him. See? This is for 
this is for eating, this is for sleeping, this is for my work, this is for my play. I've got about five minutes here. I can just about fit him in. It's saved between commercials. Got about 30 seconds. That's about enough. Big dynamite. Take care of that. Takes care of eternity. And some Christians have this idea too, don't they? God wants this much of your life, you see. Oh, you can't have that. It's already done. That's mine. He's already got this much Bible study a day. I had a church at least twice. And he wants another night? He wants a prayer meeting. Oh, for goodness. <laughs> money! He can't have my money! <laughs> see, that's our pizza philosophy. What slice do you want, God? You like pepperoni? I'll have the one with anchovies. God doesn't want slices. He wants you. If he doesn't get the whole pie, he hasn't got you. So problem. Problem was that here I'm standing here with my good things. Nice band. I mean, they weren't all drug addicts. They weren't all stoned out of their gourds. They were nice guys. Nice career. Nice things. Not killing people every Sunday. Nice five times a day in church on Sunday. That's as nice as you can get. And my nice friend on his nice motorbike invited me to go for a ride with him. And the last moment I said no instead of yes. And he took off to meet. He said, look, I'm just going to have to be, visit my grandparents, show them the bike, I'll be right back. Why don't you come for a ride? We talked for 30 minutes about what he was going to do with his life, what I was going to do with my life. And, and I, last minute I said no, because we still hadn't finished the practice. I said maybe later on. He took off. I went back in, it was early in the morning, finished the practice, never saw him, waited, never saw him. Late that afternoon, my father came, the newspaper office just down the road, and he pulled out this new newspaper that had just come off the press. He said, you see this? And there printed in red, last minute, stop press news, how a young man had left my hometown in Manurea, Auckland, New Zealand. He'd gone around this blind bend heading out towards his grandparents' place. He wrote in you like the back of his hand and a kid who was drunk in a stolen car came hammering into the corner at 100 mile an hour on the wrong side of the road. He got it down to about 60, but he came right around on the wrong side of the road just in time to meet a guy coming around the corner on a motorbike at 60. 120 mile an hour combined impact. Put the two ends of the bike, pasted together, flipped it in there and blew it to bits. And when I read there, saw the name of one of my closest friends. I was the last guy in the world to talk to him. And we were going to go and do these things, see? And suddenly God spoke to my heart. What is your life? It's like a mist. It's here and then it's gone. And on that day, I realized, you got a choice, boy. Eternity's opened up for you. Either follow God with your whole heart or you, you just go and leave you alone. You do your own thing. And I made a choice that day. I lost a career. I lost my best friend who was also in the band. I'm not the guy that was killed on the bike, but... The guy was a drummer in our band. After I got saved, that was it. But I'll tell you what, I don't talk about how hard it was to be a Christian. My best friend is a drummer still. He's a drunk too. He lives in New Guinea and he's just still drumming. Still got his God. Another friend of mine who was also in chemistry like me, wanted to do what he wanted to do, and he got a girl pregnant, first year in university. He had to drop out of university, lost his career. The only neat thing about it is about 15 years later, he got saved. And I saw him a 
couple of years ago when I was home. And just say, let's quit at this point. I'm going to pick up the study on rights and then shift into the next series. <coughs> Let's look at the lot again, and uh, I want to try and give you now some amplification of this parable, and then we'll look at signs of uh, this particular kind of counterfeit. Uh, Father, we bless you again for the privilege of studying your word. We ask you for additional insight now and for uh, the vision to see into what you've packed into this small and significant parable. Give us wisdom that we may walk in your ways and be people of character and people who really do love you in spirit and in truth in jesus name amen okay we are continuing on a study of the parable of the sower and the soils we have looked so far at uh, hard ground and now it's stony ground and we've been jumping up and down on these four things here, talking about how they can be things of strength in the Christian life. I want to give you first just a few scriptures for those. First on tribulation, the bottom one, sometimes uh, affliction or persecution, it's, it's called Acts 14.22, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22, Romans 5.3, Tribulation works patience. How many of you prayed for patience? Oh, God, give me patience. You know what you're praying for? <laughs> Romans 5.3. Uh, Romans 8.35. Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Obviously not. See, I'm persuaded that nothing can separate us. So this shouldn't stop us from loving God. Uh, in um, in uh, Well, let's give another one. 2 Corinthians 7.4 being exceedingly joyful in tribulation. 2 Corinthians 7.4 Revelation 7.14 That great multitude. Who are these? That when one of the people says, Who are these? They which come out of great tribulation. And then uh, let's give someone persecution. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are ye when men shall persecute you. Now that is a beatitude we do not speak much on. First, because we're not usually persecuted for righteousness' sake, but for idiotacy's sake. But there is a blessing in persecution. And that can result from what happens, you see. Uh, some horrible things have happened to young Christians. I know a young lady, her name was Judy. She used to ride with the Hells Angels in New Zealand. She also was a nurse. A number of girls in, in the Angels were nurses and that they'd steal drugs from the hospital. And when she got saved, because she was one of the chief procurers of drugs, she went back and told them, I'm finished, I'm quitting the Angels. Um, two of the girls they grabbed her and held her down and they cut her appendix out with a razor blade. Just, uh, you know, teach her a lesson. They were nurses too, but brother, that's, you know, that's called being persecuted. Matthew 5:44. What do you do? Pray for them that persecute you. Pray for them. 
Matthew 5, 44. John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they shall also persecute you. John 15, 20. Romans 12, 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless them and curse not. 2 Corinthians 4, 12. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. And a couple on temptation here. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able. Notice he doesn't say, God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted. He will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So we'll just say this. Temptation actually can stretch and increase your faith. That's why God allows it. Uh, you can be allowed. He won't tempt you but he will take off his protection to allow you to be in a situation that will demonstrate your roots. So temptation, you could say, is like this. You can say, thank you, God, for a chance to prove that I really meant it when I said I love you with all my heart. And uh, notice a way to escape, a way to escape, not a way to wrestle with it. The trouble with sin is that because it's self-centeredness, the more you wrestle with it, the bigger it grows. And then Hebrews 2.18 and uh, 4.15, just scribble those down, 2.18 and 4.15. And now let's read James 1.12. I'll just read it out and you scribble it down. James 1.12, Blessed is the man, or is the woman, that endures temptation. For when they are tried, they shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. Second Peter 2, 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. It means they're in it when he delivered them. Revelation 3.10 would be another thing. Okay, now let me give you some guidelines of uh, what this particular kind of, uh, of counterfeit conversion is like. Now what do I do with my chalk? Did I eat it? <laughs> or probably here it is <laughs> Charles Finney called this particular kind of counterfeit convert notice how these all deal with good things and uh, he called them uh, the, the religion of public opinion the religion of public opinion we could call this the social Christian not the social gospel the social the one whose Christianity is a thing of the crowd because it's a good, you know, it's a good thing to become a Christian. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, here's a verse in John 12, 43. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. For they love the praise of men, John 12, 43, more than the praise of God. And then he said, this verse describes men who refused to confess that Jesus was the Christ because he was extremely unpopular with the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders of Jerusalem. Now, when we're dealing with not bad things, but good things that have not been repented of or surrendered, uh, here is the word devotion. What was the original meaning of that word, devotion? Today we have our devotions, which means this. Don't yeah. lay me down to sleep. You know, that's our devotion. Now, what, what did devotion mean? Would he devote that sacred head 
It means to deliver to the death. That's what it meant. So your devotions are your deliver to the deathsions. What we are dealing with here then is a, a counterfeit conversion that is not based on bad things so much, but on, on good things. And in particular, we'll focus on the good opinion or the, the, the good opinion of the culture around you. In other words, as long as it will never be popular to be a Christian, but as long as it is not too unpopular and you can still uphold some kind of reputation in the middle of that, this can operate. As long as those things there don't hurt you too much, uh, you can still grow in this situation. Let me give you now some of the characteristics of it. First, uh, they do what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 10, 12, they measure themselves among themselves. Now the tragedy with this kind of shallow experience is that the comparison is not made with the scriptures or with Christ or the conviction of God. It is made instead with the rest of the Christian church. In other words, you go, well, I'm, well, I'm better off than that person or I, I don't at least do that thing. And the measure is made of yourselves. Now what if the whole culture is so down in their Christian vision so lacking a proper God-centered picture of the Christian life that everybody around you is lukewarm. Do you see that? The tragedy is you never get over that. You do, it, it's almost like a conspiracy of good things. And because the consensus is like that, you, it never changes. It stays the way it is. You don't challenge that consensus because you're comparing with everybody else. Uh, you all know the story about the frog. You take a little froggy, you throw him in a pot of boiling water, he blubbits right out of there quick because he knows that'll kill him. But you put the same frog in a pan of cold water and you gradually bring the temperature up and that frog will boil to death and he won't know the difference. And our culture's been boiled to death by compromise that has cut into the heart of the gospel. But because it's been slow, it hasn't been a radical thing. People haven't stood up and said, sell your life out. Uh, to the devil and forsake God, they just said, hey, that's all right, this is all right, this is fine. And as Bill Garfield points out, the things that one generation allows, the next enjoys. See that? When you make a compromise on one side, the next one will accept it as truth and then make further compromises. And we have unfortunately inherited in our day a good uh, 50 years of evangelical compromise and a subtle shift away from the center of Christ as the ruling center to man as the ruling center. And though the language has stayed the same, the content has shifted. The cross is no longer there. So we are celebrity centered. We are reputation centered. Next. Now, or we just, just put as a sign. They never ask, what would Jesus do? Or what does he say? They ask, what, what do others think or do? Uh, vast many people, instead of making Jesus their standard and the Bible their rule of life, obviously aim at no such thing. The great question they ask is, do I do as much in Christianity and be as good as others in the crowd of the church around me? Their aim is to keep up a respectable religious front for themselves. They do what is respectable, not primarily what is right. Secondly, they never bother to raise the standards of right around them.
The church is in the rod of parties and entertainment and this and that. They don't care. If there's no power, they don't care. They're not bothered that the general standard of piety is so low in a church that a visit from an early church Christian, an earlier church Christian visiting would have to backslide to be in fellowship. And what happens, uh, Fanny mentions this, when Jesus denounced the church leaders of his day, they said he has a demon. That's what the church leaders told. This guy's demon possessed. He's God. See? He did say that unless a man's righteousness exceeded theirs, they would not make it. That was Matthew 5.20. Can you imagine going eat at somebody's place, I mean, the guy invites you in for supper and you're sitting down and then he tells you you're a mess. I mean, that's the things Jesus did. He would, I mean, you know, write over your waffles. And uh, three, they opposed men and measures and efforts to wake the church. Well, let's say, there's opposition to revival, and I mean not just, not the revivals, revival that began Monday and ended Sunday, not, that's not what I'm talking about. They oppose a genuine work to bring the church back to holy living. As long as they are unpopular. But what if this becomes popular? What if revival becomes the end thing? What do you think that will do? And remember what the God is, it's reputation, acceptance, not being picked on by society. So if revival then becomes a popular thing, a funny thing will happen to them. They will change their messages like this. Oh, well, we always believed that. We were just trying to correct some imbalances in the... Do you see what I'm saying? When people stand up and go, this is wrong and it's got to change, they go, ah, oh, legalism or any other dozen names, Judaism, uh, you know, they put isms on the thing, throw mud at it. But what if it breaks through? What if the consensus in the country begins to shift and people won't put up with that standard anymore and they start crying out for a holy life? Then the same people say, that's what we believe too, brother. We've always believed that. We were just concerned lest there be excesses. That is a characteristic of the people pleasing. This class of persons, Finney said, stand with the crowd when it condemns a man and turn the other way when he is honored. There is only one exception. When they have become so far committed to the opposition, they cannot change without disgrace. Then they will be silent until another chance comes up for letting out the smoldering fires that burn within them. Now you cannot believe how heavy and how powerful opposition was in the old days. How many of you have heard of John Wesley? Put your hands up, all right? Most of you heard of John Wesley because I told you about him yesterday. If you hadn't, you're not listening. I want to give you, these, these are taken from a pretty rare biography, Hetty Wesley, one of John Wesley's sisters. And it's a biography on Hetty Wesley, and there's some stuff here that I've never found in any other biography on John Wesley's father, Samuel Wesley. You ever heard about Dad Wesley, Samuel Wesley? Here is... Uh, I won't read all of this because it'll take the end of the tape. But, uh, this guy, he, uh, he was with the dissenters. He'd left 
the Orthodox Church for starting with the dissenters, and then he felt convinced that there was a real problem there with independent spirits and stuff, so he went back to the ordinary church and tried to revive it from within, and that made him a really bad dude in the eyes of the dissenters. You know, like a traitor, Judas, he betrayed us, he left. So what they would do, here is John Wesley's dad. He's gone into this little parish in Hepworth. He's been given a group of people, and they all hate him. He's their pastor, and they hate him. And I mean they didn't just hate him. Here's, the, here's what happens. In 1702, they set fire to the parsonage and burnt two-thirds of it to the ground. These are his parishioners. Uh, in the winter of 1704, they destroyed a great part of his flax crop, which is the way that he paid his bills. The descendants looked on him and the worst of foes. He says, I went to Lincoln on Tuesday night in the election. Tory members lost to the uh, Whig candidates, which the descendants supported, began Wednesday the 30th. A great part of the night, our aisle people, is as parishioners, kept drumming and shouting and firing pistols and guns under the window. This is... Oh, fix this guy. Where my wife lay, who had been brought to bed not three weeks. His wife is expecting a child very shortly. I put the child... He's got another... Wesley had a lot of children. He had 19 children. And only a few of them lived. About eight of them lived, but they changed the world. I put the child... This is a, a fairly young baby. To nurse over against my own house. The noise kept the nurse waking till one or two in the morning. So these guys are firing drums and pistols and making a racket outside the house till one or two in the morning. Finally all got tired, they go home. Then they left, the nurse heavy with sleep, overlaid the child. The nurse rolls over on the baby and suffocates it. All right? She woke, found it dead, ran over with it to my house, almost out of her mind, and calling my servants, threw it into their arms. They, as wise as she, ran up with it to my wife, and before she was well awake, Here's his wife expecting in about three weeks' time, threw it into her arms, cold and dead. Can you imagine? You wake up at about 2.30, 3 in the morning, and you go, ah, I'm throwing a dead baby at you. All right? She composed herself as well as she could, and that day got it buried. A clergyman met me in the yard and told me to withdraw, for the aisle man intended me mischief. Another said he heard 20 men say if they got me in the castle yard, they would squeeze my guts out. I went by Gainsborough, and God preserved me. When they knew I was home, they sent the drum and mob with guns, etc., as usual, to compliment me till after midnight. One of them, passing by Friday evening and seeing my children in the yard, cried out, Oh, you devils, we will come and turn you all out of doors, begging shortly. God convert them and forgive them. All this, thank God, does not in the least sink my wife's spirits. For my own, I feel disturbed and disordered. Now, I want you to think of Sarah Wesley, boy, what, talk about roots. And then he was betrayed by a servant and thrown into prison for a 30-pound debt he couldn't pay because they burned his flax crop. So now he's sent to jail, his wife with all of these children, there's no, there's no money to pay anything, he's put in jail. And he says, I thank God my wife was pretty well recovered in church some days before I was taken from her and hope she'll be able to look to my family if they don't turn them out of doors as they've often threatened to do. One of my biggest concerns was my being forced to leave my poor lambs in the middle of so many wolves. But the great shepherd is able to provide for them and preserve them. My wife bears it with a courage which becomes her and which I expected from her. 
They, then when he's in prison, they stabbed his cows to dry up their milk, hoping to starve the family. They tore the latch off the door of his house in order to shoot back the lock. And the dog, he had a dog in there, made so much racket that, that they ran away. And he said, my house dog, who made huge noise within doors, was sufficiently punished for his want of politics and moderation. For the next day, his leg was almost chopped off by an unknown hand. Tis not everyone that could bear these things, but I bless God my wife is less concerned with suffering them than I am in writing. Oh, my Lord, I once more repeat it that I shall at some time have a more equal judge than any in this world. Most of my friends advise me to leave Epworth if I should ever get from hence. I confess I am not of that mind because I may yet do good here. And it is like a coward to desert my post because the enemy fire thick upon me. They have only wounded me yet and I believe can't kill me. I hope to be home by Christmas. God help my poor family. By the end of the year, and he's there in jail all year for £30 debt, $90. Uh, finally, an archbishop and some friends get enough money together to get him out. So he comes back. Uh, three more years, and people are still beating and drumming and doing all of this stuff. And then the, uh, John is born, and Patty, and Charles. And the third was expected, and shortly on the night of February the 9th, 1709, the parsonage took fire again and burnt to the ground in 15 minutes. The whole thing burned to the ground. And here is an account of how John Wesley was saved. I ran down, I mean saved from fire. I ran down and went to my children in the garden to help them over the wall. When I was without, I heard one of my poor lambs left still above stairs, about six years old, cry out dismally, help me. He's upstairs. See, I ran in again to go upstairs, but the staircase was on fire. I tried to force up through it a second time, holding my breeches over my head, but the stream of fire beat me down. I thought I had done my duty. I went out of the house to that part of my family I had saved with a killing cry of my child in my ears. I made them all kneel down, and we prayed to God to receive his soul. I tried to break down the pails and get my children over to the street, but I could not. They went under the flame and got them over the wall. And then... He meets a couple of the policemen going away from his house, not to it. And they said this, Will you never get done with your tricks? You fired your house once before. Didn't you get enough by it that you've done it again? I heard my wife was saved. I fell on Mother Earth and blessed God. I went to her. She was alive and could just speak. She thought I had perished and so did all the rest, nor any share of the children, for a quarter of an hour. By this time, all the chambers and everything were consumed to ashes, for the fire was stronger than a furnace. She told me how she escaped. When I first opened the back door, she endeavored to force through the fire at the fox door, but was struck back twice to the ground. She thought to have died there, but she prayed to Christ to help her. She found new strength, got up alone, and waded through two or three yards of fire, the flame on the ground being up to her knees. She had nothing on but her shoes and a wrapping gown and one coat on her arm. Thus she wrapped about her breast and got through safe into the yard, but not a soul yet to help her. She never looked up or spoke till I came. Only when they brought her last child to her, bade them lay it on the bed. This was the lad whom I heard cry in the house, but God saved him almost by a miracle. He was forgot by the servants in a hurry. He ran to the window towards the yard, stood on a chair and cried for help. There were a few people gathered. One of who, who loves me helped up another to the window. The child, seeing a man come to the window, was frightened and ran away to go to his mother's room. He couldn't open the door. If he had, he would have died. So he ran back again. The man was fallen down from the window, and all the bed and hangings in the room where he was were on fire. They helped up the man a second time, and poor Jackie, that was 
John Wesley's pet name Jack, leaped into his arms and was saved. I could not believe it until I'd kissed him two or three times. My wife then said to me, are your books safe? Because he had all these books, see. I told her it was not much now that she and all the rest were preserved. I hope my wife will recover and not miscarry, but God will give me my 19th child. I did not know her. Some of the children are a little burnt, but neither hurt or disfigured. The neighbors sent us clothes, for it is cold without them. And the child Kezi was born and lived, and Wesley picked up a torn leaf of his polyglot Bible, which was still left there from the fire, and it had in Latin there in effect, uh, I'm crucified with Christ. Uh, the world is crucified unto me, that whole thing. He'd come to Epworth poor. Now, 15 years later, poor served his parishioners only to have them detest him. But he stood unbeaten. As he stared out of his window, they gripped him, not for the first time, a fierce, ironical affection for the hard landscape, the fields of his striving, even the folk who had proved such good haters. With him, as with many true men, disappointed in his fate, his hopes passed from himself to fasten the more eagerly on his sons. He wanted them to be great and eminent soldiers of Christ. And he divined already that it for one above the others, this eminence was reserved for John. Now maybe you get an idea of why John Wesley had that character built into him from his dad. And can you imagine what it would be like to come back after seeing all of these awakenings in the rest of England to your father's home church where he is now buried and another guy in the church will not let you preach inside the church. Won't let you preach there. So you stand outside the church on your father's gravestone and you preach in the open air. And that was John Wesley's inheritance from his dad. And what I want to say is this. When you read these guys, and you can go back to the Puritan writers, or you can go back through the Pietists, or you can go to the Ref Reformation people, you can go to Wesley, you can go to Finney, you will see a level of consecration that we never even heard about today. You only know the results. You don't know the cost of the thing. You don't see this stuff. It's not talked about today. We don't like that. We want the blessing, but we don't want the cost of it. Let's finish uh, these signs. Uh, I've, I just called this the people pleasers. Do you, do you know what I mean? A person who's, whose Christianity is in the fitting in with others, what, not with God necessarily. They separate uh, a law of God that, that, that is publicly accepted and, and those equal statements by God that are not publicly accepted and they will enforce these ones but not the others. Do you, do you know what I mean? If society says drug addiction is bad, they will say drug addiction is bad. If society says prostitution is bad, they will say prostitution is bad. But if God says that covetousness is bad and nobody in society thinks that, then they don't preach against covetousness. They divide. The people please is very careful. Then he said to stay away, I've just paraphrased a bit, to stay away from sins forbidden by public opinion, but does other things not frowned on that are just as bad. He will never miss public worship, oh no, because he could never hold a reputation for religion if he did, but neglects other things plainly required in the word of God. And then a statement, when someone habitually disobeys any known law of God, the obedience he seems to have to other laws is not from a true love of God, but from selfishness. Simple illustration. If we had two piles of money on this, on this table here, 
One pile was just a loose pile of change. Say we took up a collection. <laughs> loose pile of change. And then a counted numbered pile, stack of bills, $4,000 or something, all the numbered counted bills there. And you came into this room and you took a single nickel off this pile, it would prove that given the right opportunity and circumstance, you'd steal that whole pile. Because you're, what's stopping you from stealing is not love for God and a hatred of sin, but a fear of being caught. You see? Nobody misses that, fine. And somebody would miss that counted pile of bills. So your love is not love for God, it's a love for public opinion. Now, how many people do you think we have in this country that are like this? A couple more. Oh, now I've got to give you one more thing. This is very key. Write this down. Whatever we supremely regard is our God. Whatever we supremely regard is our God. Whatever is number one in our lives is our God. I've used this so many times. If it is power or riches or comfort or pleasure, honor or power, that is the God of our hearts. If it is Jesus, that man is a true Christian, if it is anything else, whatever his reason, that is his true God and his religion is selfishness. So sometimes in meetings I've said this, ask God the Holy Spirit to show you what means most to you. Reject the obvious answer, well, obviously Christ. And ask yourself this question, what would I sooner die than lose? What is the thing that means more to me? The, thoughts you thought, you, the thing your thoughts turn back to and you've got nothing better to do? The thing that you like most to spend your money on? The thing you, you uh, enjoy more than anything else in the world? The thing you'd sooner die than lose? What is the thing that really means most to you? Now, whatever that is, that is the God of your heart. And it's either Christ and the kingdom or it's something else. Now, boy, if God put this test on our churches today, if he put it on our Christian organizations today, if he put it on us individually and specifically, and we rejected the obvious words and got to the heart of the thing, it would be no great surprise to us to see why God has not disseminated our gospel through the world. And we want this thing going out. Okay, next one. I gave you this one before. They're apt to sin away from home when they would not if they were with those that knew them. In other words, change of crowd, change of character. Apt to sin away from home. That was, remember the kid on the plane that was in the army? True Christian does not lead a double life. The things that make him happy in church are the same things that make him happy 400,000 miles away. Please turn your tape over for the remainder of this message. People pleasers also indulge in secret sin. Remember the, I remember Dave Wilkerson talking years ago about a pastor's daughter in a, in a home and so he had a girlfriend I was staying with her for a week and the, this, you know, this girl couldn't sleep that first, you know, you go to a strange house it's kind of hard to get to sleep sometimes and uh, right, it was about one or two in the morning and she heard a window being slid up she said, ah, there's a burglar coming so she jumped out of bed she sneaks into the room and instead of somebody climbing in it's the pastor's daughter climbing out 
this unusual way to leave the house, wouldn't you think, at two in the morning? And, and so she, she's going to say something, but she, she's going to watch, you see. So this girl drops out of the thing, she's all dressed up, and she looks out, and there in the street light out there, she sees one of the rottenest kids in school. Pulled up with a car, really quietly, just running out. So the girl jumps in this car with this girl and they drive off. And about quarter to five in the morning, the girl comes back. And this girl's still awake, you know, kind of out on the window. She slid up, and the girl's waiting for her. And she, the girl's about halfway, and she goes, I saw you! Ah! And that girl's nearly... The girl says, shh. She says, I saw you. Going out with one of the rottenest guys in school. And, and this girl says to her, you snitch on me, you're dead. Dare tell my father, see? And this uh, girl wrote to Dave Wilkerson. She said, what, what can I say? Her pastor thinks she's a wonderful, holy girl and that. And she's sleeping with this, one of those rottenest kids in the whole school. Said, shall I tell him or not? And Dave wrote back and said, you don't need to. God will expose her. The scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. And I think that's going on. You know, God is going to expose rotten lives. He's doing it right through the nation from top level down, boy. If you are messing around, God will expose you. He will do it. He will do it publicly. You don't have private repentance. God will publicly expose you. Uh, they don't like being thought fanatical. You know, they don't like that idea. What is the first principle of Scripture? The world is wrong. It means if you set your heart to follow Jesus, you set it against the world. It's as simple as that. Uh, they're intent on making friends on both sides of the line. I don't mean that in an evangelical way. They have two distinct crowds. One crowd is the Christian crowd, and one crowd is the non-Christian crowd. And the non-Christian crowd never learns that they're Christian. And the Christian crowd never learns that they've got people over here. Now, that's easy to do if you go to church in a different place than where you go to school. Like the church I went to when I wasn't saved was about 15 miles away from my school. And I knew nobody from our school would even find where our church was. It's a little street mission type thing. So I had one crowd in church five times a day. And then when I said goodbye, I wouldn't see one of those guys until the following Sunday. And then my crowd at school never found out about that. So I could ping-pong backwards and forwards. Can you imagine how embarrassing it would be if one of my crowd walked into church and saw me song leading in there? For me? Where, and sometimes that happens. You know, God arranges things like that. Bring your pastor to your school. <laughs> ah, don't, no, don't come to my school. You'll find out who I really am. I think we'd get a shock if we realized... I mean, some of you know what it's like. Remember Bill Gothard? He talked about this, how he had a youth group, you know, and he had a great, successful youth group, and, and one day he drove over the other side of town to deliver some stuff, and when he got there, uh, he was in a drive-in, he stopped in to get some stuff, and he saw a bunch of really rotten kids in there swearing and cutting up and stuff, and he thought, I wish that our young people could go and minister to these young people. And then he looked closer and he realized it was his young people. <laughs> and suddenly he realized all this great youth group that he had. Now, I'll tell you this from an evangelist point of view. Some of the rottenest kids I have ever worked with in my life are church kids. They really are rotten. Their parents, their parents, their parents might be dynamite. You know, they're really into the Lord and stuff. And the kids have got all the words but no reality. 
I was in a place once, one of the largest churches in California, I couldn't believe it. The guy called me out, the pastor said, Brother Patton, will you come over and share a little with our young people? Uh, we're just going to have a mellow, laid-back time, and why don't you come over and uh, kick off your shoes, we'll have a little meal, and share a little bit. And I said, you haven't heard me preach, have you? He said, no, but you know. I said, well, I'll come over, Pastor, but I don't think we'll have a mellow, laid-back time, you know. We got there. You know, I walked into this room. I've been praying, asking God to give me something. I walked in this room, and there's a girl under a blanket having some games first, right? And it's this game, you're in the desert, take off anything you don't need. You know that game? So all of this stuff has come out from under this blanket. No, take, there's more. Take a, the point, you know, the, the trick of the thing is supposed to take the blanket off. You don't need that. But this girl's getting undressed under this blanket. This is a church youth group, right? And I'm standing there. I'm getting madder and madder. I didn't think that of me. I mean, I nearly mouth. I am standing there. I'm getting so mad. And I said to the part, he's, he's, hey, this is funny old. I said, listen, you don't stop this right now. I am not going to speak here. I'm, goodbye. Oh, brother, don't be offended. We're just having a little... So they stopped it. The girl came out before she lost everything. Thank God. And uh, Shall we have a meal now? I said, no, I don't think so. I don't want to talk to these kids. So they're sitting there, you know. Forty gum chewing. <laughs> you know this? Give me a good old hell's angel, boy. Any day than this. Religious clutching their Bibles. And, and I'm talking. I might as well have been talking to a wall. Now, hello, wall. I like the hill. You know, the last guy coming in a flying saucer, what are you going to do? And right in the front, has this guy, and he's rubbing his leg up and down on this girl's leg. I am so mad. You know, I'm, and I sit him. It's called getting attention. What do you think you're doing? <laughs> Who do you think I'm talking to this wall? I said, I got so mad I drew a line. Drew a line on the board. I put all the signs of non-Christians on one side, signs of Christians on the other. And I said, how many, I, these are you know, people who love God and hot for God and those who hated God. And I said, how many of you think you're here? A couple of the hard dudes in the back here. I'm, I hate God, you know. Then. Well, how many of you think you're here? You really on fire for God. Mm. But one person sort of puts his hand up like this. <laughs> I said, where do you rest do you think you are? You're not hot, you're not cold. I'll tell you what you are. You're vomit, that's what you are. God is going to spew you out of you. I get to man. Anyway, that doesn't make you popular. But I'll tell you what. If we don't get the junk cleaned up in our churches, we're not going to have leadership for any revival on the streets. And it's got to come. It's got to come through the preaching of a God-centered gospel and not a man-centered thing that fits God into a slot in your time zone. No, okay. I get... <laughs> and now, we'll go on with the milder things. They do more to gain the applause of man than the applause of heaven. There's some horrible things we do in churches today. We really do some horrible things. Yeah, yeah. I'm all for developing Christian talent and stuff, but it's an ugly thing to see people competing for applause. 
you know, this kind of thing. Um, I remember one time I was with Keith and we went to a meeting and uh, everybody was asked to give a clap for the Lord and they all did. And then straight after that, Keith was about to go on and he said, you, he said, uh, do you hear that? That was a clap for the Lord. And then he said, well, now they're going to introduce me. And he said, I bet you they clap me more than they just clap Jesus. And sure enough, Keith Green cheer for 20 minutes, you know. That, you imagine what God thinks of that exalting man and putting man in the center of things? I mean, I, I believe in giving honor where honor is due, but let's do it properly. Let's give honor where honor is due. Let's, let's do it right. Let's honor him first. In revivals, boy, nobody cares who's there. You don't care if people are there. You don't care if there's a special preacher there or music there or anything is there. And in, in a real, genuine spiritual awakening, it goes right out of the hands of man sometimes. Anybody can say anything and people get saved. People don't even have to say things and people get saved. God loves doing that stuff. But our man-centered gospel, boy, we love exalting people and holding them up. Uh, Finney said they're more anxious to know what men think about them than about what God thinks. If such a one is a minister preaching a sermon or a singer giving a song, they fish for compliments. They're more interested to know what men thought of it than what God thought of it. If an elder or church member prays or speaks in a meeting, he is thinking, if he's a people pleaser, how he sounds to those who listen. If he makes anything like a failure, the disgrace of man cuts him down ten times more than the thought he has let God down or hindered others. Females of this kind are vastly more concerned in church how they look in the eyes of men than how they look in God's eyes. You can see at a glance what this religion is the moment it is held up to view. And uh, that explains one time a, a, a woman was dressed up, it was Easter, so she had this really beautiful new dress and she waited until the, everybody was in church before she came, she came in late, see? And then she, uh, she Finney was preaching. Can you imagine? <laughs> And uh, seats in the front. She came down the front, you know, just <laughs> looking pious, you know, holding a Bible. And, and then he saw her, and he stopped. And he waited. It was awful silence, see. And then she, she just thought, you know, he would go on, and she would sit down and be like, oh, what's lovely, you know, and stuff like that. And he stopped. And then he pointed to her. And he said, in effect, what do you think you're doing? come into the house of God to do this and brother and then you think well how could he say something like that because he was telling the truth we need to say that more often and we talk generally you know many people in the world are awful right right you know nobody's there what do you think well many people in the world nobody here of course just many people other people in horrible churches not like you lovely people what Finney would do, he prayed for by name. Father, deal with Don Jones there, who is still fighting you today, this morning. And you, Don Jones, sitting there going, oh, oh baby. You know, my friend Tony Salona, when he was first a youth pastor in the church, and God began to deal with him about really honoring God, he had kids in his church. And you know what it's like? Dawn was telling me in high school, there's always... You know, there's some leader there, and they control the, the level. And a church is that, too, often. There's a level of 
ungodliness, and it's controlled by one or two key people, the in crowd. You know what I mean? They're there, and they just sort of, hey, this is it, it doesn't go any higher than this, and if you are, you're a jerk. Now that crowd, if that's broken, if that leadership's broken, and that in crowd becomes an up crowd, up in the morning to see God, then it, it cuts the back of rebellion in the church. So what happened, Tony went to, first he preached the, the youth group as he had about 40 kids in his church. He preached the youth group, uh, loved them, you know, laid out a, a commitment message to them, giving everything they had to the Lord, all right? After a couple of weeks of that, the ones that had not changed, he went down to, around to see personally. He went to talk to individuals. Some of them got squared away with God. And then the hardest ones, a couple of guys in the back that were eldest sons, that were some of the chief pushers in town. Their fathers were elders in the church. They're right there. And the kids knew, you know. So he went around to see them. He said, you, you're, a, you're an eldest son, you're a leader in this thing, but you're not really serving God. How are you going to get right with God? And the guy said, oh, nothing. So then he went and got one of his friends, one of those boys' friends, who got right with God and came back and saw him again. Saw him first on his own, got somebody else, came back and talked to him again. The guy said, the door is in the same place. Then the next Sunday you do this. There are some of you who are still not giving your life to God. We've got Jack here who's pushing drugs. We've got John here who's... Can you imagine what they do in the church? I mean, it was total shock because kids think, hey, he, he can't be talking about He must be talking about something else. He can't be me he's talking about. And when he did that, boy, it broke the back of rebellion in that church. Just snapped it. You can imagine what the elders thought about that. But he told them, warned them, he said, your son's on drugs? The guy said, ah, oh, my son can't be on drugs. He's a good Christian boy, you know, this stuff. And when that happened, a snap took place, and that church jumped in a year from 40 to 400. And it was the kids that did it. Because then the consensus was broken, see? You're a junior high school kid, what do you go for? The crowd is very important to you, do you see that? So what happens when the consensus is wrong? There's tremendous pressure on a, on a kid who, who wants to be part of something that's going, see? You break that religious consensus and you shift it to a genuine awakening and it just, it becomes like a tornado and it sucks in. Kids from all over the place are getting saved. They started prayer meetings every morning. Um, at six in the morning before school started, there were 30, 40, 50 kids at each day of the week praying from different high schools. And a real little awakening went out into that area. We've got to bust this people pleasers thing. It's got to be done. All right? Time is getting on. Got to give you one more thing. Uh, no, I won't give you any more. That'll do. I'll give you these sheets out later. I'll just say this. How would you... Uh, we're looking at rocks now, aren't we? How can we... How can you... In an ordinary... Uh, harvesting situation or gardening situation... How do you deal with rocky ground? You put a plow down and you dig it up, all right? That means it's got to go in deep, to, deep enough to get those rocks that otherwise wouldn't be seen. And uh, when the ground is plowed up, the big rocks come and you can take them out. So just say this, when you counsel people, when you are leading them to the Lord, you better make sure that you stress rights as well as wrongs. That's a very simple thing. When you're talking about repentance, 
you can include in that the yielding of rights. Now, our tragedy is we don't put this in into the early Christian experience. So what happens is there's all of these people who've made a profession of faith in the Lord who still have unyielded rights. So then, you know, Bill Gothard comes along, does a seminar on yielding rights, and great, a lot of people get free of anger and uh, worry and fear and all these other things that connect up with rights. What we could do is do it right at the start. Wouldn't that be easier than going messing around for years on being worried and angry and greedy and self-centered and all that stuff? Deal it right at the start. Assemble, if a kid comes up, uh, you just say to him, are you ready to give up anything at all that God asks you? Even the best, neatest things you're going to do now. Because the cross has got to finish off that one pattern. And I mentioned Barry right at the start of this thing for a reason. When those kids led him to the Lord, they said, are you ready to die? Lay his music down. That shocked him. But later that night he said, yes, I'll do anything to get saved. He gave his music up. He didn't, nobody said to him, come and be a Christian musician. And I know that because that first week I saw him sit in the back he wept every session, just wept, 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 wept. And about a month and a half later, he uh, came to Tony and I were talking. He said, I'm not quite sure what I should be doing now. He said, I used to be doing, I used to do a bit of plumbing once. And he said, maybe I could go back and be a plumber. We said, hey, whatever God tells you to do is fine. See? And then God gave him his music back, which is great. He started with a mouth organ and then he picked up his guitar again. And Barry told me a year and a half ago, if I had not died to my music, I would not be in the Christian church today. Because the pressures that are put on by our rotten culture on the Christian celebrity kills you. And that is a damaging, damaging thing. I don't know how many... Uh, again, I have a personal stake in this. When I first became a Christian, remember I said I copied all the best sermons and preached them? Nobody talked about that in that thing. So I just said, hey, accept the Lord, put him in and all this. A young man um, in New Zealand, he's blind. He's like uh, Jose Feliciano. Excellent guitarist, beautiful voice, blind. And in those days, he was just starting to go blind. He could see very dimly. And he, uh, God dealt with him in a street meeting. We have a street meeting. He came up and he said, you know, I, I really, I'd really like to become a Christian. So me and my great, brilliant wisdom said to him, you, what do you do? A musician, praise God. We don't have very many singers out here, right? So I suggested to him that he get saved and dedicate his talents to the Lord. So for about six months, he was in the ministry I was working with, and he'd sing. Very good musician, singer. His eyes kept getting worse. And uh, one day he came to me, and he said this. You know, I've had a tremendous opportunity given to me. I had such spiritual language around it. Even then, I felt a check in it. A band, a quite well-known band in town, has asked me if I could uh, front for them, do some singing and stuff. And he said, I'm, I'll just sing a few songs and stuff at the end. And he said, at the last song, I can sing anything I want to. So it'd be a great opportunity for me to witness. I, I'll just be able to, you know, sing a Christian song to all the mob that are there. So this tremendous opportunity for me to witness. And I felt a little check in my heart. See, see the crummy theology, boy, that said, well, you, you rationalize. He's reaching unsaved people that would never get to reach. There's all those dance band crowd that wouldn't listen to me. So he went. That was the last time I ever saw him in the Christian church. I know him now. 
He's one of the number one vocalists in New Zealand that has absolutely no Christian thing at all. Finish. Gone. You talk about it. Just mention it. One day I'm going to see him. I'm going to talk to him. His name is Eddie. He's a, a country western singer now, but a credible musician and vocalist. Would you like to know how many people were counseled like this in our culture? And how many more are we going to go and do in that same garbage unless God gives us some wisdom? Okay, uh, time is about finished on us. I want to read you just a poem that Jim Elliot quoted. He was that guy that laid his life down for the orcas. Have you no scar, no hidden scar on foot? or side or hand. I hear these sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hailed by bright ascendant star. Have you no scar? No wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. Yet thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? From subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings. Not thus are spirits fortified. Not this way went the crucified. From all that dims thy Calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. You know who wrote that? His name is Jim Elliot. He's a missionary to the Orca Indians. And he and four others went out one day after airdropping gifts to these Orcas that had never had contact with any other civilization before. And... Uh, they used to come around to the plane and they'd all laugh and they'd throw them down gifts and stuff. So on one particular day, these five men went out to make first personal contact with the Orca Indians. They sang a song, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender, and they left their wives and their children in the mission station, the guy in with the radio, and they walked into the jungles to meet him. And hours later, they had not radioed back in. And the whole day went past and finally they sent out a plane to a terrible scene. There was uh, all of the stuff they'd bought, it all scattered around the clearing, and there were bodies all around the clearing. They'd, they'd uh, killed every single one of them. And uh, they finally brought the bodies back. And the wives are incredible. Betty Elliott is still alive. She's uh, um, a woman with tremendous uh, depth in her spirit. And a neat thing happened. Some just tell you the good part first. They went, the wives went back in and also ministered to these orcas. Loved them, even though they'd killed their husbands. And the same two that killed Betty Elliot's husband became the leaders of the church in the orcas. The orcas could not understand, they didn't have the word love in their language, but they could understand people who had guns that could have shot them, that never fired a shot. They laid their guns down and took the spears and died to get a message through that was more important in their lives. But shortly after Jim died, back in the United States, when Betty was brought back for, for a short time, she was at a friend's place. And they just heard over the radio the tragedy of the great loss, and people were talking about how dangerous it was to send missionaries out, just like El Salvador and places like that today, and how there should be a government ban on allowing Americans to go into that area because it's too dangerous. And, uh, and this person who was a friend of Betty's turned to Betty and said, uh, how did you handle it, Betty, when you first heard that Jim had died there in the jungle? And she said to him, 
Jim did not die in the jungle. And the guy said, he thought, hey, he's turned her head, you know. And he said, hey, you're going to have to face it, Betty. He really died. And she said, yes. They found him with a spear and his back floating down the river. But Jim, my husband, did not die in the jungle. He died in high school. He died beside his bed when he knelt and he said, oh, God, spend me. Blood is of no value unless it flows before the altar. Gold is of no value unless it's spent. Am I ignitable? And he said, I lay my life down. You take my life and spend it any way you want to. That is where my husband died. Let's close. Our Father, we live in a world filled with Christian covetousness and Christian greed and Christian materialism and Christian immorality and all of these things that make you sick. We ask in Jesus' name that you give us a a gospel to preach that is pure, that exalts you, that puts you in the center of all things, that calls a man not only to die to bad things, things that do he doesn't even like, but the things that he's exalted in your place. Give us a gospel with teeth in it, with guts in it, we pray. Something that will uh, genuinely touch the heart of a man who knows the difference between religious shallowness and genuine reality. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Six different messages on counterfeit conversion or a study really of conversion and we have looked so far at what kind of ground first kind of ground we looked at wayside ground and we said that uh, represented what kind of faith a legal faith as opposed to gospel faith characteristics of legal selfishness and its parameters Reward and punishment or threat and bribe. In contrast to that, gospel faith, love and trust. And it requires a giving up of our self-centeredness. And uh, we are, if we are being morally ruled at all, we are in one of those two kingdoms. A kingdom of legal obedience, which says a bare minimum of morality, but is not the gospel. Or a true gospel submission. We can consider two sons, identical twins in the same family. One... Uh, you'll see in your, that little uh, study sheet I gave you, one who loves his dad and trusts him and does what his dad asks him to do simply on that basis. The other son who uh, fears that he might be cut out of the dad's inheritance if he doesn't do what he says and uh, tries to uh, butter up his dad so he makes sure he'll stay in his good books. Now, both of them may do identical things. They may live in the same house. They may carry out identical work programs or all this different thing, but there is a total difference in their attitudes and God does not want the forced obedience of mere slaves. He wants the love and the trust of sons and daughters. And that is the gospel. Second uh, kind of uh, soil we looked at. The rocky soil. And uh, remember what happened with this? It sprung up and then the sun came out and withered away the plant. We looked briefly at what the sun represented. Could you 
tell us biblically what those uh, three or four things were. Yes. Temptation was one. Tribulation another. Affliction or persecution. Sometimes those words are used interchangeably in the New Testament, but that gives you the broad spectrum of the things. What does the sun do to a normal healthy plant whose roots go down? Helps it grow. We then made a stab at guessing what these hard rocks may represent parabolically. Did, uh, what did we come up with? Uh, they're unyielded things. Something down there that will not yield. Ground is yielding, but rock is not. And uh, one of the major things, at least in this culture, is uh, not bad things. Not deep down hidden bad things, but deep down hidden good things. The hardest kind of things to break are good things. It is much easier, for instance, to resist the temptation of an enemy. If uh, you're called a mission field, for instance, and God uh, gives you this call and an enemy comes up and says, you go to the mission field, boy, and you watch out, you know, I've just a real threat on your life, you go. But what if a friend comes, somebody dear and close, and says, if you go to the mission field, you break my heart? That's a different story, a much more difficult thing to handle. And uh, there are many young people who would have obeyed God's call, but a good thing got in the way, a good career, a good relationship, a nice thing, a, a right, not a wrong, that got in the way of God. Now, today we look at uh, probably the hairiest one of all of these things, and this is the third kind of soil. This, we've already looked at, uh, at the, the, uh, the birds and... Uh, the monolith monsters, <laughs> or the day the earth caught fire, I suppose we could call the other one too. Um, we want to look at the third one now, and we'll call this the day of the Triffids. Uh, Triffids were a creation of John Wyndham, some plants that uh, landed on earth from Mars or something. It's always coming from outer space. They never come from inner space, but... Here is the story. Uh, can somebody read out that uh, particular passage for us? Just in uh, Mark will do. Okay, it's a very simple statement. Some fell among thorns. So here's the seed. Is this ground capable of supporting healthy plant life? Yes, it is. I mean, you know, there's a lot of healthy plants there, but unfortunately some are not nice. So this plant goes in its roots, instead of going outward, go down. That's a good sign. It doesn't shoot up as fast as the other one. The seed uh, is buried under there and it's growing. There doesn't seem to be a lot of rocks down there. The plant goes up just like the previous one. It looks like it's going to be a good deal. Unfortunately, Triffids. These triffids, of course, in Wyndham's thing were, were plants that killed you. You know, they walk around brrr, click, 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 and making funny noises. Well, 
Here we have sort of the divine equivalent of that. Uh, a plant that starts off well but is choked out or killed by other plants that are planted right beside it. So here we have a garden that is uh, the soil in which it's, it's healthy, but there's been no uh, care, there's been no weeding in this thing, and those weeds choke out what otherwise would be a, a great life, a great witness, a great ministry, or something, a great Christianity. Now, we're going to look uh, briefly at what the scripture speaks about these things and weeds, but can we take it uh, a block at a time? Um, I want to give you the problem first. We are basically looking at those five different things Benjamin Keach talked about, one of them being perhaps the failure to properly prepare the soil, uh, or an analysis of the kind of reasons why some people don't make it. But I've never forgotten this. In New Zealand, uh, in a church, uh, Orthodox, fundamental evangelical church, a young lady came up to a deacon in the church who had just become a Christian. She'd been saved about two weeks. And the deacon said to her, how is it with your soul? Or words to that effect. That's even how he talked. How is it with your soul? She said, oh, it's so exciting. She said, I'm so happy I can hardly sleep. And he said, don't worry, you'll soon get over it. Now that has to be a double tragedy. Number one, that a man who's supposed to be a deacon or an elder in a church should say a thing to a precious young child of God like that and damp. You know, it, if you had a choice between damping two, two enthusiastic people and trying to stir up two dead people, which one would you pick? It's easier to cool down a fanatic than revive a corpse, isn't it? And uh, I don't think our real problem today is cooling down fanaticism. That's, Tozer talked about, that's like sort of trying to keep the inhabitants of a graveyard from uh, making merry. You know, they, <laughs> that just doesn't happen in a huge chunk of time. Our problem is to get dead people to live, which is a much more difficult problem than cooling down somebody who should be a little quieter. But the second part of this tragedy is that all too often it should be true that you get over it, that in the words of scripture, you lose your first love, that something happens to you and uh, you get choked out somewhere along the way. Now, it is no secret, uh, one man wrote that, uh, that many Christians are about as effective for God as the Navy was for the United States 15 minutes after Pearl Harbor. And uh, we're going to look just briefly at this first thing, at the signs, biblical signs, of uh, what these weeds may be. Can you give me in order first, in Jesus' explanation, Matthew 13, 22, Mark 4, 18, and Luke 8, 14, what he amplifies as the, the uh, substance of this parable. Can you give me, first of all, the first characteristic of this soil. They hear the word. And for a third time, we're not dealing with irreligious people. Next. Now, can you look at Luke 8, 14? There is an 
Interesting little addition. That's one of the scariest little additions I... Additions, not editions. Additions. Amplifications. The, the way to really, I think, to get the full meat of anything that Jesus says in these parables is to do what like, we call it interweave analysis. It's uh, you take the synoptic gospels and you you can instead of just putting them in parallel columns, you actually weave. It's better to do it in Greek, but English is fine too. You take the different phrases and where there's a duplication of the phrase, like when the word "and" appears three times, you just drop one of them and or drop two of them and keep the other "and." And you just keep them in chronological order, and then you get a full detailed uh, statement, which I think represents the whole thing of what Jesus said, in which each gospel picks up from their own perspective and gives you most of it or sections of it. And uh, to read the whole thing gives you sometimes additional insight. Now, Luke, uh, who is, shows us Christ as the man, and with all his humanity and, and shows us him also as uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the frailties of Christ, you see, the times he had to pray and, uh, when he's thirsty. And Luke's a teacher's gospel, too, and it uh, amplifies a great deal of the inner life of Christ. Now, he puts in one little two-word phrase, can you find that phrase? Just before the rest of it. He goes forth. Now that is a very scary phrase. You know why it's a scary phrase? Because it's the same kind of phrase that's used for missions. Go out, go forth, go into... It's a sending phrase. I send you forth as lambs among wolves. It's a, it's a ministry type of phrase. It's not one of just being there and stuff like that. It, it almost implies like this person is actually involved in some kind of work of ministry when this thing happens. And so I introduce you in this session to the third and, and maybe the scariest of all of these things. And that is the person who not only starts and appears to grow well, but actually begins to duplicate or replicate or in some way have some kind of public ministry and then falls apart and then gets choked out, and then gets destroyed. So let's list now what the scripture represents these weeds as being. Can you give me a list of these things now? First, the worries or the cares of what? Of this world. Implying there's another one. <coughs> you ought to care about. <laughs> um, second, yeah, now Matthew puts in, and Mark puts in, the what? The deceitfulness of riches. So something that riches can do. What did we say uh, was the chief sign of the last day? Deception, deception religious deception. So here is Here's that word appearing again in context with economics. Now, does being poor make you godly? No, it does not. It's an old song. I dreamt of the great judgment morning, and it says the poor man was there, the rich man was there, uh, but his riches had melted and vanished away. The poor man was there with his burdens. His debts were too heavy to pay. So it's not 
We're not Marxists. It's not your economics that determine your future. But it is tr there's, there's a difference, apparently, between riches and wealth. The Bible says if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. And it's the, uh, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. I'm going to give you some very tragic, practical examples. I won't mention any names of people, but I think you could pretty much fill in the blanks for yourself in many, many circumstances of what happens in the Western world uh, in this situation. And a third one. Yeah, the desires. King James had a good old strong word, the lusts of other things. That strong desire, that epithemia, the the word epithemia, the strong desire, is not a bad word in itself. Some people think, you know, that it's the strength of a feeling that makes something right or wrong, but it isn't. If you had a strong desire for money, does that mean you're wrong? Not necessarily. What say, you know, there were 100,000 people starving to death and you needed a million dollars to feed them and to take care of them straight away? You could have an intense desire for money and I'd be wrong. Not the intensity of desire. If you hadn't eaten for 48 days, you had an intense desire for food. That's different from gluttony. Okay? So, it, George MacDonald said a neat thing about things, and you might like to write this down because it's the simplest, most profound thing I've ever heard on our relationship to the material world. He said, if it be things that slay you, if it be things that slay you, that kill you, that put you to death, if it be things that slay you, what matter things you have, what matter things you have or things you have not? In other words, you can be poor, you can be rich and still be slain by things. Be poor and wanting things, be rich and having things, and things are your problem. The love of things, the desire for things, the, the rulership of things. And there is a, an end to this. One says it chokes the word and he becomes unfruitful. Another one says it chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the last one, Luke again adds an extra little thing. Brings forth no fruit to maturity or to perfection. So there's no, no fruit... Nipped in the bud is what we would say colloquially. Now, I want to read to you now some more clips. Some of you have uh, read this book. If not, it's well worth reading. Um, you don't have to read the last chapter if, if you like. I don't read it very often. But the, uh, the analysis is great. I don't know whether the solution is as profound as it could be. But the analysis is accurate. This is Walter Chantry's little book, Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic. And here's a pastor with his heart in the right place who is concerned about what is happening in uh, evangelical Christianity today. And what interests me is this. That this call for cleaning up the Christian church is coming from all sides of the Christian church. It's coming from the Calvinist side, it's coming from the Armenians, it's coming from the mystics, it's coming from the reformers. It's coming from every side of the Christian church. 
And it's saying we have departed from the content of the gospel. We are not preaching what we should be preaching. And what's interesting, though the answers are different, you know, reformers go, we need to return to the days of Calvin and Luther, you know, and they go, yay, and all the Armenians go, what about John Wesley and those guys, you know, don't leave them. So is that still going on? But the analysis is the same. They all say, this is the problem. This is what needs to be done. So I want to read you a couple of check, a little bits here from Chantry. Uh, he first talks about how the church is astir with questions about evangelism and hope for revival. Never there be more missionaries. Never there be more evangelistic campaigns. Never more Christians studying to do personal evangelism. Never such enormous conferences to examine seriously the cause and cure of lameness in the gospel ministry. Then he mentions thousands of people of 100 nations all met for evangelism conferences. And yet, after all this analysis, evaluating, praying, and hoping, missions are not in great store being revitalized and sinners not turning to Christ in great numbers. And we have to take this with a pinch of salt because we're talking about the Western world and the average evangelical fundamental church in this nation. Now, there are some exceptions, thank God. And then uh, he goes on and he says this. The central issue of the way of salvation, large segments of Protestantism are engrossed in neo-traditionalism. We have inherited a system of evangelistic preaching which is unbiblical. Nor is this tradition very ancient. Our messages and manner of preaching the gospel cannot be traced back to the reformers and their creeds. They are much more recent innovations. They have clearly arisen from superficial exegesis and a careless mixture of 20th century reason with God's revelation. Products of modern evangelism are often sad examples of Christianity. They make a profession of faith and then continue to live like the world. Decisions for Christ mean very little. Only a small proportion of those who make decisions, quote-unquote, evidence the grace of God in a transformed life. All this related to the use of a message in evangelism that is unbiblical. The truth necessary for life has been hidden in a smokescreen of human inventions. On the shallow ground of man's logic, large numbers have been led to assume they have a right to everlasting life and have been given an assurance which does not belong to them. Evangelicals are swelling the ranks of the deluded with a perverted gospel. And then he goes on talking about those who read these pages, and he says, Could you be misleading souls and misdirecting the labor of other Christians? Have you closely examined your message and methods in the light of God's word? Pastors, this is no idle question. Have you not wondered about those converts who are as carnal as ever? What about those who have decided for Christ and you can't tell what they've decided? They're not godly like the Savior they profess, nor zealous for his cause. They do not study the word and do not mind if they're absent when it is preached. Consequently, you know, they give no evidence of true conversion. Have you considered the possibility they were never evangelized at all? And then goes into a number of areas like repentance and preaching the law of God to shut people up to conviction of sin and a number of these well-documented, you can go back in the stream of the Christian church ever since evangelism has been preached right back to the Old Testament, uh, uh, say, um, types of how to preach. It's all in there. For instance, let me give you just a, a little simple visual example. I have here a cheetah's Bible. I mean, that's not what it's called. It's called a Zondervan marked reference. And I like this thing because it's got a nice concordance in the back and stuff. But it's already pre-marked. That impresses people no end when uh, you open it up and there's all these lovely colored scribbles all over the thing. 
and that's been pre-marked for you. It was done by a guy called G. Gilchrist Lawson, who put out the little personal workers, New Testament, with a red letter uh, thing, you know. What he did is he did a whole Bible, kind of a product of his life's work, in which he took the major themes of the Bible, broke them all down according to the weight that was given to them in Scripture. And uh, he explains his method somewhere here, if I can find it. Look at this about once every eight years. No, I can't find it. It's in here somewhere. Out of a total of 31,102 verses in the Bible, imagine counting them, 7,670 verses, or nearly one verse in four, concern the theme of salvation. This includes over 1,900 verses on the necessity of holy living, 2,531 verses on the temporal punishment of the wicked, what happens right here and now, not future. See? 413 verses on the future punishment of the wicked, 575 verses which shows God's love for the sinner and 182 verses which show God is no respecter of persons. Out of 23,145 verses in the Old Testament, 4,736 have some bearing on man's need of salvation or the way of salvation. And 2,934 verses out of a total of 7,957 in the New Testament also concerning the salvation of mankind. So what I want to do is just show you a couple of little blocks of stuff here. Uh, the first one is a subject which is very popular today and is well, uh, well preached on, and that is that faith is essential to conversion. Now, around my fingers there are all the verses in the Bible on faith is the condition of conversion. All right? By faith we are saved. I've got my two fingers around them. Now, most of you, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on faith? Put your hands up. I'd imagine most of you have. I'm going to turn the page here, and I want to show you the, the Bible verses on repentance. There's at least twice as many verses on repentance. But what is this one down here? What is this with a page and over the page? Holy living should follow conversion. That's what it's about. There is more space given to this than almost any other theme concerning salvation. Now, let me ask you a question. I wonder if you can guess what this question is. What do you think we're preaching today in balance? We talk about balance. We're... This isn't balance. This is tremendous emphasis on one side of the thing. And I think we ought to get, from even a cursory glance at this block of stuff, that God expects people who follow him to be like him. And if they're not, there's a real problem, either in their understanding or in their actual meeting him. And that, I think, is that what Dave Wilkerson's recently called a revival of holiness. There is a cry going out across the country for return to ordinary Christianity. Not super spiritual Christianity, just ordinary Christianity. Our Christianity is subnormal. We have become subcultures of the original Christians. We are no, our, to us, advanced heavy duty Christianity is not even kindergarten stuff. We are so low, we have to reach up to touch bottom. 
Now, th you could pick this up from any writer. I I've got a, you know, stacks of different people through the past. Here is uh, A.W. Tozer. Uh, what it means to accept Christ, he says. A few things, fortunately only a few, are matters of life and death, such as a compass for a sea voyage or a guide for a journey across the desert. To ignore these vital things is not to gamble or take a chance. It is to commit suicide. Here it is either be right or be dead. To the question, what must I do to be saved, we must learn the correct answer. To fail here is not to gamble with our souls. It is to guarantee eternal banishment from the face of God. Here we must be right or be finally lost. Being spiritually lazy, we naturally tend to gravitate towards the easiest way of settling our religious questions. Hence the formula accept Christ has become a panacea of universal application, and I believe it has been fatal to many. Trouble is the whole accept Christ attitude is likely to be wrong. It shows Christ applying to us rather than us to him. It makes him stand hat in hand awaiting our verdict on him instead of kneeling with troubled hearts awaiting his verdict on us. It may even permit us to accept Christ by an impulse of mind or emotions painlessly at no cost, lost to our ego and no inconvenience to our usual way of life. I must be frank in my feeling that a notable heresy has come into being in evangelical circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior and that we have a right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. And then he goes on. Uh, that's uh, Poser. And we could pick up the same theme from people like Catherine Booth. Here's uh, Catherine Booth's Popular Christianity. Uh, another modern representation of Christ is that of a substitutionary savior, not in the sense of atonement, but in the way of obedience. This Christ is held up as embodying in himself the sum and substance of the sinner's salvation, needing only to believe in that is accepted by the mind as the atoning sacrifice and trusted in a securing for the sinner all the benefits involved in his death without respect to any inward change in the sinner himself. This Christ is held up as a justification and and protection in sin, not a deliverer from sin. In other words, men are taught Christ obeyed the law for them, but he has placed his obedience in the stead of or as substitution of the sinner's own obedience or sanctification, which is an effect like saying, though you may be untrue, Christ is your truth, though you may be unclean, Christ is your chastity, though you may be dishonest, Christ is your honesty, though you may be insincere, Christ is your sincerity. The Christ of God never undertook to perform any such offices for his people, but he did undertake to make them new creatures and thus to enable them to perform this. He never undertook to be true instead of me, but to make me true to the very core of my soul. He never undertook to make me pass for pure, either to God or to man, but to enable me to be pure. He never undertook to make me pass for honest or sincere but to renew me in the spirit of my mind so I could not help but be both as the result of his, the operation of his Holy Spirit in me. He never undertook to love God instead of my doing so with all my heart and mind and soul and strength, but he came on purpose to empower and inspire me to do this. The idea of a substitutionary Christ, accepted as an outward covering instead of the power of an endless life, is a cheat of the devil and has been the ruin of thousands of souls. I fear this view of Christ uh, so persistently preached in the present day encourages thousands to live in a false hope while they're living in sin.
Now, uh, somebody asked, you know, a question about eternal security in one of our question and answer things. I believe in eternal security. I do not believe in carnal security. And a person living a life unlike Jesus and no heart's desire to be like him that's still saved. Saved from what? Certainly not from sin. And that's what Jesus came to do that nobody else can do. He's the only one who can deliver from sin. Uh, we could go through chunks of this stuff and you can go to the Puritan writers or the pilgrims or the mystics or the evangelicals or the reformers or the modern evangelical fundamentalists have made a jump in the last 50, 60, 80 years there's been a decay from that original preaching of we'll call it no saviorhood without lordship you know what they preach in behind the iron curtain? No saviourhood without lordship. They never heard of a division of the thing. You get saved, that's it. Jesus is your boss. Before the Kremlin was, now Jesus is. That's it. And some of the third, other third world countries in Africa and Latin America, they, if you said, well, you've made Jesus your saviour, have you made him your lord? They wouldn't know what in the fat you were talking about. You see, you know, it's not what Jesus does, it's who he is. It's like me saying, I accept my wife as my personal dishwasher. It's who he is, not what he does. That's secondary to who he is. And he is first and foremost. He's Lord 747 times in the New Testament. And wherever that phrase, Savior, Lord and Savior, it's always in that order. Lord and Savior. It's never flipped. Lord and Christ, Lord and Savior, not vice versa. All right, now, let's look now at one of the hairiest of all of these things. I'm going to ask this question. Is it possible to be a Christian, a real Christian, and not surrender to Jesus your heart and life as your master? In other words, is it possible to come to Jesus and get salvation off him without having him? You know what I mean? Do something for me. Get me saved. But I don't want to obey you. Not yet. I'll do that when I get to be a missionary. I join YWAM or last days and get advanced. Then I might make you Lord one day. So what we got here then is a division between Lord up here and lights, see, flashing fluorescence. And down here, Savior, this is kind of the bottom story. I mean, you can put a U-R, I, I do because I'm English, but you, I mean, you can put a R if you want to. That voice looks weird to me, so I'm just going to put you in there. <laughs> All right? Now, if you make a separation between Lord and Savior, then you're going to have some funny people, and this is the way they look. They're Christians, but they're hookers, still because they haven't given that area to the Lordship of Christ yet. They're Christians, but they're still addicts. They're Christians, but they're still... You fill in the blanks. They're Christians, but they're still demon-possessed. They're Christians, but they're still... Fill in the blanks. You can put uh, all kinds of things in between us, and you need to put it in to explain an anomaly of a person who is a Christian but still living exactly like their non-Christian neighbors. And what you put in there just depends on whatever's in in the particular year you speak it. You see, you could put discipleship in here, you could put uh, baptism of the Spirit, you could put deliverance, you can put 
uh, you know, fill in the blanks, whatever. And on our, there is a sense in which we must grow, right? I mean, how many of you have grown in the last year, or last hour, or the last? <laughs> now, let me give you a little distinction here that has been of value to me. It has to do with an electronics analogy. There are two kinds of circuits in electronics. One's called digital, one's called analog. Now, an analog circuit is a little bit like a dimmer on a light. If you're looking at it on a, on a graph, it would go up slowly like that. It's like a light dimmer or volume control on a radio, like this. See, that's that little bit at a time, like this, see? Digital, though, on a scope would look like that. It's either on or it's off. It's up, it's down. Nothing in between. It's just like that. It's like a light switch. It's not sort of part on and, and it's off. See, just like that. Now, these are computer-type circuits and these are linear sound-type circuits and stuff like that. All right? Now, growth in Christian things is growth in grace, response, obedience to God's grace. That's one thing. And then growth also in wisdom, in our learning uh, let's change this one to obey. All right, there's two things. Growth in response to God as he gives us his uh, royal commands and then learning what that thing is. Now, here is what the Christian life looks like then. One of these components, these two things, to be loving and to be wise, is essential what it, what it means to be holy. God is light. God is love. Two essential elements of a holy life. Wisdom and love. Those two things. And out of all of those things flows all of God's actions. His mercy, his judgment, all of those things flow from his holiness, his wisdom and his love implemented by his power. Okay, Now, growth in the Christian life, then, is growth in two different things, but this is the way it happens. Analog growth is growth in wisdom. That's called line on line, precept on precept. That's the way God teaches you. He gives you one little thing, and then the next little thing, and the next little thing. He doesn't just go and dump everything on you. He gives you line on line. See? Takes you like a little kid and gives you one thing and then the next thing. But obedience is digital. Obedience is yes or no. It is not maybe. And what we have done in our day is made not only learning analog, but obedience analog. So a person is a little bit more obedient than they were yesterday, which is like being sort of 
God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all except. And that is what that does is it cuts out the absolutes in the Christian life, see? It, it, uh, Mara Mello calls it, we are ish, it's, it's ishness. We praise ish, we worship ish, we obey ish. You say to a person, are you serving the Lord? Well, more or less ish. I mean, what does that mean? If I say to a girl, are you pregnant? Well, more or less ish. What does that mean? She's either is or she's not. You married? Well, kind of more or less. Those are two biblical illustrations of conversion. Birth and marriage. And there, you know, yes or no. It's not a sort of, mm-hmm, maybe. And we made it a maybe. And that's one of the most dangerous things you can do. And we're not trying to hold up some kind of legal standard here. I'm just tr trying to hold up some standard at all. If we're going to preach the gospel and hold a standard up, you're going to hold your Mickey Mouse one up or his. We're going to say, look, this is as good as I've ever got, so why don't you try and be like this? Then we're back on that last ground. Compare ourselves with ourselves. I would rather hold a standard up that I can't make that God tells me is his standard than to hold up a standard I can easily do and make that. It's an embarrassing thing to stand before God and say, well, I passed on my standards. Do you see what I'm talking about? If we don't have, uh, matter of fact, Viktor Frankl said that we need something bigger than ourselves to give ourselves to to be healthy. You're not mentally healthy if you don't have something bigger than yourself to give yourself to. That's why a person will work for a firm, they'll retire him at 60 years old, give him a gold watch, and he goes home and he's dead in two weeks. Because he lost his gold, he had nothing left to give himself to, so he just lay down and died. Now, if we have an infinite God, and we do, and we're finite beings, and we are, and he says, you be holy, for I am holy, or be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect, then where are you going to come to the end of that? When are you going to have time to be laid back and mellow? When will you arrive? Here I am. I have arrived. Listen, who saved the Apostle Paul? Did he do a good job? Did he have the proper counseling? I would imagine so, would you not? To be saved by Christ himself? Do you think the Apostle Paul knew Jesus? Would you think? It doesn't take more than three brain cells to say, well, yes, he probably did. Then why in the world does Paul at the end of his life say that I might know him? Because he understood this. Okay? We sin against God when we make obedience analog. And tell people you can obey a little bit more than you did before. You obey or you disobey. We reject what God says. We're not partially obedient. The myth of partial obedience has eaten out the heart of the church. The myth of partial obedience. Here's God. He speaks to Jonah. Arise and go to Nineveh. 
Sarjana does something. He arises, dynamite, and he goes to Tashish. He would have said, well, I did most of what you said. God arranged a small voyage in a fish. All right, now, I'm going to give you some things. How much like a Christian can a non-Christian be? That's a big question. How much like a Christian can a non-Christian be? How moral can a lost man be? The Bible answers exceedingly so. God looks at the heart, men look at the outward appearance. Now, Matthew 23:28. You can be outwardly spotless. Matthew 23:28. Remember when Keith and I were in Australia some years ago? We went out to eat after one of his concerts, and it was kind of late at night, about 12 or 1, and we went to this little pancake house type place, and there was a girl who served us, and uh, she looked like charismatic Christian. I mean, she smiled and bought all this stuff, and she was nice and kind, you know. She didn't have a wart on her nose. She didn't fly in on a broomstick or anything. She was very nice. She, she kind of looked like a Christian would look, right? The one you expect... Um, so Keith talking to me, we're, you know, we're talking about early, when you first young Christians, how easy it is sometimes to witness before you learn all the dangers of what you ought not to do, and then don't do anything. And Keith was talking about how in the early days, he, he could witness easily to waitresses. And Keith being, of course, tactful as you know he is, and, <laughs> and uh, always very careful to say the right thing. And this waitress comes back. And Keith, in illustration, he's saying, you know, I used to witness the waitress just like this. Boom! And then he turns around to this girl who's bringing us our butter pancakes or whatever, and, and he says, excuse me, do you know Jesus? <laughs> right, you know, this kind of delicate, subtle approach to the gospel. And she looks at him in the strangest way, like, like this, and said, no, I wouldn't want to know him. Which shocked Keith. I mean, he nearly dropped his pancakes. He was so, you know, he'd expect anything except that. Sort of a person, well, actually, no, you know. Well, yes, but not, no, I wouldn't want to know him. I mean, not that. Not from this nice, you know, charismatic Christian-looking girl. And Keith went, oh, uh, oh, why not? <laughs> Well, it works to that effect. And she said, you're a Christian, are you? He said, yes. She said, you wouldn't understand. Put the pancakes down and left. So keep thinking, you know. What is this? <laughs> so eventually, you know, she comes back for the check or whatever the thing is, and Keith nails her again. You know, what are you into, he says, you know. So she says... Uh, the reason why I wouldn't want to give my life to Jesus is because I love the devil. He is my master and my Lord, and he helps me in everything I do, and I worship him, and he is, he's, uh, he's the, one, the only one I'd ever serve and give my life to. And then Keith nearly regurgitated his butter pancakes, because that is a total shock. You expect 
you know, this person's a, they come in looking like Rosemary's baby, you know, and ah, with claws as they put the, and, you know, the broom packed there, and as they leave, they... Some of the most demonic people I've ever met in my life are the most outwardly beautiful. One young girl, the devil promised her that if she married him, she would become secretary of the next president, and uh, he would give her power in the land. All these trippy things. He's a liar, of course. But boy, she was on her way up there. She had a memory. She could pick something up and look at it and never forget it. Just like this, you know. Unbelievable. And the most nice-looking girl you ever saw. And she was married to the devil. It's not outwardly spotless. They'd be Pharisees. You know who the Pharisees were? We think of them as sort of a bunch of Freddy Pharisee and, <laughs> and saying religious things. These guys were the spotless ones, boy. They were the heavy-duty dudes. They were the top evangelical fundamentalists of their day. It's like saying, see, Billy Graham, unless your righteousness exceeds his, you're going to go to hell. And you think, well, Billy Graham, I mean, he doesn't make it, nobody's going to make it. That was the same kind of effect Jesus had. You know, we're not saying Billy Graham is actually a ravening wolf inside. He's a godly man. I'm talking about, can you imagine the shock it would be for you to look up to your top religious leaders and have God say, forget it. The motives are wrong. Their outsides are nice. Their insides are wrong. Next, you can be prayerful. Mark 12:40. We think that if you really pray a lot, you must be saved. Jesus said, you ask and you receive not. He didn't say you didn't ask. He said, you ask and you receive not, book of James, because you ask and miss, that you might can, you may spend it on your own lusts in effect. Uh, the Pharisees prayed five times a day. Jesus said, beware of the scribes, which for pretense make long prayers. They shall receive greater damnation. You can be zealous in religion. It, zeal is not a test of genuine Christianity. Some of the most zealous people in the world are not saved at all. They're deeply into what they are into. You know, you can get hit up for flowers or cookies or stuff by the most zealous people. They're door-to-door. -door. Hello, we're from the First Church of I Will Arise. We want to tell you about the heaviest thing that's ever come down the pike. Uh, I went to Israel many years ago. I saw Masada there. My wife actually went out in the desert and sunlight came up and stood there where today the Israelis go when they, the tank battalions are getting ready for their graduation service. And they stand there a little bit like the Alamo. They, uh, Masada is a place where just a handful of Jewish zealots rather than bow to the Roman Empire and, and to give up their devotion to their tradition. They all lay down and they died. They killed themselves. Five hand-picked people went through and put to death by their consent and choice. Every man, woman, and child in the place, and then they lay down beside their wives and children and fell on their own swords. And when the Romans finally broke in, I, I hear Mr. Spock, I'm coming in. <laughs> when the Romans finally broke in, uh, a day later, they had this eerie thing, all the food heaped up and spoiled, all the weapons destroyed, and just a pile of corpses. They died rather than betray the smallest iota of the religion. Were they Christian? No. 
really know God? No, but they're deeply devoted to a religious tradition, enough to lay their lives down for it. Jonestown is another example. You do not have to be a Christian to be zealous. Not at all. You can be conscientious in spiritual duties. You can know and read the Bible. Now, you talk about knowing and reading the Bible. If we took the Pharisees as an example, you wouldn't believe how heavy they were. To get to be an ordinary scribe, which was the lowest on the totem pole, you copied out by hand the scriptures and you memorized them. How many of you have memorized the Bible? They did. Plus great chunks of the Torah and everything else. And that was just to be a scribe. To be a lawyer, you had to not, not only know it, you had to be able to interpret it. But to be a Pharisee, you had to not only know it and interpret it correctly, you had to live it perfectly. Then you could be a Pharisee. And it was these people that Jesus said, not going to make it. Now, can you imagine the shock that is? You can go to church. You can enjoy going to services. You can like speakers that love God and not be a Christian. Ezekiel 33, an Old Testament example of this. God said this to Ezekiel. Son of man, the children of your people talk about you one to another and say, Come, I hear. Come, I pray you, and listen to the word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The people gathering before Ezekiel, and there's word of mouth saying, Hey, listen, this is heavy, boy. This guy's speaking a real word from God. And he said, They sit before you as my people, but you are one to them that's had a lovely voice and knows how to play well on an instrument. They hear your words and they will not do them. With their mouth they show much love, but their heart goes after their own covetousness. God said they like it, but it's, they just like, they like the things you're saying. They like, hey, wasn't that a heavy message? But they're not changed. Their heart is no different. They like going to services. They like listening to Christians, but they're not themselves. You can be active in witnessing. Matthew 23, 15. And... Uh, in, in Wyoming, we know this. All across the world, there are people who signed up for missions activities who on the mission field got saved. Just like John Wesley. Remember? Went out to convert the heathen and, oh, who will convert me? How many kids? Best recommended, all pastors of the South, greatest young person, very zealous, keen, goes there. Three months into the missions program, he goes, oh, I'm a Christian, and gets saved. See? happens all over the place. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 23, 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You cross land and sea to win one follower, and when you have him, you make him twice the child of hell that you are. Now, isn't that a heavy thing for witnessing? All right. Let's take a break. <laughs> Why don't we have a break?
Now, Father, we thank you again for this uh, opportunity we've had to be together these last few days, and we ask you one more time to help us to uh, cap this series off that we've studied uh, in these past five sessions, to bring things to conclusion, and more important, perhaps, to practically know the right way to preach and to present the message of uh, crucified Lord, risen and glorious. In Jesus' name, help us, we ask. Amen. We have looked in these uh, previous five sessions at five dif uh, three different kinds of ground. It did not make it. And uh, I want to finish just briefly off uh, this thing on the weedy ground, and then we'll look finally at the last, uh, the good kind of ground, I think the great value of looking at the soil that did not bring forth good fruit or the counterfeits is that it helps define much more clearly what the real looks like by negation. Uh, what we have said so far on this weedy ground thing is that there are a lot of people who seem to start well but they get choked out and lists uh, a number of things, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lusts or strong desires for other things entering in. And there seems to be an intimation of a warning that it's even possible to go forth and have these things happen to you. I'm thinking of examples of uh, young Christians, for instance. Um, I imagine, a, let's say a kid comes from a, a real street background. He's He's been spaced out of his skull. He's been a you know, a murderer, he's, he's, run with, he's got a total loss of a life and nothing much left for him to do except die. And then he gets saved, he, he hears the gospel and he makes some kind of profession of following Jesus. Now, wonderful things then start happening to him. People want to hear what he has to say because he's a testimony, trophy of grace. And, and so people, now he has value. See, he has importance and value that he didn't ever feel before. And so he gets propelled into our Christian culture, um, given uh, opportunities to testify and witness and stuff like this, uh, put up in the best hotels and sent from place to place, and then he gets a taste for things that he never had before. Uh, he never had all this money coming his way. He never had the luxuries that he had before. He came from a poor background, see. He never had these sophisticated temptations. His were very simple ones, you know, beat somebody up or not, or uh, get some acid today and score or not, you know, they were simple. But the sophisticated ones, the kind like uh, chariots of fire portrayed so well, that kind of thing he'd never been exposed to before. Well, I know young people like that, that once had a testimony across the land, that are gone today. Where are they today? Some of them are in business. They're using the gifts that they learned in preaching to make more money. Some of them uh, got involved in adulterous situations and dropped out of the Christian life. Some of them went back to the streets. And in almost every case, weeds grew up and choked out the word. And we need to, to lay a foundation here that says weeding must be done uh, by the Holy Spirit there must be a digging up of all weeds. Uh, uh, very practically, this 
a couple of years ago, our foundation in New Zealand, I have a little literature foundation, bought a field next door to our little base where all the research and stuff is done with the possible thought of maybe building a um, warehouse later when we move out of the other place that we've been renting. And uh, my friend, who's one of the guys who helps run the thing while I'm gone overseas, had a great idea. It was about a quarter acre field and he decided he'd plant potatoes in there, which is, you know, a great thing. So he, he got all of these seed potatoes and the, the, feed was, the whole field was covered in weeds. So he got a guy in with a rotary hoe and the guy went right through the field and plowed all the weeds, cut them all up into shreds and plowed them into the ground. <laughs> and then he put the seed potatoes. And what happened is that the weeds all grew and they all grew up. And in the middle of all of these weeds, there were potatoes. So if you could hunt through the weeds, you'd find potatoes. And uh, one guy told him you could get around two tons of potatoes out of that field. We got about 10 bags instead of 10 tons. So. He said, you know what I should have done? I should have killed all those weeds first and then planted the potatoes. So this is, has great uh, relevance to me at this point. You gotta kill those weeds before you stick the seed in or it'll choke it out. Simple as that. And those little dudes, boy, they are tenacious little dudes. You cut them up and chop them up and if you don't get those roots and murder them properly, Munch, munch, munch. Now, we have looked at some signs. How close to a Christian can you be and not be one? I just want to add a couple more in case you think that's not enough. Is it possible to feel sorry about sin and not make it? Yes, Judas did. Went out and wept and hung himself. And probably at this stage, people will say, look, you know, this, this may be true, but the important thing is that you believe in Christ and you follow him. That's what makes you a Christian. If you've got faith in Jesus, if you believe in him, you're on your way to heaven. That's the key thing. Is it possible to believe in Christ and not be a Christian? Well, here we have an interesting verse in John 2.24. This obviously is some kind of faith. It can't be saving faith, but it's some kind of faith. When he was in Jerusalem, speaking about Jesus, many believed in his name. When they saw the miracles that he did. Now that's an interesting little addition. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. Now that's weird. His people want to commit themselves to Jesus and he doesn't commit himself to them. What a radical thing. They say, have you accepted Jesus? And he said, well, maybe so, but has he accepted you? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You want to fit him in, has he fitted you in? And I think that little line is the giveaway. They believed in his name. Many people would like to have Jesus as their boss as long as he can take care of their housing needs and food and basic economics. It's called Santa Claus. As long as they do not have to seriously have their lifestyle threatened or their death style threatened by the cross. Is it possible to be a disciple and not make it? Many of his disciples said in John 6.66, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? From that time, many of his disciples, John 6.66, went back and walked no more with him. These were people who followed Jesus, who were disciples of some sort, maybe not the twelve. So we say this. We talk about believing in Jesus. Does he believe in us? 
Now, I'm not talking about a humanistic belief. Has he searched our hearts? Are we honest when we come to him? Is this, we talk about trusting Christ. Can he trust us? There's a sad verse in uh, Hebrews that says, Wherefore he is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, what a sad little commentary that is. The implication that there are some people that God is ashamed to be called their God. We say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Is the gospel ashamed of us? Hebrews 11:16 is that little verse. God is not ashamed to be called. It is not enough to say that I accept Jesus. Has he accepted us? Are we accepted in the beloved? Has he laid his sovereign hand on our lives? That's the question. And that, uh, remember the story of the little French guard and the Louvre? And a man comes up, and he's looking at this painting, and he says, what's that? Obviously an art critic, and the little Frenchman says, Monsieur, I don't know what that is. That's the most famous painting in the world. That is the Mona Lisa. And this guy looks at it. That's the Mona Lisa. And the French guard says, oui, that is the Mona Lisa. And he goes, hmm, that's a famous Mona Lisa. Oui, that's a famous Mona I don't think much of it. The little French guard pulls himself up to his full height and says, Monsieur, the Mona Lisa is not on trial. You are. I would love to get those bumper stickers that say, Try Christ, he'll scare hell out of you. And stick one right over the top. This is me being mild and tactful now. Jesus had his trial 2,000 years ago, and now it's your turn, Jack. He's not on trial. The God of the universe is not on trial. Mankind is in trial. We're in a serious jam and one we will not get out of without some supernatural intervention. And while we're at it, I have a ministry of ripping off bumper stickers. <laughs> Can you imagine standing before God, he who said, be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect, and you saying to him, oh God, nobody's perfect. Christians aren't perfect, only forgiven. You're going to believe your bumper sticker or the Bible? It'd be fun for you to argue with God. Well, that's my bumper sticker, says I paid four dollars for that bumper sticker. <laughs> Listen, is partial obedience to faith? Can you partially obey God? Partially not? Probably have to rewrite the scriptures. Isaiah 1, 16 to 17 would say, If you want your worship accepted, wash you in part, make yourself in some degree clean, put away the greater extent of your evil doings from before mine eyes, cease partly to do evil, and learn in some degree to do well. Isaiah 55, 7 should perhaps read, Let the wicked in great measure forsake his way, the unrighteous man partially forsake his thoughts, and let him return with the greater part of his heart to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. We want to be consistent. We say God will have some mercy on him. <laughs> Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord thy God require of thee but partially to do justice, to love mercy with sinful defections every day, and as imperfectly as you can get away with, walk humbly with thy God if you can. And nobody can, of course. We sing it like this, I surrender part, I surrender part, part to Jesus, I surrender. 
<laughs> now you can have a look at this little sheet I gave you out. Uh, it has to do with the carnal Christian question. Uh, can Christians be carnal? Well, carnal is simply the word flesh or fleshly. It's uh, a good way to understand that in a moral sense is cut that last bit in and reverse that word. It's, it's the concentration on emotional gratifications through the five senses that's the essence of the word flesh. It is to satisfy the self through the use of the five senses in a self-centered way. And that word carnal, fleshly, Christian is little Christ, Christ-like. So you put those two together, you got a radical combination. Fleshly Christ-like. That's like demonic angel or holy evil. See, and we use those, we just go, hey, it's a carnal Christian. We use them, you know what that word is? That's a slap in the face. If you are called carnal by God, that should be a slap in the face. That is equivalent to a self-centered, flesh-centered person. Paul uses it right through the New Testament comes simultaneously with a concept of the unsaved man. Berkeley translates that little phrase in Corinthians, are you not carnal and walk as men? Are you not worldly-minded and behave like the unconverted? In Romans 6 and in sections of Romans 7, the Bible says they that are carnal, and the carnal mind is an enmity, an enemy of God, and if you're carnal, you cannot please God. You're out of Christ. You're none of His. They that are in the flesh, it's the same word, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You're out of Christ, none of His. So I would not label yourself carnal Christian. That's a dangerous sort of label to wear around your neck. And the very least, in the best possible construction we can put on that, we can say there are Christians who really love God, who do not know that some of the things they're doing are alien to the gospel and are hated by God. That's the best you can say. You could say, well, they're babies, I don't understand that. But if you know and you practice, and you know how to get out of what you're practicing, and you continually do so, then you have grave suspicion to wonder whether or not you really do know what that word Christian means. And I fear we have a lot of people who practice without compunction a self-centered lifestyle death style let's call it and call themselves Christians well one day when we stand before God he will not evaluate us on our culture he will evaluate us on what we really knew and what we really obeyed that'll be it and it is quite possible how many of you have done something wrong and not known it was wrong you found it later. <laughs> My little boy, if he was helping me with gardening, I don't garden, so this is a ridiculous illustration. I could be pulling weeds out, and I go in for a lemonade, and he can come out and pull all the flowers out. Helping. Now, why don't I drop kick him over the house? Come out. What do you do to mummy's flowers? See, because he doesn't know. That's different. God is a father. He really loves people. He is not a baseball bat carrier. Looking for the slightest, I waited for that bomb home run. You know, he is not like that. What? We're talking about people that aren't, that aren't really children. <coughs> 
So we're not dealing with ignorance. We're dealing with a non-violation. I'll just say this. It seems to me highly unlikely that you can partially obey God, you can partially be saved, you can partially do this and partially do that. It seems to me that in Scripture we either obey what we're given. It's one thing to know you're wrong and not know how to get out of it. That's another ignorance thing. Some people know they're wrong, they don't know how to get out of what they're doing. Some idiots give them bad counsel. Fast, pray for 15 years. Instead of lay down your self-centeredness and trust Jesus, that will really get you out of that thing, mess you're in. Some people say, wrestle with it, fight it. So they do, and it gets bigger. Because self-centeredness always gets bigger when you concentrate on it. None of these legal ways, none of those threat bribe ways will work. Only the gospel will deliver. Only Christ himself can do that. All right, uh, I'll just give you a little... Uh, I'll give you one little thing I want to add to this, and we'll go to the good ground, which only take a, about 20 minutes to do. <laughs> In the old days, there were three kinds of people. Today, there are three kinds of people. In the old days, they had the careless sinner. They might, their names might have been different. The careless sinner was somebody who didn't care about God. He could care two hoots about God. He wasn't worried about his soul or his life after death or anything like that. He just went on and did his thing. He wasn't interested in God. He wasn't worried about his sin, nothing. Then they had, on this side, they had the Christian. And then the one in the middle was called the convicted sinner. Here's somebody who knew he was wrong, and wrestled with his wrong, and tried to get out of his wrong, but was not yet saved. Today we have three kinds of people. We have the natural man. He behaves exactly like this man here. See? Over here we have the Christian. But we've added a word to him now. He is the spiritual Christian. And the man in the middle still exists. I mean, he's changed names and he's changed kingdoms. He is called the carnal Christian. And as far as I can see from church history and the scripture, he is identical with this man here. Only we relabeled him and put him in the kingdom when they didn't. They said, this guy knows he's wrong. He knows the law. He knows Christ can save him. He is fighting. He is struggling against sin. He's dropping and getting up again and fighting. But he is not free because he has not learned the simple secret of dying and being resurrected with Christ and laying down his whole life and being reborn. We just changed his name. He still exists, has the same characteristics, but now we call him a Christian. And that's where that radical thing Lynn Ravenhill spoke about last year, that Campus Crusade survey that was taken last year among evangelical Christians, where over 90% said, over 90% said they considered themselves carnal or baby Christians of evangelical Christians in this nation. Over 90% consider themselves carnal or baby Christians. 
Now, what does that say to you? Ben Ravenel said, that's like finding the entire Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines are manned by Cub Scouts. Now do you see why the preaching of a holy life could generally bring a revival? There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who really think they are. But their lives have not changed. And somehow they've got to be rooted out of there. And we may make some mistakes in, in holding this thing up and saying, holy life, some people who really are Christians might get some condemnation. That's a, that's a risk. But I'm worried about this 90% that are and nobody's saying anything to shock them out of that thing. And God is not going to export that to the rest of the world. No way, Jose. One of my favorite uh, things, and if you wanted to put a title on this thing, you could call it this. One of my favorite stories is Alexander the Great, who was out checking on his perimeter defenses in one of his camps, in the middle of a campaign, young general, most brilliant general who ever lived in the Greek civilization. He's out there checking his outside perimeters, and he's sneaking up on all of his guards, you know, hoping to get challenged and stuff. And there's one young guy, he's so tired, he's leaning against his tree, and he's falling asleep on his feet. And Alexander gets all the way up to him. Boy, the guy's still asleep, and then Alexander grabs him. And lifts him right up. And the kid freaks out. First he thinks it's an enemy, you know. And then he sees it's his general, which is worse than being... The enemy just kills you. General takes you apart, skin by skin, fingernail by fingernail, before the people, because you... That's like betrayal. You go to sleep on your post, you could cost the whole army. See that? So Alexander's got this kid off his feet, up against the trees, holding him in the air, and he's so mad. And Alexander says to him, What is your name? Soldier. And the kid is so terrified, his teeth are chattering, his knees are knocking in the air, and he goes, Alexander, sir. Alexander the Great says, What? He goes, Alexander, sir. Alexander the Great says, And you change your conduct or you change your name. It's <laughs> a good title for this. Change your conduct or change your name. Now let's go to the last ground. This one will not take long. It is simply a listing from Scripture of what good ground looks like. And we're not going to get into arguments about whether we can make that ground like that or what. I'll just simply show you what it looks like. And, and I believe that God has given us practical instructions in each of these areas. All right, can you now list for me? The simple thing is that this, this seed falls in the ground, the soil uh, is responsive, and there's three different kinds of yield. That has to do with something sovereign, you know, God's doing something. Who knows what kind of seed's going to bring 30 fold, 60 fold, 100 fold? Who knows? You know? You lead a kid to the Lord, you don't know what kind of fruitfulness there'll be in the ministry. That's up to God. Gifts and callings of God are without repentance. He does whatever he wants to do. We're talking about the soil now. Tell me from Jesus' words what the characteristics of that soil is. And I want you to look at all three Gospels now because we're coming down to the home stretch. First Matthew 13, 23. First characteristic. 
He hears the word. Next. He understands it. Now, where did we get that one from? That's the positive of something we saw before. Where was that? The wayside ground. Remember, understands it not. This is the positive of that. And then, later on, we put the little, little gap here, which bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. All right? Now, Mark. Does Mark add anything? Yes, he does. Here's the word and. Receives it. So receiving is important. Look about receiving Christ, it's there. There is a re receiving of something, the word, the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. Remember that thing? And then the same end. Brings forth fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100. Exactly the same. Now go to Luke. Remember Luke, the teacher, always gives us that extra little amplification. Every now and then, he brings it out. Now give me the rest. Because there's some three significant things that Luke adds to our understanding and the amplification of this. Luke 8, 15. Firstly. Ah, here's two key things. It receives it with a good and an honest heart. Oh, it's the other way, isn't it? Let's put it in the right order. Put this down here. An honest and a good heart. Receives the word. So it would go actually honest, good, and then receive. It would be one, two, three, like that. Having heard the word, and then what else? Keeps it. Having heard the word, keeps it. So there's a going on thing. Keeps it. And brings forth fruit with perseverance or patience. With Hanging in there. Now there is Jesus' description from the synoptics of the kind of ground that makes it. So let's look at each one of these elements. In the sheet I'm going to give you uh, now, this is the one I'm, I use most often in counseling. I've given out over two and a half million of these things in the last 15 years. All, you'll, you'll recognize this when you read it through now. You'll see that the, the, the inside cover of this, it's just a little track called These Are The Facts. It's no big heavy thing. All it is, is I've taken these areas, each one of these, and just made a little acrostic sort of thing out of them. And what I want you to do is to see this. This is, an, this is a sort of the high points of, of what we've looked at but it is not always necessary to go through all of these things for somebody to get saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're not saying this. There are 15 things here you have to do to become a Christian. For instance, what if somebody has not heard? Obviously, they're going to have to hear something, right? The gospel must be preached. How do they hear without a preacher? How can they preach without being sent? So there's a whole bunch of stuff connected to that. But what if they have heard? Do they understand? They understand what it means to become a Christian. Do they understand who Jesus is and what sin is? Do they understand? If they do, you don't have to go into that. See? What if, next, let me just add 
something here. This is really the next one, the next word, uh, if we're putting these things together in a chronological order. The next one would be in an honest and good heart receives it. It seems to me that the one key element as far as the human side responding to God's grace and his conviction is honesty. Uh, see, for years, and I've been a missionary evangelist now for 20 years in college campuses, in high schools, and everywhere except the jungles that Leland's going to. Uh, it, when I've asked kids, how did you get saved? How did you really get saved? Not how you were supposed to get saved. How did you really get saved? Now, some of them were taken through a standard soul-winning plan, you know, four things God wants you to know, four spiritual laws, uh, eight, eight godly laws, or, you know, different things. Uh, soul-winning made easy plan. Or, some of them went through that, and I can pretty much tell you because they use that today. But others, they, they didn't bear any correspondence or resemblance to any soul-winning plan you ever heard of. Now, that would embarrass you until you read the New Testament. Have you ever tried to work out Jesus' soul-winning plan from the New Testament? You want to try it from the Gospel of John? First you say, you must be born again. Then you say, come down out of your tree, because I'm going to have a house. You know, then you say, go and get your water pot. And you, you, sort of, you say all these weird things, and you come up with nothing at the end. You see, it's, I tried to get Jesus' soul-winning plan. I had about 82 pages of soul-winning plan. And it's really difficult to give all that to people. Come out of your tree, and you must be born again. And... I think sometimes when we witness, we, we, we think it's like magic. There's certain magic words you say. It's like a rabbit's foot. We don't really understand what God is trying to do with people's lives, and we don't understand the way the gospel works, and so we say magic words. See? Please turn your tape over for the remainder. Here's the first magic word. And we lay this, maybe it's a verse. See, we say, firstly, you must know this. All the sinner comes short of the glory of God. You understand that? I think so. Fine, okay, that's point one. Point two. Where's your sinner's death? You understand that? Mm -hmm. I guess so. It's all up here, see. So then the person quotes the soul-winning plan. They're not saved yet, but they, they can tell you. Mm, that's heavy. And then we do what, what is a logical consequence. You know, Jesus said, Whosoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You believe that? Yes? Well, if he doesn't take you out, what does he do? I guess he must take you in. That's right! You're a Christian! Glory to God! Amen! Sign on the stuff alone. <laughs> the person goes, Oh, I am! And in Tozer's words, forces a waxy smile and testifies that he's been converted. He is a victim of spiritless logic, a rationalistic deduction from a set of premises, which give you a philosophical conversion, but not what Wesley said, the spirit answers to the blood and tells me I'm born of God. And you get a philosophical conversion, you come across somebody with a heavier philosophical premise, and they'll blow you away in 15 seconds. I don't care about philosophical premises. I do battle with philosophical premises every day of my ministry in colleges. I have a living Christ. I met him. I was like, I wonder if it's true. <laughs> Look, honesty seems to be the key ingredient in this whole thing. It seems like every person that really gets honest, they don't even have to be an honest person, as long as they're honest towards God. 
I've had guys say, God, I'm a rotter, I'm a liar, I'm not even sure that I mean what I'm saying to you right now. And boom, things happen, see? You know, I don't know how many times the word lies or hypocrisy is mentioned in the scripture. You know what the word hypocrite is? It's an actor, same word. Somebody who puts up a front, who plays a role. The whole world is playing roles. Roles of what they think they are. Roles of what they think God is. Putting this little front up. When that front goes down, it goes down by honesty. When God the Holy Spirit deals with a person's life, if you bring them to honesty, it is the first major step to genuine conviction. And sometimes you can help people with that. We do this. Here's a kid that go, well, I don't know, I found it really hard for me to, you know, feel... So get a sheet of paper. Ask God the Holy Spirit to show you the things you've done to hurt him first and others and yourself. And as he shows you, make a list of those things. And what they're doing is they're getting honest with their life. See, and boy, it's incredible. We've had kids get that and they take out a sheet of paper and they go away and you know, they're hard and cold as nails. And they, 30 minutes later, boy, they can't write anymore. They're busted into bits. I had a young man come to me after one of Dave Wilkerson's crusades. Dave preached a heavy message on who's to blame. This was years ago. Kid came up and he, there's two of them, both high school students. Both came up. One kid couldn't look me in the face. I said, what do you want, son? He said, I, I need to become a Christian. I said, great. And I said to his friend who was sitting there on a cigarette, I said, what'd you come for? Oh, I thought I'd become a Christian too. I said, I don't think God can save you. Shock the cheese out of him. He said, what? I said, I don't think God can save you. He said, the Bible says God gives grace to the humble. You don't look like that to me. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Okay? You want to get saved? Oh, I thought about it. He said, then you get over there on your knees and you ask God to show you the filthy mess you've made of your life and how much you've hurt others and yourself and most of all him. It's easy for you to find out how much you've been hurt, but what about him? You ask him to show you that. And when you get finished, come back and I'll show you how to get saved. And he went away. Well, he was gone for 30 minutes. Now, what about his friend? His friend didn't need that stuff. His friend was honest. He was broken. How do you get a good heart when you've got a rotten heart? Change it. It's called repentance. Respond to the Holy Spirit. When he calls, say goodbye. You say goodbye. You turn around. Dan Dave Wilkerson says it's like a train. You get in a train. You find you're going in the wrong direction. You stop the train. You get off the train. You catch a train going in the right direction. It's a 180 degree turn. You thought bad things about God and great things about yourself. Now you start to see what you really like and you start to understand who God is really like. A 180 turn. Metaneo, to change the mind. Literally beyond the mind. To go beyond the old limits of your dumb little ideas about yourself and your universe. And let God invade your mind and give you a whole new future when a kid is honest and he's broken before God he really wants to dump his sin he wants to get out of what he's in then you don't need to go all through this stuff with him you just simply you may you may want to mention as part of this repentance thing the good things that we talked about so he doesn't just feel bad about his bad things see then he would not lead a person to Christ until a guy couldn't look him in the eyes anymore now we had us, you know, we fit it in between commercials. It's got 30 seconds, you got enough time to get saved just before the next incredible hold. And when the person's there, then he, all you do, 
is have him surrender his whole life over to Jesus as his substitute and his savior and his master. So with this first kid, after the other kid went away for 30 minutes, this other kid came up, I just said, you ready to really trust the Lord? You ready to leave everything, do anything? Yes, he said, I'm ready. I said, right there, no. I prayed with him and said, now you pray. I said, Lord Jesus, here's a young man. He wants to give everything he's got to you. I know you don't have to accept him, but here he is. And you've made promises that if, you, if somebody came to you with an honest heart, and really wanted to dump this in, that you would accept him, and uh, here he is. His name is Jack, and he wants to talk to you now. Boom, okay, Jack, where you go. And he broke, started weeping, gave his life to God, to get gloriously converted. I didn't have to say, I wonder if it was real. <laughs> See? And when his friend came back 30 minutes later, like this, I think I'm ready now. I said, I think you are too. See, and then this... <laughs> What I'm saying is this, if you don't understand what the gospel is, then you're going to be like magic, you see. Here, let's say this verse, and say this verse. And we've, we've finished all four verses, and we're not sure what... To, do you see what I'm talking about? This is intelligent cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Jesus did it. He sees a man, the guy's religious, he shocks him a little bit. He sees somebody, a sinner that's hungry by a well, he talks about himself. Do you see that? There's an intelligent cooperation here. You know what the Holy Spirit is doing with people in different parts of their life. I see a kid, he's dishonest, he doesn't care. Well, let the Holy Ghost deal with him until he's repentant and got honest. If he's honest but he's not repentant, then show him what it means to really repent. So let's give you the list. You got it there on your little uh, sheet? All I've done is just... Uh, I've broken it up to R's. Can you see that? Can you, you want to read them out for me? And, uh, yeah. This, this, is, this is assuming that a message has been preached, which is the gospel. Okay, now a person wants to get saved. First, that takes care of that bit, and maybe even this bit. Honest. See that? Get honest. Whatever that, whatever that's needed. Uh, let me give you another example. As a girl, Tony and I, uh, Tony Solano and I counseled some years ago. Uh, all the signs in this girl's life showed two things. Unyielded rights. He was really angry, really, really worried. A very selfish girl and really mad. at the, You know, he'd touch a boom and she'd blow up, see? And hurt, very hurt. Now, we don't know why, but the two major signs in her life was this hurt and this unyielded right. So we knew this. In this girl's life, the thing that's stopping her really getting saved is an unyielded right that has to do with, or there's something also having to do with hurt. That's all we knew. Right? That's just basic sign. Looking at a person's life, you, see, you don't have to be a genius or deeply godly to see on a person's hurt or food. You know, like this. You don't have to go, hmm, I wonder what their problem is. Um, it's not a heavy, deep spiritual insight. I've got 82 words of knowledge. and made It's just plain looking at people who have been hurt for a long time after a while you start saying hmm that's what hurt people look like and when you see people mm, yes you know what angry people look like you see it's not a brilliant deduction this girl had some major thing in her life she she was religious she was a church but there's some fundamental thing that was unbroken in her life she didn't come through see? so we said to her listen you got a problem, there's some good thing, 
something one right way down in your life you're, you're refusing to give to God and something to do with her she said I'm not hurt I'm not hurt I'm not hurt not at all nothing but don't think of anybody given everything I know to God there's nothing else see you know what it was she had a boyfriend that she really loved and the guy dropped her boom a religious guy maybe even a Christian guy he dropped it and she would not admit to God that she'd been hurt by that she wouldn't admit it she covered it over and built a whole fabric on top of that that didn't hurt me I don't even care that see and that was a whole dishonesty a life built on a lie that she did not get hurt you know how she got saved she had to admit to God that she really was hurt when her boyfriend left her that was a right see a right not to be hurt and when she brought it out it was the most beautiful thing see what kind of counseling is this for a guy to, for a person to get saved you must admit to God that your boyfriend really hurt you how does that got to do with salvation everything if you understand in every life there is a God that takes the place of the real one when that God goes the real one comes in her God was I am not I am not hurt there's nothing wrong and when she said, oh God, he, he heard me, it came out, boy, Holy Spirit came down on the light, boom, and transformation. You don't have to mess around and, and legally say, you must do that these 4,000 things, they died. And what you, it's a core of a boil, you get that and everything goes. You miss it, I don't care what you're doing, it's not going to happen. Now, I would rather you have an understanding of the gospel then you have a plan I would rather you understand than have a plan nice to have a plan nothing wrong with plans I had 42 plans and used them all at one stage or another and like a sermon it's nice it helps you when you don't know what else to say <laughs> but I'd much rather you rely on God to show you where a person is and we need some intelligent counseling now not people who give rabbit's feet to people here have these eight verses and I hope something happens to you next one what is this next one repent. repent and that takes care of the bad things okay we add another one just to take care of the good things that we don't repent from what is it renounce see that's rights and that's actually just the facet of repentance but we've broken it down into two things so that most people think bad things here when you say renounce then they understand it means I've got no future I have whatever if we don't do this here's a kid he's planned to be a lawyer he wants to be Perry Mason or you know or cats or something you know cows when he grows up and and uh, he is led to the Lord and then somebody says to him give up your bad things so he stops smoking stops fornicating and now he's going to be a Christian lawyer see if we tell him this listen what if God don't want you to be a lawyer anymore what if instead he wants you to go to Africa? That might sound silly, but there was somebody who did that. He and his brother were the best two lawyers in their class, and they graduated, and one lawyer said, what are you going to do, brother? He said, I think you should come into partnership with me, and we'll make the best law firm England's ever seen. And the other guy said, no, I think God's called me to go to the mission field. I'm giving up my law practice. I'm going to Africa. We remember the brother who was the lawyer today because he was the brother of David Livingston. That's a real example. The giving up of rights is a, is a central part. That's the rocks. Dealt with the rocks. We plowed the ground a little bit. See? Dealt with some rocks. 
Now, what's the next thing? Replan. Person, it's a new life. See, this is resurrection from the dead. It's a very simple thing. Here you come with all your plans, all your ideas. You're executed, put to death. There's a nice little grave there. Here lies Joe Blow, rest in peace forever. Hallelujah. Finish. Your plans, finished. Your boyfriend, girlfriend, finished. Your career, finished. Your ideas, finished. Your concepts, finished. Finished. Cross right through the lot. Now a resurrection. What are we going to do with this brand new baby? That's up to God. He can do anything he wants. That's called being healed after you've been wounded. See that? We plan. No. Let God do anything he wants. And you get people like that, boy, when they make it through this. And I mean, you may miss on this. You really might. You might... You might miss something, you might have rushed over something, and the person doesn't really come through, you get them to the end and they don't do it. Don't be afraid to do it again. Then he would watch them when he finished. And then he'd say, what has happened? Um, and he'd say, what are you leaving out? And we'll be scared, but we're at plan four, we can't go back to plan two. We're already at step five, bow your head with me. <laughs> He didn't care. He wanted him saved. Not making words, not saying the right things. Run him through again. <laughs> Sometimes there are questions. Bill Gothard has a set of questions. Have you ever played with the demonic? Have you seen? Is this something that you're not willing to... Is this some secret sin that you're not willing to expose? Is it something you're unwilling to give up? Just go through the rights and the wrongs. Deal with them if necessary. Don't be afraid to do that. Now that is a little bit more costly than giving people a plan. But we, we are, I'm sick of plan people. I, it's like mechanical wind-up, another Christian, another Christian. We want some godly people that really meet God, that become their unique, special creations that God has designed them to be. Last part. Receive. That's the simple end of it. The Lord Jesus, by faith, to rule and reign in the heart forever. That's the faith that justifies. A faith in the context of, of the understanding the gospel and a genuine repentance and a genuine honesty and a genuine surrendering and bowing of the knee to God. That is the faith that saves. That's a just to live by faith. And uh, do we have anything else to add to this? Keeps it with patience, see? That's why in that second little part, it's called living in the family of God, it says the first sign of a new Christian is perseverance. They go on and make it. And it's called sticks to the task. Do you see it at the top there? If you really are going to serve God, you'll stick to him. It's like this. You promise God your life. He, he commits himself to you. It's a mutual covenant. His eye never sleeps. His arm is not shortened. He commits himself with all of his omnipotent power and love and wisdom to you. But on your part, you purpose to love and trust him as long as you both shall live, and that's going to be a long time. 
The rest of those are signs of a new Christian from Scripture. Those are the evidences of Christianity. There are some outward, there are some inward. We won't go through those, but I'd... Hey, tell you what not to do. Do not tell a person, now you're a Christian. How dare you do that? Are you playing God now? We do it all the time, don't we? Now you're a Christian, bless God. How do you know? You let God assure them. I'm not going to assure anybody of their salvation. I have to stand before God. And God says, did you assure this guy of salvation? <laughs> well, yes, I did. Well, I didn't. See, let him do it. You see, well, if they're not sure, then there's work to be done. Can you imagine Jesus speaks? There's Lazarus. He's in the tomb, right? Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he walks out, see? And then Jesus says, now hold it. Tomorrow you're going to doubt this really happened. People are going to tempt you and say, I don't know whether this is real. <laughs> what do you think Lazarus felt? You rise from the dead, Jack, you know it. And I'll tell you a beautiful thing. If you take a bit more time before, you'll have to take a lot less time after. This is... Hey, I'm giving you this not because I'm the great expert on this thing. I'm giving it to you because for five years I batted my brains out trying to keep people when I didn't pre-evangelize. I didn't prepare the ground. I shot them in as quickly as possible and we have a little saying in New Zealand among the Maoris, easy come, easy go. And I learned early, if they're going to stick, you do it right. Listen, before those principles, before I learned what God was trying to do with people, you win a hundred people a year and the end of a year you can count on the fingers of one hand that is still going on. And since using that, I can say this to the glory of God, I can count on the fingers of both hands those who have turned away from the Lord after going through that. You do it properly, you do it in the wisdom of God, then you watch, they'll stick because they'll be God's converts, not yours. They'll be kept by the power of God, not a good follow-up program. And I'll tell you a neat thing. Babies are hungry, right? Newborn babies are hungry? Before that, my babies were not hungry. I had to knock them down, stick injections in them, and pump in blood plasma and glucose to keep them alive. The idea was a beautiful illustration. Then it came to me after five years that if my babies were not hungry, it's because they either were sick or dead. You get a baby, he is hungry. You don't have to make him want to eat. That comes naturally from the fact that he's alive. So it's so neat to have these new Christians. And you know what that's so neat? They turn out better than you did. That's why you know it's God. They grow so fast. Do you see what I mean? They turn out better than you. Your job is to get them weaned away from you and into the real Savior of their soul. It is so neat, boy, to have a young Christian give me something to eat. I want their burgers, not it now. I want the kind of converts you can leave them in a desert island for 20 years, and when they come back, they're having a Bible study with the coconuts. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Our time is gone. We'll quit at this point.
Uh, is this complicated? Uh, you know, I, I hope you, we've covered an awful lot of ground here. We've got a lot of... We really hope that this teaching has ministered to you.